Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper and you're listening to the Martyr Made Podcast. You're about to hear the fourth episode of God's Socialist, The Rise and Fall of People's Temple, better known as the Jonestown Suicide Cult. If you haven't heard the episodes before this in the series, I highly recommend you go back to the prologue and start from there and work your way through chronologically. The story will be a lot deeper and make a lot more sense. If you enjoy this series, uh, please consider subscribing to my Substack page. It can be found at martyrmade.substack.com, where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes available to subscribers only for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To all of you who are already contributing, I really appreciate you allowing me to do this. Again, the website is martyrmade.substack.com. Hope you guys like this one. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. Hell does exist. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? America's a wild country. That's the first thing to understand. You don't know how wild a country you've got. The German-born historian Paul Kennedy was once asked what to him, as a European, was the most striking and defining historical feature of the United States. And he said that it was the sheer size of the place. He said that Americans... We often take for granted just how much space we have in this country, and that's true. You go visit Europe or you know, a, lot of, a lot of Southeast Asia, and when you come back, when you're flying back in, it is really striking how you, you can not just drive, but fly over large stretches of our country for long periods of time without encountering a significant human settlement. It meant that there was always a frontier, over which was literal wilderness with untamed land and people for the first few centuries after Europeans started settling this continent. And Paul Kennedy might be right about the open space and the frontier being our de defining historical features, but I'll suggest one more feature as being pretty fundamental to our makeup and our character, especially when it's combined with the presence of the frontier. And that's the fact that the majority of people who have arrived to America over the years, they were people who weren't quite at home anywhere else. You know, they were religious extremists being run out of their native lands for heresy. They were second sons looking to establish themselves and make their fortunes. They were refugees from famine, war, and oppression. They were adventurers. They were outcasts. Criminals, madmen, and a lot of them were slaves. To come back to Kennedy's answer, when those wanderers 
washed up on America's shores, they found themselves in a country that seemed to just stretch off to infinity. People who weren't quite at home in their native land arrived in a place where, if they still didn't quite feel comfortable, they could just pick up and move on again. In America, you could live far, far away from other people. Or you could just hop in your covered wagon and, you know, go leave a trail of pixelated buffalo corpses and children dead of cholera along the Oregon Trail. A lot of Europeans will tell you if they've visited the American West just, just how shockingly big this country is, but, 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 but at least today it's bounded. You know that California's over there, New York's over there. For much of the 19th century, it wasn't even big. It was endless. And a place you could get lost in. And a place where... You know, as the song lyric goes, people were allowed to have a past that they didn't care to mention. For the first half or so of our history, if you didn't like where you found yourself, you had one great big flashing option that did not involve finding some kind of accommodation with your neighbors. And that's a recipe for restless people. And when you put it together with the adventurous and sometimes desperate nature of those who made their way here, it's, it's left us with a history that includes some pretty fascinating and some pretty nutty characters and, and, and communities, of which Jim Jones and People's Temple were just a recent catastrophic example. Many of the early religious settlers of the United States would often speak of Europe, the place they were leaving, as this doomed decadent land out of which the pilgrims were going like the ancient Israelites from under the yoke of Pharaoh. The bountiful but untamed North American continent was the promised land, the land of milk and honey, and it, it even came with some recalcitrant Canaanites who had to be wiped out to make room for the newcomers just to make the whole biblical myth complete. Ever since the beginning, America has has had, you know, we've experienced recurrences of that same mentality, these occasional periods of mass enthusiasm that sees many people becoming repulsed by their society, seeing it as, as decadent and corrupt and fearing its corrupting influence on them and looking forward and predicting its doom and then fleeing out to the countryside to go seek whatever it was that they felt was being lost. You know, we're the country whose two great cultural tomes might be Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People and Henry David Thoreau's Walden Pond. The one sacred text for those people who are navigating the rat race, the other one for those who are looking to escape it. Although Jim Jones admittedly was no Thoreau, so maybe, maybe Walden's been displaced today by the Unabomber's Manifesto. In the 19th century, in the early 19th century, America was going through one of these periods, and the enthusiasm of the Second Great Awakening, as we call it today, it saw a bouquet of religious sects and movements flourish, many of which at the time were forced by the surrounding society to go seek refuge themselves in the wilderness, just as the pilgrims had been forced to seek refuge in the wilderness of America before them. And most of these little movements came and went, but a few of them, turned out to have some staying power and stuck around, at least one of them you know about. In 1820, a 15-year-old boy in New York State had a vision. 
of two beings that he presumed to be God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. And they brought a message. And the message they delivered was the most common message that prophets of all ages and civilizations seem to receive. The surrounding society has become corrupt, and the existing religious authorities cannot help because they have turned away from the true faith. And so when that boy became a man three years later, he was visited by an angel, and that angel directed him to the discovery of several items, among which were a breastplate and some artifacts that were going to aid him in the translation of a gold-plated book buried in a hill near his home. He was commanded by that angel not to show the plates to anyone, but he did manage to translate their content from an original script that he said was called Reformed Egyptian. And according to the translation, it turned out that the Native Americans, not far over yonder frontier, had not trekked across the Bering Ice Bridge to colonize the Americas, but they were in fact the biblical Israelites who, after being freed from Babylonian captivity, had made their way to North America by boat. In the Gospels, Jesus said that he'd come to gather up the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and so accordingly he made visits to his North American people after his resurrection, but unfortunately over time they fell into irreligiousness and forgot their origins, and by the time Columbus started poking around the Caribbean they had forgotten everything. They degenerated into what we know today as Native Americans, mere savages with no recollection of their glorious spiritual past. That sounds a little bit odd to a lot of people, but uh, a lot of religion sounds pretty odd to most people these days. So against all odds, the young man began to collect and baptize followers, which finally pushed the surrounding religious folks to take action against him. And so he led his people west with their penchant for unconventional sexual practices and conflict with the locals, saw them chased from state to state to state until they finally settled themselves next to a great big salt lake in a part of the country that would become Utah. And you can still find the Mormons there today, and they're doing quite well. Right around the same time that Joseph Smith was leading his followers on their odyssey, there was a Vermonter named John Humphrey Noyes, and he was having an awakening of his own. While he was studying at Yale and working as an anti-slavery activist, Noyes poured over the Bible trying to decipher the specific date of the second coming of Christ. It's a favorite pastime of a lot of Christians, one that I have never quite been able to understand. And so he's doing this, and he makes a surprising discovery. Rather than looking forward he discovered that the second coming had actually already occurred. In 70 AD, the year that the Romans put down a rebellion of the Jews and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And what this meant is that mankind was not living today in the fallen age, waiting for the future redemption of the second coming, but we were in fact living in that redeemed post-apocalyptic age now, meaning that the consequences of the fall of man had already been abrogated, and the state of sinless perfection was possible, here, now, in fact, was expected of us. Now, how much his day-to-day -day behavior changed, I don't know, but from that point on, Noyes declared that he had made himself transparent to the will of God, and therefore anything he did was free of sin by definition, which is a pretty cool revelation to get about yourself. 
Well, he managed to cobble together a few followers. Go through American history, and it seems like no matter what you're putting out, you can find a couple people who will come along. And these people established themselves in a large communal home in Oneida, New York, where they also began to institute some bizarre rules on the subject of sexuality that always seems to be a recurring pattern with these folks. Seeing ordinary sex as a momentary affair terminating in exhaustion and disgust and deploring the waste of the male seed in any sex act that was not specifically intended for procreation, Noyes banned masturbation in the community and began to preach the benefits of male continence. Between puberty and marriage, teenage boys were told to practice having sex with postmenopausal women in the community in order to sharpen their ability to withhold ejaculation without risk of pregnancy. This need to apply extreme controls over the sexual impulse became pervasive in the community. He Noyes claimed that only he and a few of his key leaders, a few of his key uh, close advisors, had the spiritual maturity and self-control to practice unregulated sex without risk of unintended ejaculation. So naturally, he reserved most of the virgin females of the community for himself. Among everybody else, a form, a form of free love was encouraged, uh, but it was a highly regulated form of, of free love, so long as there was no coming. But all of the liaisons had to be approved by a committee within the community that had been appointed for that specific task of, of matching couples according to their spiritual and moral qualities. It was a, it was a kind of a strange para-eugenics program that was supposed to be designed to breed more perfect children. General meetings were held in the Oneida community on a regular basis in which members were subjected to withering accusations and criticism, very similar to the struggle sessions that would later be adopted by communist groups in the 20th century. Members were encouraged to call out other people for rule infractions or for signs of disloyalty or doubt or for lack of commitment to the common project. Any attempt at self-defense was not allowed. It was seen as a sign of excessive ego of considering your own perspective as being superior to the perspective of the whole community that was accusing you, and so that was not permitted. Noyes would position himself most of the time as the moderate, as the merciful one, protecting the accused from the wrath of the collective, the good cop. And it turned out that the rest of the community did not require much encouragement to go prove their bona fides by going after each other hard. Well, of course... Very soon, reports of sexual chaos and physical abuse began to leak outside of the community, and some of the members' relatives began a campaign against the Oneida people. Pressure began to mount, and when in 1879 Noyes received word that he was about to be arrested for statutory rape, he fled the community and the country in the middle of the night and never came back. So without... Noyes' leadership, the Oneida community, decided to reorganize itself into a joint stock company. They eventually abandoned all of the less profitable money-making ventures that they had been engaged in before, but to this day they still make silverware, and you can actually go buy it, and from what I understand it's pretty decent stuff. There are a lot of these examples in American history, a whole bunch of them filling up whole books with varying degrees of unconventionality and hostility to the surrounding society. 
Some of them were less religious, like the utopian experiments sponsored by the wealthy 19th century socialist, the Welsh socialist uh, Robert Owen. Some of them had religious roots, but non-Christian religious roots, like the Rajneesis, who set themselves up in Oregon for a while before launching the worst bioterrorism attack in U.S. history against a nearby small town. And there are other flavors of it. Uh, they come in. They come in all, all shapes and sizes. It's like I said, we had, we're a country that you can you can fill up whole books with this stuff. Black Americans didn't require some religious awakening to get the idea that the United States was an unfriendly and inhospitable place for them. Our national bedtime story, until very very recently, has tended to populate the antebellum North with these righteous abolitionist preachers and other people who were just so appalled by the conditions of blacks in the slaveholding South. And, you know, there's, there's something to that characterization, uh, I suppose. But it would be a mistake to think that the North was in any way a friendly place for people with dark skin. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing in the human condition to compare with slavery, the, the will-sapping horror of slavery. But, but blacks, even in the tiny numbers in which they existed in the North at the time, they were considered an unwanted blight virtually everywhere north of the Mason-Dixon line before the Civil War. There are reasons it took a couple generations and major labor shortages caused by the World Wars for blacks to finally pick up and leave the South for northern cities. The North, for various reasons, was uncomfortable with slavery, sure, but then the cosmopolitan northern economy didn't depend on slavery. That discomfort didn't mean that they wanted black people moving to their states or neighborhoods. Of course, we all know about the Dred Scott case. It's in 1857, just four years before the Northern armies invaded the Confederate states, the Supreme Court held that no one of African descent could legally claim American citizenship. Many blacks, going back to the days of slavery, found comfort in Christianity. It's something that Jim Jones would complain about a lot, and others like Malcolm X and the black Muslims, they would become downright hostile toward that idea. And I can understand that. I can understand a bit of bile rising in the back of the throat of someone like Malcolm, seeing his people sing the songs of the master's religion, especially in the common form that it took, instructing you know oppressed peoples to endure their worldly suffering, their, their, their worldly situation, and wait things out for a heavenly reward. Now, obviously, it's more complicated. Christian preachers did provide the energy and leadership of the abolitionist movement, and, you know, it, it, gen it genuinely was useful for people, people who were suffering under those conditions. The myths of the Old Testament, for example, the, the trials of the Israelites being led off into captivity again and again, pining for deliverance and keeping the faith that they had not been forgotten. It provides a powerful framework for slaves and for former slaves who don't have a whole lot else to hold on to. But I do understand where Malcolm was coming from. Throughout American history, I was about to say most of American history, but I'll just go ahead and leave out the word most. Throughout American history, it's been hard to imagine what real deliverance for black people might actually mean. In the 1820s, around that same time that Joseph Smith and John Humphrey Noyes were looking for greener pastures for their outcast flocks, 
Some others were looking around for a place to put America's free blacks. They weren't wanted in the north. They weren't wanted out west. So some people had the idea that maybe they ought to go back to Africa. Only this wasn't a racist meme. They really meant it. Some in the 18th century called it black Zionism, but that is a terrible misnomer. And the whole idea was really ridiculous because African Americans no longer had any connection to the continent that their ancestors had come from. They'd been stripped of their names, stripped of their languages, their myths, their customs, even any memory of which specific parts of Africa they'd been taken from. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Africa's a big-ass place with lots of different kinds of people. Some people gave it a shot, though, and the results were universally catastrophic. I mean, just a disaster. The country Liberia was founded by former American slaves. Liberia, Liberty, that's, that's what it comes from. And its capital, Monrovia, was named after James Monroe, who was the U.S. president at the time. The English-speaking... Christian, Americo-Liberian black colonists who settled that country from America, they had nothing but color in common with the dozens of indigenous groups along the coast and in the bush, which is to say that they had nothing at all in common. And what happened is they just ended up replicating the brutal colonial practices of their former European masters on the local Africans themselves. They intermarried mostly with other colonials. They formed eventually a separate ethno-linguistic group from the entire rest of the country, and the history of Liberia has been basically one long nightmare after another. Its neighbor, Sierra Leone, is another country that was founded by free slaves, and it's a comparable disaster. I mean, its whole history has just been... has just been... It's, it's, it's just been horrible. The Back to Africa movement of the 19th century fizzled out because American blacks did not have an Africa to go back to. They had been robbed of that heritage long, long before. And they'd been whipped and beaten until it was just, it, it had just been completely pushed out of them. And you like it or not, they were shipwrecked in North America among people as unfamiliar and, and, and hostile as the natives that they would find in Africa. There were other attempts over the years to reestablish some kind of connection, some kind of connection with the mother continent, from Marcus Garvey in the early 20th century to the enthusiasm for post-colonial African states among the dashiki-wearing black intellectuals and street soldiers in Harlem and other places in the 60s. And maybe it sounds a little bit corny, but, uh, you know, all the way up to you see the way people responded to the Marvel Black Panther movie today. Some of the attempts, I think, were very noble and beautiful. You know, there was something really special going on in New York in the 60s, for example, in Harlem. And some of them, again, were corny corporate knockoffs. Sorry to piss off all you Wakanda fans, but... I don't know how you guys take seriously a movie whose plot centers around a white CIA agent going into a traditional African country, taking sides in its civil war, and when his chosen side wins, getting them to give away all their precious natural resources to the rest of the world. But whatever, you do you. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Black Panther, the bad guys win. 
anyway, what do you, what, what do you do, right? What do you do when you have no home and there's nowhere to go? Martin Luther King had an idea, and it was a good one. Beautiful, beautiful idea. The problem was that it involved waiting, or, or not waiting. He took action to make it happen, but still, for his dream to become a reality required his oppressors to experience a change of heart comparable to something like a mass religious awakening. And he still might have pulled that off if the devil hadn't had his say, but the devil had his say, obviously. Martin Luther King's ideas came from Jesus, and he modeled his tactics on those of Gandhi, but in some ways Gandhi had an easier job than he did. Because Gandhi only needed the British to leave India. He didn't need the British to get comfortable living next door to Indians, to accept them as equals, as fellow citizens, as brothers and sisters. Jim Jones would come up with another idea, and he would try to put it into action. Actually, it was one that he had borrowed from another black religious leader who was already an old man by the time Martin Luther King came on the scene. Very fascinating guy. A very uniquely American figure who was known by his people as Father Divine or Reverend Major Jealous Divine. That was his full self-coined name. So Father Divine was a black sharecropper's son born somewhere between 1860 and 1880 in either Georgia or Maryland. Newborns didn't go straight into a computer back then. So he he grows to young adulthood. He's supporting himself, doing odd jobs for a while before he eventually turns preacher. And he was an eccentric guy. I'm sure you can see at (laughs) at least that this is going in that direction. In his 20s, he ends up linking up with a couple of other traveling preachers. One of them was going around telling people that he himself was God incarnate. The association of the three hit the rocks when the third man, the third preacher, announced that he'd been studying the Bible and it had been revealed to him that, in fact, all men were God incarnate, if only they would realize it. So Father Divine evaluated their positions, and he sided with the first preacher. He said, no, 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 God could not inherit in every man. That's ridiculous. But then he said, you're wrong, too, because as it turns out, it's me and not you who is God in the flesh. So they break up, and Divine's traveling around the local area, and he's inviting controversy with other preachers for proclaiming his divinity, Inviting something more than controversy, though, for preaching a gospel of black liberation and racial solidarity. And this is in the South during the ascendancy of the second KKK. He made enough enemies in short order that he ended up doing 60 days on a chain gang in 1913. And soon after, he adds a wrinkle to his message by rejecting gender distinctions as well as racial differences. And very quickly begins attracting a devoted following of mostly black women. The next year, 1914, many of those women's husbands and several local preachers got together and brought accusations against him, and so he was arrested again and booked in Georgia under the name John Doe, alias God. The court found him to be mentally unsound and ordered him deported from Georgia. It's a very strange thing, and I think that Those of us who aren't prone to interest in this kind of thing ourselves find it very difficult to comprehend. I do. Uh, Through all my study of related topics as I've been 
preparing these podcasts, I still don't have much to say about it, and I won't attempt to explain it here, but while he was in prison in Georgia, many, many, many more people began coming to the prison to hear him speak and, and to hear him preach from his cell. White people began calling on him, including a local university professor who got a lawyer to represent him for free. So the next year, he turns up in New York with about a dozen followers. They get a house in Harlem and set up a commune, and again, they establish strict rules, forbidding sex. Also, no smoking, alcohol, or gambling are allowed. He begins to gain more and more followers because his people are are very motivated and devoted, and they're out there spreading the word and pulling people in. He marries a woman named Penina. I haven't really been able to find anything at all about her. Nothing nothing much seems to be known. Uh, And he told his people that although they were married, in accordance with their rules, their marriage would never be consummated. Then he moves his people into a majority white neighborhood in Long Island after a German-American who who lived there was feuding with his also German-American neighbor, and he got so mad at him, he decided to move out of his house and sell it to Father Divine just to piss off his neighbor. And so they move in, and he continues to bring in followers. People are making large donations. He begins to, he, he does the whole sort of 20th century televangelist thing. He's wearing fine clothes. He's driving a Cadillac. Of course, that pissed off his white neighbors to no end. In 1931, he's arrested for disturbing the peace and immediately posts a $1,000 bail in cash, which was pretty shocking in the early years of the Depression. He would hold these large, free banquets for followers and anybody else who wanted to come along, and by the early 30s, he was feeding thousands of people. One night, at a particularly loud and raucous feast that he was giving, his angry neighbors surrounded his property, and it actually looked like some violence might occur, so somebody called the police. And the cops showed up with buses to take away Father Divine and all his followers to jail, and... They were annoyed when the people insisted on being booked under their weird-sounding religious names rather than their actual legal names. Seventy-some-odd of his people were arrested, along with him, and at that point, at least a dozen or so of them were white. They were all charged $5 bail, 350 bucks or so in total. So Father Divine just whips out a $500 bill and slaps it on the counter to pay for all of them, and the court, embarrassingly, didn't even have enough money on hand to make change for it. The next year, he's arrested again, and a few days after he's put in jail, the judge who gave the order dies of a heart attack, and, you know, his people are keeping vigil outside his cell, and Father Divine lamented that he'd hated to have to cause the man's death, but he'd been given no choice. Yeah, I won't go into the whole story. There's a lot more to it. The point is, by the time Jim Jones reads about Father Divine in the late 1850s, I'm sorry, 1950s, this eccentric sharecropper's son has created an empire. His wife, Penina, has passed away, and he he married a 21-year-old white woman named Edna Richings in 1946, and he justified the marriage by saying that the spirit of his dead wife had transmigrated into the body of the younger woman. His movement, he called it the International Peace Mission, had tens of thousands of members by now, owned Countless businesses around the country, bringing in millions and millions of dollars. All the businesses were staffed by his followers, and his followers lived communally in buildings that were owned and run by the movement. And so their needs were met by the movement, but they weren't paid anything. 
He'd established himself in this massive French Gothic mansion on a 72-acre estate outside Philadelphia, which was given to him by one of his followers. you got to see this place. Press releases announced that he'd exercised his authority to name Philadelphia the capital of planet Earth. And, you know, the, he, another press release said that it was actually he who had invented the hydrogen bomb and, and shared the information with, with the American government. Among the businesses that were owned by the Peace Mission were a lot of hotels. Guests would rent rooms in them, like any hotel, but they also served as living quarters for his followers, establishing bases of operations in cities across the country and providing a place for his people to live communally according to an alternative, racially integrated lifestyle centered around the quasi-worship of Father Divine. And I'm telling you, this was a big operation. I need to emphasize that. Go look up Woodmont Estate. That's the mansion he lived in. You can still see pictures of it. The place is no joke. In 1959, Jim Jones had had his own church for just a few years. And he was doing a few things in miniature, very, very miniature, that he had read about when he discovered Father Divine. So he had to see this for himself. This was a guy who was doing the things that he was trying to be doing at scale. And so in typical Jim Jones direct fashion, he hops in a car with a few of his people and heads out for Philadelphia. And he couldn't believe what he saw when he got there. Father Divine met him and the meeting went very well. Divine was pleased to meet a young white preacher from the Midwest with an integrated congregation of his own who who was interested in a lot of the same things he was. He was impressed by Jim's energy and his passion. And they spoke for a long time about the battle against segregation in the South. And again, this is 1959, before most people are talking about it. Uh, they talked about shared concerns like nuclear war and overpopulation. Jim made a good impression. And he knew how to handle him. He, he addressed Father Divine as an elder, superior mentor deferring to him and flattering him, but manages to still present himself as a serious enough person in his own right that Divine invited him to deliver a sermon to his people at Woodmont, which he did. And that went well also. And so with that done, on the car ride home, Jim is exuberant. His mind is racing with possibilities after seeing what this uneducated black man who had started from nothing had built for himself. You know, at the time, things were going very well for Jim Jones. He's brimming with his own confidence. In just a few years, he'd built his own church from scratch. You know, literally just a few folding chairs and a rented storefront into a church of several hundred dedicated members. And he realized that if Father Divine could do what he'd done, with all the disadvantages of being black and poor and uneducated and lacking any initial resources or connections to draw upon, then for somebody like Jim the sky would be the limit. He marveled at the way Divine's followers just seemed to worship him. You know, Jim had already had a taste of that kind of adulation, but only a little taste, and he wanted more. He saw how he could transform the personal loyalty that his followers had toward him into positive social action, but Divine had managed to do it at scale. There were two other aspects that really got his attention, too. The first had to do with Jim's politics. And I'm talking about his socialist politics and his concern for racial justice. 
You know, this was America in the Eisenhower years. Nobody's talking about revolution or thinking about it. In 1959, when he met Father Divine, we'd seen the Montgomery bus boycotts after the Rosa Parks incident, but we're still a year or two out from when the Greensboro sit-ins and the Freedom Rides were going to bring the plight of African Americans so starkly and so dramatically into the mainstream middle-class consciousness. This is before all that. But in Divine's outfit... Jim saw something that brought both of those obsessions of his together. This was socialism in action. No revolution required. You didn't need to make the revolution. You could be it. A decade or so later, millions of young Americans are going to have that same realization and flock out to the countryside to live in experimental communal farms and and, and setting up food co-ops and collective living spaces in Berkeley or San Francisco and other cities across the country. But That was a long way off, but Jim could see it now. All of this was flashing before his eyes. Besides the political aspect, there was something else that transformed the way that Jim Jones would approach his work. He knew from his time on the healing and revival circuit that people could be brought around to believing some things that, um, well, things that were at odds with what science and the rest of society would tell them was real. He already knew that, but Divine showed him that you could say damn near anything. And if you brought it off right, with a confident delivery and presentation and couched it in terms that engage people emotionally, you'd get an audience. And Father Divine was quite evidently a bit touched. Jim could see that. And yet, Jim could also see the followers and their dedication and the mansion and the money and the work that they were doing. His people were living socialism right in the guts of the capitalist beast. By the late 50s, Father Divine was, he wasn't being arrested anymore. He was no longer looked upon by outsiders as a criminal or a nuisance as he was in his early years. He was kind of looked on as more of a joke, but I mean, I'm talking about the wider white mainstream society, by the way. In the black community in places like Harlem, even among black intellectuals, their relationship to him was more complicated, as you can imagine. You know, he was obviously very eccentric, but how could you just dismiss a guy who really had done a lot of serious work in the realm of racial integration and had actually provided a pretty good life for thousands of poor black people? You know, there are a lot of figures like that in black American history. Take someone like, like Louis Farrakhan, for example. It's a little different, obviously, but, you know, every so often one of Louis Farrakhan's speeches will blow up in the media after he goes on one of his crazy anti-Semitic rants, and what happens next is always the same. It's practically a ritual by this point. The Anti-Defamation League and other Jewish organizations go around to prominent black leaders demanding that they denounce Minister Farrakhan, and the black leaders kind of hedge or, you know, do something other than just give him the full David Duke treatment. And the Jewish organizations are outraged at the black leaders' refusal to just denounce this guy, And in the papers, they invite the rest of society to join in their outrage, and the same old tired debate happens. Conservative talk radio chimes in the next day, well, isn't that just racism? Why do we tolerate it just because he's black? Isn't that a double standard? Blah, 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 blah. And it all makes perfectly logical sense. And if you're just showing up out of nowhere to the debate, you know, you can't understand why the black leaders have so much trouble just kicking Farrakhan off the island. And... You know, it's something that I've only come to understand a little bit over the years. I mean, look, I'm not uh, 
there's no condoning anything that Farrakhan says about Jews or, or white people or any of that. And the black leaders never do condone it. And they're obviously uncomfortable with it and embarrassed by it. And by the fact that they're compelled to answer for it. But at the end of the day, you know, in some way, Farrakhan is family. And you don't abandon family just because they say some crazy or reprehensible shit from time to time. And when you've been a people under siege, and if that sounds like an exaggeration, then these last few episodes have failed to do their work. You know, you don't toss out somebody who shows up when the chips are down. And I've tried to talk to people about this, and it's really hard to get through if you don't already agree with what I'm saying. And I totally understand that. Because, yes, he is racist, he is anti-Semitic, and yes, racism and anti-Semitic are bad. And in our society, the rule is supposed to be that if we decide you're racist or anti-Semitic, then that's it. You're done. No one else is even allowed to talk to you anymore. But when you've been through what black people have been through, fought the battles that they have had to fight, it is very, very difficult. It feels like a betrayal to just completely exile someone who showed up and put himself on the line with you in those battles. I'm not even defending the fact that they don't shut him out. They probably should. I'm just saying that it's, that it's hard. You know, a lot of people kind of take the attitude like, ugh, there he goes again. Uh, don't mind him. That's just crazy Uncle Lewis. I, I promise he's not really this bad. And, and look, he's been there when it mattered. Just, just don't bring up the Jews around him. And I'm not defending that. I'm just saying that I'm refusing to appoint myself their judge. You've listened to the series on Zionism, and there are a lot of the really violent, terroristic Zionists from those early years who are heroes to this day in Israel. Guys who are, are real murderers of innocence. But, you know, they love their people, and they showed up when it mattered. And so I don't judge Israelis who still hold them up either. Anyway, enough of that sidetrack. That's, a, that's, that's just great. I go off script for two minutes and I end up defending Louis Farrakhan. I, I don't expect anybody to agree with anything I just said. It's a very touchy subject. Um, obviously, Father Divine is a controversial guy in a very different way. You know, not in any way that is threatening or racist or anything like that. But just that he was pretty obviously a bit off his rocker. You know, a bit of a charlatan, a huckster. And yet... And, 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 you know, the black leaders who you would expect to see through all that stuff, they do see through it. They understand all that. But back in the day, you know, he had some cachet among some of the people in the black community because, you know, hey, our people are being exploited and abused. And what are you doing about it? Father Divine is doing something, you know. And so anyway, uh, Jim Jones comes back from this trip and his head is spinning. It's spinning in ways that are causing some alarm among a few of his assistant pastors and parishioners, many of whom at this point are still very conventional Pentecostal Christians. Jim had already been presenting himself as someone special, as, as the guy who personally was the answer to all your problems. But after visiting Father Divine, he comes back aping a lot of his rhetoric word for word. And Jim spent hours listening to Divine's recordings, and he, he began to work Divine's words into his own sermons. 
His more traditional-minded friends and followers didn't know what to make of that, but Jim actually knew what he was doing. See, he'd seen that Father Divine was an old man, no longer even capable of conducting his own services. His followers listened to tape recordings of him. Divine was rarely even seen in person anymore. And this is a movement that was completely built around the guy. It was a cult of personality. And that personality was not going to be long for the world. And when he died, who would be there to inherit the mantle? Well, Jim Jones was going to make sure that he was ready when that day came. Again, that might sound a little presumptuous, but remember, when you're talking about a movement like this, you know, it's not a government or some corporation like Coca-Cola where, you know, there are laws that dictate organizational processes and rules of succession. The whole thing is built on credibility. If the people believe in you, then you're the guy. Who's going to tell you you're not? You would have to be someone else that the people believe in more than you. Legitimacy is all there is. And Jim Jones was ambitious, and he knew how persuasive he could be, and how many talented, charismatic preachers were out there at this point working like he was for racial integration and and the other issues that mattered to the people in Father Divine's movement. Who was going to challenge him? He'd seen no one around Father Divine that he felt like he had to worry about. His young wife, his young white wife, please. And so from that day, Jim Jones began to prepare for when he would have the inevitable opportunity to make a play for Father Divine's empire. But that day was going to have to wait. Jim Jones, at this point, twist of fate maybe, uh, you know, he was getting lost in the clouds in more ways than one. It's hard to say what began to set him off in You know, 1959, 1960, it's kind of hard to say, but it's right in those two years somewhere. He never really talked about it himself later in later years, and we've kind of had to piece it together from the people who knew him and from public records. Maybe he was just overwhelmed by his ambition. You know, after returning from seeing Father Divine, he remained in contact with him, and they developed a strong mentor-mentee relationship, apparently. Jim's own church was growing, and the activities... Again, in miniature, uh, but you know, Jim was always a micromanager in a lot of ways, so, so it was a lot of work. Um, modeled on Divine's organization, were taking off faster than he could have imagined. By 1961, Jim Jones was feeding more people and providing more services to poor and working class black people in Indianapolis, maybe than any other private citizen or group in the city. That's why the mayor of Indianapolis had put Jim in charge of the city's Human Rights Commission. And he was using that position to do important integration work around the city. Maybe Jim began to get lost in it. Maybe it was more than he could handle on his own, and he felt inside he felt inadequate to the task that he had set before himself and to the growing profile he had with his people. Maybe it was recently seeing his adopted daughter the little Korean War orphan Stephanie killed in that terrible car accident, being on scene when it happened, and suffering through the indignity of, of seeing her body buried in the rain in a rundown cemetery in a waterlogged grave because most of the cemeteries in town wouldn't allow a Korean child to be buried next to white people. Jim Jones really loved that girl, and his wife loved that girl. And Jim was the type of man to 
experience volcanic rage over something like that and never, ever to forgive it. Or maybe it was the pressure of the escalating confrontations that, that came with being an integrationist. He attracted a lot of negative attention from local racists for his work with the Human Rights Commission. You know, he was threatening boycotts to pressure local businesses to integrate, and he was pissing off a lot of people. He got letters from the local chapter of the American Nazi Party. His wife, I mentioned this in a previous episode, his wife was spit on and called nigger lover while she walked down there. Uh, walked down the street with their adopted black son, a boy that Jim Jones had given his own name to, the first black child ever to be adopted by a white couple in the state of Indiana. And I can tell you if that was me, and it was my wife being spit on, and my little boy she was being called nigger lover over, you better call out the fucking National Guard. And Jim Jones had a worse temper than I do. And maybe it was the global political situation. Jim Jones was a guy, he's one of those guys who took that very, very personally. It shouldn't be that strange when you see how a lot of people behave over politics today. It's kind of hard for us to imagine today what it was like for people back in the day when the hydrogen bomb was first invented. And when it first started getting strapped to intercontinental rockets. You know, in the relative in a relative blink of an eye, it suddenly became a completely plausible reality that human life on the planet could just, poof, be done. Just like that. The push of a button. Finished. That was, I mean, it was real. We've gone long enough now without it happening that we've kind of forgotten about that. But at the beginning, I mean, we had just come out of World War II. 60 million people were killed. It looked like, you know, it looked like countries around the world would do just about anything to each other. And all of a sudden, they've got hydrogen bombs strapped to intercontinental ballistic missiles. I mean, biblical book of Revelation stuff. Not in the hands of God, but in the hands of the same people who had just fought that war. The same people who were in charge of a society that had until recently been holding millions of slaves captive and was still keeping tens of millions of black people in subjugation. I don't know what it does to the psychology of a child to do those drills in those classrooms where they have everyone hide under their desks or, or time themselves as they rush into the basement to prepare for a nuclear attack. I don't know what that does to a psychology of a child. I don't know what it does to have those drills stopped because once the hydrogen bomb was invented, there's no longer any point pretending that it was survivable. You know, we look back into the ancient past at periods of plague or famine, or even when people see a, a comet or some other sign in the sky that they can't explain. And then when we read in those history books that as a result, some people began believing that the end of the world was at hand, we think, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, we're not surprised by it. The same thing happened when all of a sudden you had John F. Kennedy on TV saying that the United States faced a missile gap and that we needed to build more and bigger nuclear weapons in addition to the thousands and thousands we already had because... If the Soviets got too far ahead of us, they would launch a first strike with the belief that they could disable our ability to retaliate. It's often hard throughout his life to parse where Jim Jones is expressing his true feelings and where he's just running a game. But one thing that emerges very clearly is that his terror over nuclear weapons and nuclear war was real. It was heartfelt and bone deep. And it couldn't have helped that 
Reverend Branham, Jim's model on the prophecy and healing circuit in 1961, prophesied that atomic Armageddon was just around the corner. Jim's politics had him keeping up in detail with the budding third world revolutions and post-colonial states in Africa, South America, and Asia. We know how excited he was when the Cubans launched their socialist revolt. We know how traumatized he was in early 1960 when he visited Cuba and witnessed the terror bombing of Cuban peasants and that he came back swearing that it was American pilots flying those planes. He said he'd seen them. He said he had pictures of them. And Castro was beloved in Harlem and among black intellectuals at the time. People Jones knew and admired. Not knew personally, but he read them. He, he admired these people. And they loved Castro. And when the young, hopeful John F. Kennedy took office, Jim Jones reads about the failed attempt to take out the Cuban regime that he admired so much at the Bay of Pigs. And in 1960 and 1961, with the rest of America, he turns on his TV and he begins to see with his own eyes the rage-maddened, saliva-flecked mouths of white southern mobs, not only sheriffs and police, but a lot of regular people cursing and screaming and committing you know, violence against stoic black protesters who were being beaten and hosed and attacked by dogs and killed. I don't, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was that set Jim Jones off. I don't think anybody does. You know, it may be, though, that he was just a mentally ill man. And it was just around this time that his delusions and paranoia started to get the better of him. With a little help from everything else. What we do know is that he began behaving very erratically. Suffering headaches and collapses fearing that he was being watched and that there were people out there plotting against his life. You know, other people couldn't see inside his head, so to justify his behavior and to get them to share in his paranoia, he would sometimes manufacture fake threats against himself to prove his case. His wife, Marceline, and his close advisors, they knew something was, something was going on. And finally, by mid-1961, He's telling his friends that he's receiving communications from extraterrestrials warning him, Noah-like, of, a, of an impending nuclear collapse, uh, apocalypse, and that he was supposed to find a safe haven and take his people there. It was just, it was all too much. In October of 1961, Jim Jones suffered a nervous breakdown, and he was admitted to the hospital with serious ulcers, and thus began one of the strangest and the most controversial period, maybe, of Jim Jones' life. And so, yeah, Father Divine would have to wait. Everything about this period of Jim's life is vague and poorly documented, this two-year-or-so period, from the reasons he decided to pack his bags and abandon his church, which at the time had grown to regularly see 1,500 to 2,000 people on a normal Sunday come in for the services to, to where he went and why and what he did while he was gone. So the common story is after his collapse and a stay in the hospital where he refused to allow himself to be treated until the hospital agreed to stop segregating Negro patients, his doctors instructed him to take it easy for a while. And so he took an extended vacation that doubled as a scouting mission to go find a new location for his church that would be safe from nuclear war. And yet, there are questions whose answers in the mainstream Jim Jones biographies don't make a whole lot of sense. 
You know, if his goal was to find a safe haven from nuclear war for his people, he went about it in a very strange way. Start there. His first stop after he departed in late October 1961, again, according to the mainstream accounts, was the Hawaiian island of Oahu. That's where Pearl Harbor is. He's supposed to have stayed for a few months and even to have tried to get a job teaching at an outreach church there, but you got to wonder what would have given them the idea that Hawaii would make a good place to, to take refuge from nuclear war, given that it was home to the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet and within his living memory had been the target of military attack. If there was a nuclear exchange, that island is one of the first places on the list. So after a few months in Hawaii, again, according to the mainstream accounts, Jim is supposed to have seen the February 1962 edition of Esquire magazine, which had a cover story describing the nine safest places in the event of nuclear war, several of which were in the global south. And so he takes his family, which had joined him by this point, and they made a few very brief stops in Southern California and Mexico City en route to Guyana on the South American Caribbean coast. This is around February of 62, and Jim is supposed to have stayed in Guyana for about a month and a half, maybe two months. Very little is known about what he wanted there, except that while he was there, he took the time to put on a handful of his tent revival shows, complete with faith healings and all the rest, and in which he delivered a series of anti-communist speeches. Very strange, given what we know of Jim Jones' ideological commitments, although um, later on a Guyanese man who was present at one of the speeches uh, he, he, he was interviewed about it and he said they weren't so much anti-communist as anti-Soviet and that Jim was preaching his version of you know, religious communitarianism as an alternative to Soviet state communism. So that's, that's, that's fine. That's pretty plausible. But still, it's a strange thing for Jim to be doing and you wonder how during such a short stay he managed to organize the events or if the events were organized by other people, how this random, newly arrived American preacher, a tourist who was just passing through, managed to identify them, find them, and work his way onto the speakers list. Um, and why, if Jim was supposed to be on a doctor-ordered sabbatical to get away from his duties as a preacher, was he looking for opportunities like that in the first place? The dearth of reliable information from this period and the implausible and contradictory stories that Jim Jones would tell about it later. That's why this has been a primary wellspring of all the conspiracy theories about Jim Jones and People's Temple. And there are a lot of them. I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, at least not yet, but I might as well cover it a bit since some of you have asked for it and I, I've already started. You can start with the fact that the timeline, the mainstream timeline, doesn't make any sense. The one I just described. The author, Tim Reiterman, is probably Jim Jones' most thorough biographer. Um, no disrespect to Jeff Gwynn. His book is fine as well. And, and Reiterman lays out the mainstream timeline the way I described it above. Okay, Jim Jones leaves Indianapolis in October 1961 for Hawaii, stays for a few months until he sees the February 62 Esquire article, leaves Hawaii, goes to Guyana with brief stops in SoCal and Mexico City, Stays for about a month and a half in Guyana until he arrives in Brazil on April 11th, 1962, which we know is true because it's, 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 it was tracked. It's in, it's in Brazilian travel records. The problem is that Jim Jones' anti-communist speeches in Guyana were recorded in a local newspaper on October 25th, 1961, when he was supposed to have been just arriving in Hawaii. 
If Jim is already in Guyana in late October 1961, it means that the reason given for going to South America in the first place, the Esquire magazine article, could not have been the real reason because that didn't come out until February of 62. After the newspaper recording of Jim preaching in Guyana in late October of 61, we don't have any other public record of what he's up to until he shows up in Brazil in April of 62. That's a six-month period or so. There's an anthropologist named Kathleen Adams, and she wrote that Jim Jones had done missionary work in the Northwest Territory of Guyana at some point in his life, but she doesn't say when this might have happened or where she got this information, and I haven't been able to figure that out. His timeline before and after this period, Jim Jones' life before it and after it, are pretty well documented. And and if it were, if if this period of missionary work had taken place during any period before or after this, it would probably be easy to find out. So if she is right that he had done that work, this five or six month dark period from October of sixty one to April of sixty two is probably the best candidate for when it would have occurred. There's one record of Jim Jones' public activity during that period, actually. In January of 62, he's issued a passport back in Indianapolis. And it's unclear exactly what's going on here because Jim Jones already has an active passport by this point. And there's no record of him returning to the U.S. to apply for or pick up this second passport. But we'll come back to that in a few minutes. It's probably worth saying a couple words about what's going on in Guyana at the time that Jim would have been there. At the time, Guyana was still a British territory, but everybody could see the writing on the wall as the last of the colonies around the world were working their way toward independence. We'll talk more about Guyana in the final episode of this series, but for now what we care about is this. With independence clearly on the way, Western intelligence agencies, primarily the British and the Americans, are competing in a place like Guyana with Soviet spies for the loyalties of various factions within the country, hoping that the country, once independence occurs, will be aligned with their side. The last thing that the United States wanted was another Cuba on the Caribbean, and so the CIA was heavily embedded trying to make sure that that didn't happen. You can probably see where I'm going with this, right? Jim Jones shows up in in a place like that giving anti-communist, anti-Soviet speeches. The most popular Jonestown conspiracy theory is that far from being an anti-American communist revolutionary, Jim Jones was actually working with the CIA or U.S. intelligence and law enforcement more broadly to infiltrate and inform on and damage the political left. Conspiracy theories live in the gaps contained within a narrative, right? Filling those gaps in with explanations that latch on to the available true information and connect each known fact together into a coherent story. They proliferate most easily when the subject itself is one where deception is a major factor, as with intelligence operations, because there are bound to be gaps and points where the given explanations are eventually exposed as contradictions or lies. The case of Jonestown is a heaven for a conspiracy theorist because pretty much everybody who was involved in anything more than a superficial way died in a mass suicide. See, according to this theory, Jones being a CIA asset offers the best explanation for things like how he managed to come up with $50,000 to buy his People's Temple building in Indianapolis in 1956, an amount that would would be almost a half a million dollars today, and which he paid off in just one year, despite back then having a relatively small 
mostly poor black congregation providing the church's income. According to the theory, it explains why he would leave his church to die on the vine for nearly two years while he visited Cold War hotspots in South America to give anti-communist speeches. And it provides a better explanation for what he had been doing in Cuba that first time in early 1960 than the one that he gave his parishioners and which has come down as the mainstream version, which Tim Reiterman provides in summary. Again, this is his earlier trip to Cuba, the one right after the revolution where he'd seen the bombings. Reiterman writes, quote, Apparently unable to convince enough Indianapolis blacks to devote themselves entirely and communally to People's Temple, he says apparently because this is just speculation on his part, he looked elsewhere for recruits. He had been watching the Cuban revolutionary struggle with great interest since Fidel Castro's overthrow of Batista in January 1959, reasoning that many black Cubans probably were eager to escape economic chaos and austerity following the revolution he seized on an idea. He could speed up his plan to build a communal organization in the United States by recruiting Cuban blacks to live in Indiana. Arriving in Cuba in early 1960, Jones first staked out the Havana Hilton in search of a translator. Looking like a camera-toting tourist, he called out a friendly hello to a black man. The man, Carlos Foster, was a Cuban of Jamaican descent and was receptive to Jones' overtures. Jones introduced himself as an evangelical minister and part-time nightclub singer. Redderman seems to be mistaken here. It was actually the Cuban Carlos Foster who was the part-time nightclub singer. He offered Foster $24 a day and promised to send him to the United States if he would help with the recruitment plan. Foster wanted to join his fiancée in the United States and so agreed to act as a sort of executive confidant for Jones. Jones took the Cuban to a hotel room and spent a week from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. briefing him, talking endlessly, even sending out for meals through room service. The plan was to bring 40 Cuban black families to America to work on communal farms financed by his Indiana congregation. After the briefings, Jones and Foster went to the slum areas of Havana and interviewed dozens of families. Once they had collected the names and addresses of 15 that were receptive to the plan, Jones headed home, but before leaving Cuba, he told Foster to carry on until he had gathered names of an additional 25 families. Back in the States, Jones revealed little of his plan, depicting his stay more as tourism than church business. Four months later, Jones sponsored Carlos Foster's trip to Indianapolis, alone, without the families. The black Cuban mostly stayed indoors at the Jones home because Jones had cautioned him that white, middle-class neighbors might lynch him if he left the house alone. Jones' plan was not actively pursued. Meanwhile, Foster felt like a virtual prisoner. Jones would not allow him to find a job, although he compelled him to take part in church services. Jones' assistant pastor thought that Jones's Cuban friend had no interest at all in the temple, and he was right. After two months... Foster left to see his fiancée in New York, and Jones never heard from him again. End quote. Now I'm sorry, but that whole story just sounds ridiculous to me. He travels to Cuba under false pretenses, telling everyone back home it's just a vacation. He gets a room at the Havana Hilton and pulls some random guy off the street, offers him what would be the equivalent of over $200 a day to huddle in a room with him from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day for an entire week, 
just to discuss a plan to bring 40 families to the U.S. to work on communal farms in Indiana. There are more holes in that story than I can cover without sounding like a conspiracy theorist myself. For one, there's no accounting how the two men communicated while they were huddled in the room planning all week. Jones didn't speak Spanish. And we know from a later interview with Foster himself that he didn't speak English at the time. He learned English later, after he was in the United States, at Teddy Roosevelt High School in the Bronx. And he said that he and Jones communicated using Jones's broken Spanish. But no one knew no, no one who knew Jones ever ever said he spoke any Spanish. But fine, okay, well, let's get past that part. He was supposed to be looking to recruit forty families, forty black Cuban families, to work on communal farms in Indiana. But as Reiterman himself notes, the church did not have anywhere near the resources to find some, to finance something like that. Not remotely close to it. He's got a couple hundred members of his church at this point. Most of them are poor black people in Indiana, in Indianapolis. In his interview with the New York Times, you know, later, after the mass suicide, Carlos Foster, the, the Cuban, he said that Jim Jones offered him $50,000 a year to help establish agricultural communes in various countries in Central and South America. That's not in today's money. That's back then. That's, that's about $450,000 a year in today's money. Astronomically more than the church could afford. Now, not even in the same universe as what the church could afford. And completely outside of the church's purpose or mission in 1960. And even if we ignore the fact that later, uh, we, we, we ignore that later interview with Foster and just take the story in Reiterman's and others' biographies. Forget about Foster's interview and... and, and that part about paying him half a million dollars to set up camps all over Central and South America. Just the part about the 40 families and the communal farms. How could he be off in Cuba actively recruiting people for this project without having brought it up to anyone in his congregation and hiding the whole purpose of his trip from them if they were going to be the ones paying for it? In later years, you know, Jones would brag to his congregation about every humanitarian project or idea he had, whether or not they ever came to fruition. Every idea he had, he would tell them about it, just because it made him sound, you know, humanitarian and compassionate. You know, it seems unlikely that he would hide this from everyone, including his closest advisors and assistant pastors, and was just planning on showing up one day with a few hundred Spanish-speaking black Cubans in Indiana to inform his Indianapolis congregation that they needed to find and purchase farms to put them on. You know, the whole story is preposterous, and it leaves you to wonder what was he actually doing in Cuba during that visit, especially considering the political situation at the time and the fact that the place was crawling with intelligence agents from all over the world. You know, this was before Castro had officially declared for the Soviet Union. People are kind of trying to feel him out and maybe vying for you know his loyalty. And so he hadn't been declared an enemy of the United States yet, and it's well known that the Havana Hilton was kind of the, kind of the place where uh, American, British, and other uh, Soviet as well intelligence agents would kind of congregate. So that's in early 1960. He comes back from Cuba to Indianapolis, and the mayor of Indianapolis creates the position of director of the Indy Human Rights Commission, which goes to Jones without competition. He was the only applicant, another kind of odd point, considering the position paid over $60,000 a year in today's dollars. It wouldn't make you rich, but 
you would expect more than one applicant for a part-time gig, which the mayor himself encouraged to be low-profile and mostly ceremonial. It wasn't a lot, of, a lot of work for that money. After Jim Jones becomes the human rights director, his profile predictably grows, almost as if it was a plan. If you know, if you're in, into the conspiracy theories, he begins to be able to make contact with regional leaders in the civil rights movement, who were, at the time, of great interest to federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Jim also tried to make contact with other groups and individuals in whom federal authorities might be interested, like the Nation of Islam and the American Nazi Party. And over this period of time, right during this period of time, all the people around him reported that he was becoming extremely stressed out and paranoid in a way that they'd never seen before, to the point of being hospitalized for ulcers and suffering what sounds a lot like a nervous breakdown. And then with his church exploding in popularity, again, often getting almost 2,000 people to his services on Sundays, and his status in Indianapolis rising as, as the human rights director and the church operating a very popular soup kitchen and elderly homes and jobs programs and more, everything that he'd wanted to do, and Jim's head swimming with ambitions about emulating or taking over Father Divine's peace mission, suddenly, just as things are getting going, just eight months after being appointed the human rights director for a major American city, he leaves it all behind on the very thin pretext of scouting a safe haven from nuclear war, and turns up within a week making anti-communist speeches in Guyana. And after doing who knows what for six months, on April 11, 1962, he shows up in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, and that's when things actually get very weird. At the time, Brazil had a very shaky democratic government, and the United States had established a program to develop and train Brazil's paramilitary police forces and counterinsurgency methods and, you know, to fight communists and other revolutionaries and insurgent groups. We were doing this in a lot of Latin American countries at the time under the authority of the Office of Public Safety, which itself fell under the authority of USAID, the Agency for International Development. In reality, the Office of Public Safety was a cover for CIA operations, which included training local forces in torture and assassination techniques. This all came out later in 1974 and forced the program to be shut down. The OPS was established in Brazil in August 1961, just two months before Jones arrived to Belo Horizonte. And just before that, in the same Brazilian city, in preparation for the establishment of the program, a U.S. official named Dan Mitrione arrived and set up shop at the U.S. consulate. Dan Mitrione had been a 28-year-old youth police officer with the Richmond, Indiana Police Force in 1948 when Jim Jones was a 16-year-old high school kid preaching on a corner in the black neighborhood of that same small Indiana town. Mitrione was the son of Italian immigrants. His, he, he lived, you know, there was a, it was a segregated city, not just for blacks, but there was an Italian neighborhood as well. He lived on the north side Italian neighborhood that was directly adjacent to the black section of town. He and his family passed and walked alongside their black neighbors on the way to church every Sunday. A white kid, uh, you know, a high school kid, a white high school kid preaching to drunks leaving their watering holes on the black side of town was a curious sight and something that a youth police officer from the adjacent neighborhood over 
would notice, and Dan Mitrione did notice it, and Jim Jones and Dan Mitrione got to know each other. We know that. They maintained some level of contact uh, after Jim left Richmond for Indianapolis. Jim's mother and his wife, Marceline's parents, still lived in Richmond, and Jim and Marceline visited there often. So he maintained some kind of contact with Mitrione. In 1955, Dan Mitrione was made chief of the Richmond Police Force, and in 1960, he took a job with the federal government, officially with the OPS under USAID, but generally accepted today to have been working for the CIA, teaching advanced interrogation techniques and counterinsurgency tactics to the Brazilian police in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. In the course of time, largely thanks to uh, the book, Hidden Terrors by the New York Times reporter A.J. Languth, which is how I had originally heard of Mitrione years ago, before I'd ever read anything about Jonestown. It's funny. None of the Jonestown biographies mention Dan Mitrione. It was only because I had read Languth's book about him years before that when I started researching Jim Jones and saw that he'd come from Richmond, Indiana, that I thought, huh, isn't that where Dan Mitrione was chief of police? And then I saw that Jim Jones left to spend time in the same places in Brazil during the same periods that Mitrione was working there. And I thought, huh, okay, well, that's interesting. And then I'm going through and reading all the source material from Jonestown and listening to Jones's speeches, and he's talking about having met up with the Mitrione family while they were down there. And it's all very strange. It's at least worth mentioning in the Jones biographies, but I think most writers covering his life just don't want to get sidetracked or, or pigeonholed or, as conspiracy theorists, or, or maybe they just don't have any point of reference when he mentions Mitrione, so, so they leave it alone. Anyway, largely thanks to A.J. Languth's book and the very public manner of Mitrione's eventual death, Mitrione would become one of the most notorious uh, individuals in that program for coldly and meticulously instructing officers in techniques of torture including beatings, using tools like pliers and hammers and electric shocks, you know the drill. His method of interrogation, he said matter-of-factly once, was to apply precise pain in the precise place, in the precise amount, to achieve the desired effect. And so Jim Jones, in the course of abandoning his church for nearly two years, And after showing up in Guyana delivering anti-communist speeches, arrives in the same Brazilian city, living in an adjacent neighborhood to a reputed CIA torture instructor that he'd known since childhood. We know from Jim's own later account that he was aware of Mitrione's presence in the city and that he sought him out. He claims not to have met Mitrione himself there, but said that he and his family often met with Mitrione's family for dinner and, and other social things. What exactly Jim Jones was doing in Brazil, or is supposed to have been doing for the year plus that he was in the country, is a mystery. He spoke no Portuguese. He never learned a bit of Portuguese. He couldn't communicate with any of the locals. It's unclear what he did for money, although he was living in a nice part of town. His neighbors were lawyers and engineers and other professionals. We know that. They were interviewed later after the suicide, and they they remembered Jim. Jones biographer Jeff Gwynn writes that from the time Jones had arrived in Brazil, People's Temple back home were having trouble covering its expenses because members and their donations were heading for the exits once it was clear that Jim wasn't coming back anytime soon. 
And, the, and Gwen says that the church never sent Jim Jones a dime while he was down there. He told his neighbors all sorts of different stories about what he was doing down there and how he supported himself. He, he told one neighbor that he'd been a captain in the U.S. Navy who was injured during the Korean War and that he was living on a medical pension. He told another neighbor that he worked as a technician of some kind for Brazil's largest chain of laundromats, but he never worked in any capacity for the company. We know that. Yeah, I mean, it's very strange that he would dissimulate about his purpose in Brazil if he was trying to find a place to move his church and to build you know, a little following down there. That was the story that he gave people back in the U.S. You would think that he'd be trying to make connections, get to know people who could teach him the lay of the land and you know, introduce him to some of the people that he'd need to meet in order to get something like that going. Again, he didn't speak any Portuguese. So you know, he would need help getting around and figuring things out. You would think that his neighbors would be the most obvious people to tap into for assistance. So it's hard to figure out why he would make up a bunch of different weird stories about what he was doing there. One neighbor... An engineer whose wife was a lawyer, he said that on most days, Jim would leave the house early in the morning in a car that looked like it was from the U.S. consulate, and that he wouldn't come back until late in the evening, and that sometimes that car would deliver groceries and other things to the Jones residence. So in October of 1962, Jim's been away for a year at this point, and in Brazil for six months, Dan Mitrione leaves Brazil for the United States officially for two months of vacation. That same month, Jim Jones gets a letter from the U.S. consulate. It was from Vice Consul John Ledeson, a Russian-speaking U.S. intelligence officer, and it was written on official consulate stationery. Dear Mr. Jones, We received a communication and believe it's in your interest to come to the consulate at your earliest convenience. Please see me. Attached to the letter is a photograph that I have tried hard to see myself, but I have not been able to. Uh, but it has been entered into court records and has been seen by other people and described. And it's described as a passport-style photograph of someone who looks very much like Jim Jones, except with a mustache and a receding hairline. It's been described as looking like Jim Jones in a disguise. I mentioned earlier the curious fact that Jim Jones had been issued two passports one of them when he was known to have been outside the United States in January 1962. Some people have tried to make a connection with this letter from the consulate, but the truth is we just don't have a lot of information about it. So I don't know. I don't want to say anything about that. While Dan Mitrione is gone, again, he's, he's back in the United States from October to December 1962, supposedly on vacation, uh, and in November... It's been established that the CIA opens a file on Jim Jones and that the agency's Office of Security sent agents to the State Department to review his passport file. When Mitrione gets back to Brazil in December, he moves to Rio. That same month, Jim Jones and his family move from Belo Horizonte to Rio. Now in Rio, Jim Jones and his family live in a large seventh-floor condo in one of the city's most expensive neighborhoods, three blocks from Copacabana Beach, which is hard to explain because by this time we know for certain, you know, if it wasn't necessarily true before, at this point we know for certain that the church back in Indiana is basically in total collapse. Without Jim there to draw in the crowds, the weekly congregation has shrunk from nearly 2,000 people to just under 100 people, just some of Jim's diehard loyalists. 
We know from the pleading letters being sent by his assistants that the church was behind on water and electricity payments. There were threats to shut them off throughout the year. So the church was not sending Jim Jones any money. Jim Jones' explanation for how he and his family were living so well during this period became a Jonestown legend. According to Jim, the wife of an American diplomat became so so uh, infatuated with him that she offered him $5,000 if he would sleep with her. That's over forty grand today. And he says that, of course, he was scandalized by this indecent proposal, but... You know, he thought he might be able to use some of that money to feed poor Brazilian orphans, and so he discussed the, the matter with his wife, Marceline, and with her approval, he reluctantly took one for the team. Obviously a ridiculous story, not one that I feel any obligation to take seriously. Brazilian immigration authorities had a record of Jim Jones leaving the country in March 1963, and we don't have any record of him returning, but we know that he got back to Rio at some point because he and his family flew home from there December 1963, the month after Kennedy was shot. So what's going on? It is all very strange, and it's, you know this is one of those ones where I can understand why people have so much fun with it. I mean, there are contradictions and so many things that make no sense in the mainstream explanations, and there are a lot of coincidences, especially when you set all this against the backdrop of political events in Brazil at the time. Two months before Jim Jones begins his overseas tour, the Brazilian president resigns his position in the mistaken belief that it was going to precipitate mass demonstrations you know, in support of him, calling for him to be restored to office, and that he'd come back with increased popularity and power. Miscalculation. That did not happen, and so... The presidency fell to his, his vice president, Joao Gallart, but Gallart's out of the country at the time. Now, Gallart is viewed by the Kennedy administration and conservative elements within Brazil as a disruptive leftist. And so there's a lot of back and forth over how his powers might be limited or you know, whether he'd even be allowed to take office at all. The U.S. is making a final decision about what to do about Gallart during Mitrione's supposed two-month vacation back in the U.S., and in December 1962, the month that Mitrione came back and the month that both he and Jim Jones moved from Belo Horizonte to Rio, the president's brother, Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general at the time, he also flew out to Rio to meet with Joao Gallard. Kennedy outlined the Americans' concerns, but he and the Brazilian president did not see eye to eye at all and nothing was accomplished. A few weeks later, Joao Goulart assumed the full powers of the presidency of Brazil. And two months later, by March 1963, the month that Brazilian immigration records show Jim Jones as having been out of the country, the CIA begins making plans for a coup led by the Brazilian military. By the final months of that year, coup supporters and fighters within Brazil were being recruited and organized and when Jim Jones left Brazil for the final time in December 1963, the plans had been finalized and they were just waiting for the right moment, waiting for the initiative of the Brazilian military officers. And on March 31st, 1964, with American support, the coup was executed and Gallard had to flee the country. Now, the maximalist version of the conspiracy theory is that Jim Jones was recruited to work as a CIA asset and that his handler was Dan Mitrione. He followed Mitrione to Belo Horizonte, perhaps to use the cover of 
a religious missionary to make connections and try to provide some street-level intelligence in support of Mitrione's overall anti-communist work with the Brazilian police. He follows Mitrione from Belo Horizonte to Rio to continue his work, and when the preparations for the coup are complete, only waiting for the trigger pullers to pull their triggers, Jim's work was done, and so he heads back to the United States. To put a big, fat cherry on top of the whole thing, we know that Jim Jones' file with the CIA was purged in 1970 after Dan Mitrione was kidnapped and murdered by Tupamaro guerrillas in Paraguay. It was where Mitrione was working by that point. You know, the flat earth, fake moon landing types, you know, they run this theory all the way to the end, positing that the whole subsequent People's Temple experience, right down to the final conflagration, was some kind of MK Ultra mind control experiment that either went sideways or, in some versions of it, worked exactly as it was supposed to and was terminated when its usefulness had run its course, the way you'd, you know, dispose of used up lab rats. I tried to do this stuff justice. I, I, I spent a lot of time grappling with this stuff. I didn't just dismiss it. I, I, I spent too long on it. it. It distracted me probably more than it, you know, it should have. Not so much because I believed in the maximalist conspiracy theories, and I don't want to. I don't want to poo-poo them too much because they're, they're a lot of fun. But because if you leave off the stuff at the end about MK Ultra and all the rest of that, it's about as good of a story as the bullshit one that passes in the mainstream biographies. There are just too many holes in the story. The mainstream story doesn't even mention Mitrione. You know, how can you not mention that, that crazy aspect of it? And it just kind of accepts at face value Jim's explanations for what he was doing in Cuba, trying to recruit families for communal farms that his church couldn't afford, and his spotty and inconsistent reasons for being in Brazil. But after thinking about it for a long time, I think there's probably a simpler explanation. You know, mental illness is not like catching a virus in the sense of now you have it and now you don't. It exists along a blended continuum consisting of several behavioral and experiential dimensions. If we insist on likening it to an illness, you know, maybe it's less like a virus than inflammation. Everybody has some inflammation, some things that make it worse, and those things depend on the individual and the environment and you know, it can often just be seen as a normal part of life, just a chronic part of life, until it breaks past a certain threshold and starts to cause major breakdowns. You know, there are aspects of our personalities that can be drawn out or encouraged depending on what we're facing, you know, what we're dealing with or experiencing in our lives. Some things drive us to paranoia, others don't. And with other people, it's different. And the causes are often hidden from us and just blend into our personality over time. And again, are not necessarily even considered pathological until they go past certain thresholds and, and cause breakdowns. Breakdowns meaning, you know, primarily our ability to function in the social world. There are people all around us who are paranoid, delusional, you know, etc. On, on one issue or another, or even in general, who, who string together, who manage to keep it together enough to, to put together something called a normal life until they finally encounter a situation where it, things escalate and it makes social and economic life untenable for them. And then that's when we say, oh, that person's, you know, they've lost it. I knew a woman, a woman I was very close to. Um, I know her very well, very intelligent woman. Uh, but she'd had a difficult childhood and she had suffered from trauma in her, in her life as, as an adult as well. 
this woman is well-educated, master's degree, uh, graduated with honors, you know, uh, very rational, sometimes to a fault, I would say, uh, as, uh, and highly, highly functional. One of those perfect, rule-following, dedicated employees in her professional civil service job that every, that every manager dreams about. But every once in a while, something would poke through. She had a touch of OCD that would give you a clue. And one day she was talking to me about work. And she's telling me about one of the secretaries who she was just certain did not like her. I couldn't get any kind of a good answer about how she knew that. It just seemed to be from a tone of voice that, that she'd picked up sometime or the way that she made a comment once or twice. And then that shaped the way that my friend interpreted, you know, interpreted every subsequent interaction between the two. My friend, mind you, is one of the supervisors at the place where she works. So there's really no reason for her to be worrying so much about what one of the secretaries thinks about her. I told her that she's probably reading too much into it and, uh, I couldn't put her off the feeling though. And so, uh, today, the day she's telling me the story, the secretary had brought in some cookies for the people in the office, my friend's telling me. But she said she had a weird feeling, and so she just put it aside on her desk, and later the secretary came by and was like, aren't you going to eat your cookie? I am telling you, they're so good. And my friend made some excuse and then waited till later and you know, waited till nobody was around and then threw it away. And I'm just kind of waiting for where this story is supposed to be going. And my friend looks at me with complete seriousness and says, you don't think she was trying to poison me, do you? And I looked at her right in the eyes and I said, listen to me. No, she was not trying to poison you. And do not say this to anyone else, okay? Do not repeat that. And she just kind of shook her head like she was kind of shaking herself loose of the thought. And her face softened a bit. And she said, yeah, yeah, of course. I, I know that. I'm just joking. She was not joking, okay? Now, this woman, this friend of mine, I'm telling you, highly functional, very successful professional woman. She gets through life just fine. And yet, that is a, that is a batshit paranoid, delusional thought to have seriously enter your head. And, and to the point where she would express it verbally to somebody else. You know, if she had said that to someone other than me, who knows what might have happened. She was high enough in her profession. I mean, it was a position involving government that she was interacting with people at who, who were at the political level, local political level. Imagine if she had gone to her bosses in a moment of you know irrationality and expressed her concerns to them. Excuse me, sir. I think one of our secretaries is trying to poison me. What? Why? Well, I know she doesn't like me. How do you know that? It's hard to explain, but I can just tell. You know, who knows? I mean, she may have lost her job. She may have been recommended for treatment. I mean, word would have gotten around. Her life may have been derailed in ways that might have been hard to recover from. And from there, once you're in that situation and you, you, you have this kind of, this, this little grain of a mentality in there, who knows where her mind goes? Are there more people who are in on this conspiracy? You know, I'm not making light. This happens to people, and it's very serious, and it's a very tragic thing. Uh, we make jokes about mental illness. It's not a funny thing when you see it in real life, when it spins out of control. But sometimes it doesn't spin out of control. You know, this was years ago. My friend is fine today. But sometimes it's just a matter of chance how things fall. 
I read about a young man in Washington, D.C. In, in one of the books I was reading for this. Very smart, very good student, no signs of mental illness that anyone could remember. One day, a very attractive female student who was failing a class that they were, were both in together approached him and began to make conversation, kind of flirting with him. You know, he was a nerd, very shy, and he was just completely bowled over by the sudden attention from this gorgeous woman, right? She was not interested in him, but she was pretending to be interested in order to get him to help her study and write papers for her. When the class finished and she got her passing grade, she just ghosted him without explanation, and his mind just could not accept what had just happened. You know, he had fallen completely in love with this woman. He'd never been popular, and never had any attention from, from females. He, insecure, shy, and this woman's attention had just completely transformed his whole view of himself, what he was capable of, everything. He loved her. And that made it impossible for him to see anything but goodness and beauty in her. So when she just left in such a cruel manner, he just could not compute that. And instead, his mind somehow worked its way around to the conclusion that City Hall, the Washington, D.C. city government, was engaged in a vast conspiracy against him and his love in order to keep them apart. That's why she wasn't returning his calls or letters. That's why when he tried to approach her in person, she acted very distant as if they'd hardly known each other at all. You know, maybe she was being threatened by the mayor through the D.C. police. Or worse, this is Washington, D.C. Maybe even the federal government was in on it. Craziness. And by all accounts, this guy was not some delusional schizophrenic. It took some time after he was institutionalized because giving up that delusion is hard. Giving it up means admitting that this woman that he loved so much was actually a terrible person who had used him in a cynical and, and cruel way and that the whole world that he had constructed around their relationship, all the changes to his personality and mentality that had happened as a result had been just as big of a delusion as the one that he was now inhabiting. That's not easy. And there's a reason people in the grip of paranoid delusions fight so hard to to kind of hold on to them, it, it's very difficult to, to, to dissuade them of things because the alternatives are often, are often quite devastating as well. When, through therapy, he finally comes around to the truth, he does what you would expect. He falls into a long-term crippling depression, which is, why, again, why he was fighting so hard to hold on to it because you could probably see over that edge. But over time, he recovered, and again, by all accounts... He did not seem to be suffering from an illness that we would describe as genetic or neurological. He eventually became fine. And while I was thinking through all this stuff, it occurred to me to go back and read A Beautiful Mind, um, the book about the Nobel Prize-winning paranoid schizophrenic mathematician John Nash. The, movie, the movie's all right, um, but it's not particularly helpful for what I needed from it. I'd read the book before, and I... And I I knew there was a lot more information in it. And the book helped, for me, kind of seal the deal on what I think was probably going on with Jim Jones at the time. And it makes, you know, all the conspiracy stuff, you know, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of frightening in its own way, but uh, it, it, this kind of makes the whole subsequent history of this story, in my opinion, darker and scarier uh, than that. So John Nash... The, the subject of A Beautiful Mind. He was 30 years old in 1959, teaching at MIT, when he began receiving encoded messages from extraterrestrials warning him of an impending nuclear apocalypse that only he could stop. 
As I said, Jim Jones was 29 when he began receiving his alien messages in 1961. Both Nash and Jim Jones were making contact with the world of geopolitics and nuclear war, albeit in very different ways. John Nash was in regular contact with famous scientists who'd worked on the Manhattan Project, and you know he'd worked at the Rand Corporation designing game-theoretical equations to predict outcomes of various nuclear conflict scenarios. He had a top-secret clearance. Um... Jim Jones again. It was he contacted that world from a different direction, but uh, you know he was obsessing over global events through his interest in and early contact with the American Communist movement, going back to his college years during the McCarthy hearings. I mentioned in an earlier episode, Jim had even had contact with law enforcement over the issue, with G-men pulling his mom out of her Richmond factory job to talk about her son's activities. In some versions, she was fired from that job over it, but I don't know if that's true or not. Um. In Nash's case, his job, the, 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 the message he was getting from the extraterrestrials, his job was to warn governments of what was coming and then to design and implement a world government in order to prevent war between national states or between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Jim Jones didn't have the elite access that Nash did at the time, so his job was simply to take as many people, as many of his people as he could and get them out of harm's way. As I said, both men were about the same age when they had their breakdown about a year and a half apart. And for Nash, there was no hiding what was going on. You know, apparently he was ob- oblivious to how he, this was going to be received, but he was wandering into other professors' classes at MIT while they were in session, and he would start announcing what the aliens had been telling him. At first, people thought he was just playing pranks, but it soon became apparent that there was something else going on. And when you're in an environment like that, with a bunch of serious people, engineers and scientists and math professors, and you start talking and behaving the way he was, I mean, you can imagine how people responded to him. And so when no one took him seriously or they you know, were afraid of him or, or, or got angry at his outburst, he began to question whether other people around him could even be trusted. The messages started to inform him that they could not be trusted. He starts to become more and more isolated from friends and family, more and more paranoid, and his paranoia fed on the reactions that people had to him, which, I mean, you can't blame people for not having a good response to something like this. But So Nash decides to take matters into his own hands. He tries setting up appointments with ambassadors of foreign countries, He made frequent trips to the U.N. building in New York and to Washington, D.C., leaving messages at embassies and writing letters to U.S. and foreign dignitaries. At one point, he's hospitalized against his will, which only confirmed for him that there was a larger conspiracy afoot to silence and persecute him. And so when he was released, he fled to Europe to claim asylum as a persecuted refugee of the United States. Nash had enough money saved up to support himself for a while, and he visited several European countries trying to see foreign officials certain the whole time that he was on this important mission that would eventually bear fruit. Eventually, Nash came back, and he got some treatment. He was put on medication that helped a bit, but you know it slowed down his flowing mind to a trickle. He would hang around Princeton just scribbling nonsense mathematical theorems in his notebook and smoking cigarettes. And Most students who were passing by this weird quiet man, they were completely unaware that they were stepping over one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. Over the years, his illness would flare up and simmer down and flare up again, and 
You know, this was true even during the period that he, he, he'd been treated, before he'd been treated, rather. You know, there were times when his friends and family thought everything was fine, and the fire was out, and everything had passed, and maybe he was going to be normal again, and then he'd go off the rails. It was the part about John Nash's you know, European jaunt that really got my attention and made me go back and reread the book. I, I need to move on from this part, but... You know, there's a lot of this episode left, and we haven't even gotten into the wild stuff. But my best explanation for what Jones was up to during his overseas odyssey is that he was chasing something similar to what John Nash was looking for when he was in Europe. You know, think about the story that we just told in that light. Jim Jones in Cuba in early 1960. He's supposed to have been over there recruiting 40 Cuban families to come live on communal farms in Indiana, but he didn't tell anyone back home that's what he was doing. And we know his church didn't have anywhere near the resources to do anything like that. The man that he engaged for the purpose in Cuba was some rando nightclub singer he found at the Havana Hilton. And that guy later says that Jones was talking about paying him the equivalent of almost half a million dollars a year to help him set up communal farms across Central and South America. The mainstream biographies give us nothing on this. They give us nothing good. So I forgive the conspiracy theorists for think, thinking that maybe he was working for one of the intelligence agencies crawling around Cuba at the time, trying to set up training camps similar to the ones that were being used to train fighters used in the Bay of Pigs invasion. But I think it makes more sense, or at least it's easier uh, to come around to the idea, especially in light of where we know Jim Jones' mind is going to run off to in later years, to believe that he was just off on a quest that didn't have any better relationship to reality than the one that John Nash was on when he was leaving coded messages for foreign embassies you know, in Washington or trying to set up meetings in European capitals. You know, Think about it. If we'd never known for certain that John Nash was mentally ill, say if he'd been hit by a bus sometime during his time in Europe, is there any doubt that there'd be some conspiracy, conspiracy theorist today putting together the pieces from the letters he left behind and showing, you know, with, with all this evidence that renowned mathematician, you know, John Nash, recent, recently off working from the, the RAND Corporation and on military intelligence stuff at MIT, that he was trying to warn us of something? Okay, what about Dan Mitrione? What about Jim's time in Brazil? That has to be something, right? The fact that he shows up in the same city, one neighborhood over from where Mitrione lived, when we know for certain that the two were acquainted with each other from their time in Richmond. Okay, let's think about it. Yes, they knew each other. That's a fact. Jim said in his later years that he and his family had met with Mitrione, uh, with Mitrione's family on several occasions, but that he never spent time with Mitrione himself in Brazil. I can make sense of that. Maybe... Jim Jones did speak to Mitrione at some point, either before Mitrione left for Brazil or, or while they were down there. Maybe not. Maybe Mitrione put something in his ear about how he's working for the government, and if Jim hears anything while he's down there doing his missionary work, to let him know. And maybe Jim Jones just took that a little bit too seriously. Or maybe he never did talk to Mitrione, and Jim just gets the idea that he's playing secret agent, and he's engaging with Mitrione's family in an attempt to get Mitrione... Uh, to, to get messages to Mitrione to tell him the important information he thinks that he's gleaning from the street. Jim's family made friends with another American missionary family down there, and he would have their Portuguese-speaking daughter translate newspapers and pamphlets for him. You know, he would read books and other materials about local guerrilla movements. He would read about their military equipment that was you know, not just Brazil's, but of the surrounding countries as well. Maybe that's why Jim kept giving his neighbors different stories about what he was doing down there. 
And we know Jim never lifted a finger or accomplished anything at all toward figuring out a way to establish a ministry down there or, or to bring his followers from Indiana down. Never did anything. From all appearances, Jim Jones did a whole lot of nothing the entire time he was in Brazil. Almost a two-year period when his church back home, which he'd spent several years building into a successful enterprise, completely fell apart and shrank down to nothing but a few hardcore followers who were having trouble even keeping the lights on. Maybe when Mitrione went back to the U.S. for those two months, at the end of 1962, he asked his handlers to look into this guy who won't stop bothering me down in Brazil. And maybe that's why the CIA ran a check on his passport and opened a file at him, on him at the time. And maybe that's why the CIA purged that file when Mitrione was killed in 1970, not because Mitrione was his handler, but because Mitrione was the one who'd asked for Jim to be looked into, and that information became irrelevant once Mitrione was dead. Now, John Nash was a clinical schizophrenic, and I read a lot of books about schizophrenia trying to figure out if I could put this, that label on Jim Jones. And to be honest, I find it very difficult to do that. There are a lot of reasons to say there's no way he could have been schizophrenic. Although some of the people who knew him best, including arguably his closest follower, uh, at least in the later stages, uh, his longtime personal lawyer who's still alive today, um, you know, he's studied this issue ever since, and he, he thinks that Jim was a textbook paranoid schizophrenic. I think the reason most psychologists who have looked at the information on Jim Jones from afar don't think he could have been a schizophrenic is that he was simply too functional for too long. You know, schizophrenics cannot keep their shit together well enough to function in the world for decades the way he did. But I think there's a bias built into the literature. You know, psychologists are studying schizophrenics who have been identified as such and admitted to institutions by definition. And to be admitted to an institution, it means you're already running into trouble in the outside world, which happens to almost all schizophrenics very quickly once their symptoms begin to manifest. You know, think of Jim, uh, rather John Nash wandering into classrooms that are in session and talking about his alien messages. Once the schizophrenic's behavior starts to encounter resistance, often in the form of fear or hostility from other people who don't understand what they're dealing with, that paranoia starts to spiral. They become more and more isolated. Their, be their behavior becomes stranger and more detached from reality, and there it goes. But what if that doesn't happen? What if none of that happens? There's not a lot of literature about that. There are some scholars who have studied shamanism in traditional societies and who have suggested that shamans exhibit signs of schizophrenia. In most of these societies, uh, shamans come from certain genetic lines and schizophrenia is inherited that way. In most cases, potential shamans are identified sometime around puberty or, or early adulthood when they have what looks like a psychotic break and schizophrenia tends to begin manifesting during puberty or early adulthood. Except in these societies, their symptoms are not medicalized. You know, rather than being told that there's something wrong with them and that the voices they're hearing or the visions that they're having are just illusions, a sickness that, that, that needs to be cured somehow, to be, you know, discarded and, and hopefully overcome, they're told that they have a gift. They're taken away by older shamans who have already been through this whole process and they're taught to navigate this new world that's beginning to erupt out of their unconscious. You know, what happens if, rather than pathologizing schizophrenic symptoms, we had 
a whole mythology and set of social institutions in place into which someone who began to manifest them was initiated so that as soon as the symptoms began to show, the person was not confused, they weren't afraid, they already had some idea of what was happening. And they trusted the teachers who were there to help them navigate it. You know, the answer is we don't really know what would happen because that's just not how we encounter psychosis. We encounter it in a medical environment after it's already slammed into the uncomprehending hostility of the social world and the person's life has already begun to fall apart. Well, Jim Jones was not a shaman, but he was in a very, very, very different situation than John Nash when his symptoms took over at MIT. What happens if you start to get visions, prophecies of an impending apocalypse, and you tell the people around you about them, and that they must follow you in order to be saved, and instead of calling the cops or an ambulance, they say, you know, totally, I'm in, let's do it. What happens if instead of meeting resistance in your social world, your delusions are reinforced at every turn by everyone around you? And I don't mean like five people. I mean hundreds of people, thousands of people eventually. You know, Jim Jones, as as time goes on, he creates a self-contained little world where literally no one questions him or tells him no about anything ever. Anything he says is true. And if people don't believe it, they keep their mouths shut about it. So what happens if you put a delusional schizophrenic? Or, or, or I don't know, maybe someone suffering from some form of non-schizophrenic psychosis. The schizophrenic diagnosis is so broad. I, what happens if you put someone like that in this situation where they just encounter no resistance, nothing but reinforcement and encouragement from everybody around them? Maybe Jim Jones is what happens. And whenever he does encounter resistance of any kind over the years, his paranoia spirals out of control and his behavior becomes extremely hostile and aggressive. Mostly that doesn't happen because mostly he lives within his little self-contained world. But in later years, when his profile rises to the point where he starts entering into the Bay Area political arena and he starts attracting the attention of the press when you know some disgruntled former members form a coalition to try to break apart people's temple, once that starts to happen, it takes no time at all for his mind to just completely fall apart and for him to start behaving exactly the way we're used to paranoid schizophrenics doing. And when he first starts getting these visions in 61, he doesn't share them with very many people at all. In fact, he creates fake incidents to explain his, his breakdown and odd behavior, right? So the stress that you know, he's feeling because he, he clearly is not, I'm talking about getting all this automatic reinforcement. He, he He's still kind of withholding a lot of this and not telling a lot of people. So he's still clearly kind of worried about it and doesn't know what to do. And the stress does finally take him down. And he makes up an excuse about looking for a safe refuge and, and bails out. Maybe, again. But his hardcore followers, his people, they take the prophecies of war and Armageddon seriously. And by late 1963, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassinations, uh, assassination rather, and the civil rights movement is becoming more deadly, those core followers, his family, they're begging him, please, please, please come back. The world was catching on fire and they needed him because only he could save them. And so after two years... He leaves Brazil and comes back to his people to save them. Maybe that's what happened. 
And so Jim Jones gets back to Indiana, and he's ready to roll. Jim Jones has this thing about him, something I'll mention again. Uh, it's, it's something that would always be one of his defining characteristics. When he's backed into a corner, he comes out swinging. You know, you see it here after he returns from Brazil, and you'll see it a few more times when he's pushed into a place where, you know, often by his own making, it looks like it might just be time to pack it up. Uh, you know, n- never again does he try uh, try to slip away or back down uh, after he gets back from Brazil. He just his response from now on will be to just take things up to another level from anything you've really seen out of him before. So he's on a mission when he gets back. But again, he's starting basically from scratch. By the time he settled, we're into 1964 now. And his church, this big, big building that he has, the old synagogue he bought in 56 that holds seven, 800 people, no problem, is empty. People have moved on. He's got maybe 100 people waiting for him when he gets back. And he's preaching to them in this big, empty church. The first thing he does is reassert control. He left the church under management of a few of his assistant pastors, each of whom were more conventional, you know, by the book, American Christians, and he was. His social goals and politics weren't their focus. They were about what you'd expect to see in a normal Midwestern church. You know, pray to Jesus, accept him as your Lord and Savior, have faith and hope because he died for our sins, and so on. Jim actually preferred things that way while he was gone because it meant that none of them were going to be in any position to usurp his position with the people who were around for the social gospel, which those are really the people that he cared about keeping around. They didn't do the healing or the hocus-pocus calling out people's social security numbers or diagnosing their their sicknesses from the pulpit. It just become a church. Almost all the people who were left in people's temple by this point were white. The black folks, they'd been there for Jim Jones. They could hear the gospel preach in their old black churches with their families and neighbors. What remained now was a hardcore of white, socially conscious integrationists who really bought into the idea that there was something special and unique about the man Jim Jones. So he faced no obstacles to reestablishing himself as the head of the church, but you know it had been a long time, and he felt threatened by the more traditional assistant pastors who'd been guiding things during his absence. And so, in short order, he pushed them out, made it clear that they weren't welcome, and, and got them out of the way altogether. Because Jim had a plan. Not everyone was going to go along with it. He didn't need the other leaders who weren't a challenge to his overall leadership, but they had accrued some authority and credibility within the church. He didn't want them around to raise objections. He was leaving Indiana, and he wanted his people to come with him. Things had changed in Indiana, in Indianapolis at least, in the two years that he'd been gone. The city government had made reforms. They brought black ministers and other black leaders in and given them a real voice in the local government. You know, black people in Indianapolis had flocked to Jim Jones as a guy who could get things done for them when he was establishing himself in the 50s, but now they had options from within their own communities. While the Freedom Summer heated up in 1964, India was a place of relative calm. You know, it was far from perfect, uh, but not a particularly green pasture for a rabble-rousing integrationist preacher. You go throughout the years as, as, the, as the whole country starts to catch on fire, fire with racial violence and stuff, and Indianapolis never figures too prominently. Jim no longer had his position as director of the Human Rights Commission, and the clout that he'd spent years building up in the city was pretty much gone. 
Upon his return, he'd been able to get back the weekly radio spot that he'd had before he left, but he lost that within a few months. You know, Previously, he'd been careful. Before he left for South America, he'd been pretty careful to use that public-facing platform to put on a show of Christian conventionality, you know, with a social message sprinkled in, but now he turned it into a weekly sociopolitical rant, often criticizing the Bible and other churches for hypocrisy on issues of social and racial justice very aggressively. He also ramped up his self-aggrandizing rhetoric, you know, which had begun to alienate some of his remaining traditional-minded advisors, and also some other preachers and other leaders in the Indianapolis Christian community as well. You know, he would speak of himself as a modern-day apostle, Openly, he wasn't shy about that anymore. He wasn't just inside the church now. You know, one brochure that they put out read, I am causing untold thousands to believe in the Jesus of ancient history by the great miracles and healings, prophecies and discernment I perform in his name. That's the kind of stuff that, again, he, had, he, he would say, but he would keep it in-house before he left. But those filters were off. After his radio show was canceled, he began to complain that you know, uh, other ministers around town had had it in for him, and that's why it was canceled. He believed they were spreading rumors that he was insane and that his absence had been due to a stay in, in, in a lunatic asylum. He told his advisors that he thought the IRS and FBI were investigating him, although there's no evidence that that was true at this point. And so it was time to look elsewhere. It's time to leave Indianapolis. Now, if Jim Jones was looking just for a fresh start, there were lots of places that were not far away, that that he could have done just fine. You know, he had connections in Chicago, for example, going back quite a ways. And with race relations coming to a boil in that city, you know, it would have been a pretty prime location for a young, charismatic, social activist preacher like him to rebuild his movement. But it wasn't just about a fresh start. Chicago wasn't going to do, because Jim Jones was sincere in his terror over nuclear war. And he wanted to find someplace safe. That old Esquire magazine article does come into play in this point. It might have pointed him to Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Uh, It had mentioned one place in the United States, in the whole country, as the safest one in in America. The safest place in the United States is Eureka, California, a landlocked port of nearly 30,000 people 283 miles north of San Francisco and more than 100 miles north of the nearest target. It is west of the Sierras and upwind from every target in the United States. End quote. By the end of 1964, Jim Jones is making scouting trips to Northern California, and by early 1965, he had settled on Ukiah, an inland town in Mendocino County. That would be the place that he would take his people to find refuge. And in July 1965, after school in Indianapolis had let out, and to the shocked dismay and pleading, of many of their friends and relatives, Jim Jones and his people packed up their cars and trucks, and as so many wanderers, utopians, and outcasts before them, set out in a long train into the American West. Those early days in California were good times for this group of people that by this, by this point had really become a big extended family. Those who had homes and property had had sold them in Indianapolis, and they all pooled their resources into a church fund to take care of everybody while they all found jobs and places to live in California. These people were really close to one another. And, you know, we live in such a disconnected society, I think it can be hard to understand that. But on the other hand, I think that the fact that we do live in such a disconnected society kind of makes it easier to understand. It's the key to understanding why... 
when they found this environment, this group of people, why it seemed so significant to them. And we're throwing everything else away to try to make something out of it. And Jim Jones was at the center of it. You know, he made it happen. And that inspired just an incredible amount of personal loyalty in this bunch of people. Jack Beam was an Indiana member who had left his church in Indiana to join up with Jim a few years back. And, and, and Jack was typical, fiercely loyal to Jim Jones all the way to the very end. When he met Jim Jones, Jim still had this little nothing church operating out of a storefront. And he'd been invited to do a few guest sermons at this big, popular Pentecostal church with a beautiful church building that was looking for someone to replace their pastor who was coming up on retirement. And this is where Jack Beam went to church, and Jack remembers how the whole thing happened. Quote, I was with Jim in the beginning when things got started. You see, word had got out all around Indianapolis. Jim's gift began to operate. Well, the Laurel Street Tabernacle got wind of him and said, let's bring him in, let him do his act, we'll see if we dig it. I'm stating it coldly, but you get the point. All Jim did was heal about three people that Sunday, and I mean, the word went out like wildfire. The next Sunday afternoon, you couldn't even get in that place. It was packed out and people in the parking lot looking in the doors. Well, about the third time that Jim had come there, some black people had come and they'd been crammed way in the back row. Some didn't even get in. So Jim tells his wife Marceline, he said, by God, I want them up here on the platform with me. And by God, Marceline brought him right up there. Well, shit. After the service, we had a board meeting and they told Jim, or we did because I was on the board. We told him, don't be bringing niggers on the front. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll build a church for the niggers, and you can minister to them, and then you can come minister to the white people. I was still a racist back then. A lot of people had this problem. They wanted the healings, but they were tore up on the race issue. Now, Laurel Street Tabernacle wasn't no goddamn shabby house on the hill. This was a brand new church, and everything in it was brand new, and Jim was going to be the pastor. He stood up and said to us, The most segregated institution in the United States is the church at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And I'll have no part of that. And he walked out of that goddamn thing. And I said, there's a guy with balls, man. He's walking out. My wife said, I like them. They're a nice young couple. And I said, I do too. And so we went with him. And he was preaching scorching sermons. Jim could out-preach anyone at that time. And it would electrify people. Out of one blood, God made all nations to rule on the face of the earth. The whole racial thing from a biblical standpoint. Boom, boom, boom. What he wanted to say, but they was religious people. You want the fucking healing? Well, stick your money up your fucking ass if you don't love these black people. End quote. And from that day on, Jack Beam was loyal to Jim Jones. I mean, he loved Jim Jones. He, he, he. He loved the man. He loved his family for that, you know, and he, and he stuck with them again, like, like I said, at the very end. And, you know, he was typical, a lot of these Indiana members. There were about a hundred of them that rolled into Ukiah that summer of 65, and Ukiah was a small town, so their arrival was noticed. Almost all of these new arrivals are white, but the few black members who came along, they learned very quickly that California came in different flavors. 
And this part of Cali is still Trump country to this day. And in 1965, it was a whole different planet from, you know, L.A. and San Francisco stereotypes that most people have about the state. Jim and his family lived humbly. They worked hard. His wife, Marceline, found a job as a social worker at Mendocino State Hospital. And Jim, just like he'd done back in Indianapolis, lined up several gigs. He's working all the time as a school teacher, for example, in and around Ukiah. It wasn't much, but they made ends meet. Jim taught uh, American history and government at an adult school in town, which is just great considering what we know about him later. And uh, both of those classes that he were teaching, was they, they, they were among the most popular at the school. Several of his students were actually adult members of People's Temple who were finishing their high school diploma at Jim's insistence. The popularity of his classes persuaded the school to overlook complaints from some of the students about their controversial content. You know, he'd often use the platform to go on rants against the U.S. government and make dire predictions about war and environmental destruction and overpopulation. You know, it was the the 60s, and, you know, hearing a teacher or professor rant about that stuff was getting a little more common. So they let it go. But he once told a class that the Catholic Church opposed abortion only because they wanted to populate the world with more Catholics in order to further the church's quest to rule the world. That one got a complaint. He advocated masturbation as a substitute for sex one time, and he even regaled the class by describing his own technique to them. And it wasn't just Jim's strange behavior. His paranoia followed him to California, too. Of course, you don't just go from thinking extraterrestrials are sending you prophecies about impending nuclear Armageddon and then just wake up the next day all better with no treatment or medication or anything at all, especially when you're surrounded by people who don't check you on any of that. They just eat it up and reinforce it. And so that follows him out there. In his adult school class that he was teaching, his American history and government classes, he he wanted to begin to obliquely kind of start advocating for socialism to feel people out. And so when he did that, he was certain that the school administration was going to be spying on him. So... You know, he, he closes and locks all the windows and the students are complaining because it's 100 degrees there in the summer and they're all hot and sweaty. He, he even assigned some of his church members to stand guard outside the classroom door to make sure nobody was listening in. You know, once he was once he felt safe, he started laying into these Marxist inspired diatribes against capitalism and American imperialism. And he even used his position in that class to start recruiting students into people's temple. That was one of the early techniques that he used. The first non-Indiana person, the first person to join People's Temple in California, he remembered Jim's paranoia even in those early days. He said, Jim would become paranoid. I didn't know how to evaluate that, and I still don't know how to evaluate that. I was appointed to an ad hoc committee to serve as advisors to him in the fall of 67. The first thing that Jim had us do was check the floor, the walls, the furniture for hidden microphones because he was afraid that the place had been bugged and it was not safe. I was very dubious at the time. I thought, who would bug this place? He gathered us together and shared that we were, as a group, increasingly under suspicion by the government and the corporate elite that ran the government. He was afraid that we were not going to be able to develop in terms of our vision in the United States and that we needed to begin plans, contingency plans, for going elsewhere. And so we began planning for a possible move to the Soviet Union, unquote. This is in 1967, a little over a year after they've been settled in California. People's Temple, at this point, has got barely over 100 members. 
you know, they're just a little group of nondescript people up in a small Northern California town. It's, it's extremely delusional, obviously, and sign signs of something bigger going on in Jim Jones mind that he thinks the corporate elite that runs the government is going to be interested in what they're doing. Soon after they got up there, Jim reaches out to this interesting little communal Christian group in the area called the Church of the Golden Rule and creates a relationship with them. And Golden Rule people lived together and held services on 16,000 acres of really nice land up there bequeathed to them you know, in earlier, better times. Uh, when People's Temple came upon them, Golden Rule only had about 200 members, but, but they were quite larger back in the day. Uh, they ran a farm and a dairy. They attended church services every morning, and they lived kind of quiet lives, mostly out of sight and out of mind of the surrounding towns. People's Temple was welcomed and well-received by Golden Rule, who allowed Jim to use their schoolhouse to conduct temple services until he could find a place of their own. The two churches' uh, children would play together and swim together, and they'd go on little outings together, and the groups would often share communal meals with one another. Um, but very soon the relationship went sour. Jim just couldn't help himself. Uh, he and his people started plotting and began to systematically trying to recruit away Golden Rule members who, you know, who were sensitive to his racial justice message. He saw this big plot of land that they had and this whole thing, and there were so few members, and it was still kind of dwindling and falling apart. He thought maybe they could merge the two churches, and then he could take over you know, the combined movement at some point himself. And soon it was clear to Golden Rule that he had some aggressive plans. And uh, one day he stood up in one of the services, and he suggested that the two churches merge with one another. And the Golden Rule elders, by that point, kind of saw what was going on. So they voted down the merger and told People's Temple they had to move on. So for a while, Jim was conducting services in the large front yard of one of his members, uh, one of the member families. When it rained, his people would gather in Jim's garage, you know, sitting tight as sardines on the concrete floor, singing songs and clapping and listening to Jim as he preached and prophesied. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a vision, you know. These people, you're driving by and these people are just gathered in the front yard or, or in some dude's garage and they're just, you know, they're into it. They're singing and clapping. I mean, they're getting down. Like, this is, this is real to them. And I know it's all very strange, but... Uh, in this early period, I honestly find something really endearing and kind of romantic about it. You know, these were people who had had lives in Indianapolis. They didn't head to California out of desperation. They really had come to think of each other as a big family. You know, they loved each other. And they, they wanted to live their lives together. You know, not just together like... You know, hey, this is my buddy. Every once in a while after work, we get together to watch a game or have a beer. They wanted to be together, you know, really together. They, 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 they wanted back that thing that we gave up when we stopped living as tribes and took up wage work in the towns and cities of urban civilization. They wanted it back. These were not wealthy people or people with any special skills. Far from it. Some of the most important figures in the church, Jim's closest aides, were in those classes just now finishing their high school education. But, you know, they were out there. They were going to make a go of it. Reiterman, who usually, like most of the writers on this topic, he takes a pretty cynical, 
or, or at least skeptical view of everything as if everything from the very beginning is all some big trap that Jim Jones is laying for people. E- even he leaves that off when he writes about this period. Quote, The temple had become an extended family for those who had traveled west. At last, Jones had penetrated the barrier of blood relationships and brought a sizable number through it. As father to them all, a living standard of love, Jones made the rounds to their homes in the hills and hollows, chatting, enjoying their company, listening, showing concern for their well-being and understanding for their problems. As a friend and counselor, he listened as no man could listen, with dark eyes mirroring understanding, empathy, and love. Without sounding preachy, he talked about the need to help and love one another. He would break up a fight between two children, then sit down on the ground with them for hours to convey the message. No problem or concern was too small to bring to his attention. He took on a remarkable burden of caring while demanding little in return. Only with apology in his voice would he ask members to do things for their church. People did not mind helping someone work on his car or harvest grapes or dig a septic tank. They were loving one another and loving Jim Jones. End quote. Uh, Gary Lambrev, that first temple member uh, that I quoted before, he remembered this period as well. Quote, Jim Jones didn't just serve as the husband of Marceline and the father of a group of children, most of whom were adopted. He was the pastor of a seven-day-a-week active community who also worked a full-time job as a teacher of a sixth-grade class 25 miles across the coastal range in Boonville down in Anderson Valley. I was the welfare worker for the area, and I knew the families. I served the families of many of the kids who were in Jim's classes. They didn't know I was part of People's Temple, but I heard their stories about Jim Jones, this incredible man who would stand up for his students, who wouldn't let them get trampled by the system. I can remember a woman crying, telling me about what he had done for her daughter. He taught every evening at Ukiah High School, Government and American History, two courses that were open wide to the community. You didn't have to be enrolled to come, you just came, and they were extraordinary interactive courses. I didn't see where the man had a moment of privacy. I mean, whatever one thought of his ideology, at that point at least, I couldn't question his motives. He was, to me, living what was a godly life. End quote. Jim's large rainbow family was happy there, and Jim seemed happy. Marceline made herself at home, and the children played in the woods or roughhouse with Jim on the grass. They got inner tubes and floated on a nearby creek. You know, the other boys, the boys played football with the other kids as Jim would lounge in a chair with Marceline and some of their friends, and he'd cluck at the family dogs. Jim's oldest son, Stephen, his natural son with Marceline, he remembered, quote, My early childhood, I remember being really wonderful. I had a lot of time where I could just go out and be in nature. My imagination just ran free. I, I remember being a little boy, and every year the creek behind our house would dry up, and the fish, of course, would die, so I had to stop that. So every year before the creek dried up, I would go around catching as many fish as I could, putting them in buckets and walking them down to the river, which is probably a mile away, and then letting them go. End quote. Of course, there were issues. Um, I mentioned that the few blacks in the original ba- uh, batch of temple members had some problems. You know, they, they were looking for housing and they were having trouble finding anyone who would rent to them. 
Jim's son, Stephen, would get into fights at school defending his black adopted brother, Jimmy Jr., from kids who called him nigger. Jimmy Jr., uh, that adopted son of Jim's, he remembered the first time he'd ever heard that word and how he learned what it meant. Quote, I was about nine years old in the third grade, and I went in the bathroom, and I hate to say it, but at nine years old, I could spell every four-letter word. And I see this word on the bathroom wall. I start saying it. Nigger. No one in the bathroom says anything. I get on the bus, and I'm singing it. Everybody in the whole bus is singing it with me, to the Mickey Mouse tune. N-I-G-G-E-R. Nigger. Mr. Pruitt, the bus driver, says... Mr. Jones, should you be saying that word? I say, it ain't four letters. I walk in the house. N-I-G-G-E-R, Nick, bam! Jim hits me. What did you say? I jump up. Nigger, bam! What did you say? Nigger, bam! Fourth time, I'm a little slow, but finally starting to get it. I'm standing up slower. What did you say? The word that I saw on the bathroom wall... He says, do you know what that word means? No. Puts on his jacket. We go to the school. He makes me show it to him. We go down to the principal's office. Jim reads him the riot act. I have no idea why he's mad. Then he takes me home. And he explains to me what nigger means. He said, nigger is a word they use against Negro people. Black people. Derogatory to put them down. It means black heart. And it was used in slavery. Slavery? What was that? I'm serious. He goes, well, you're a Negro. I'm what? And thus Jim Jones brought me into his life and gave me that education. End quote. One time, when some temple members were swimming at a nearby lake, a few locals shouted nigger, a nigger lover at them. And what do you think Jim Jones did? He went home, and he tore out all the grapevines that were in front of his house, and he pulled some money out of the temple fund, and he borrowed a tractor and some tools, and he got his people together to dig out and construct a big community pool for everyone. But once that was done, the solution to the problem of finding a church seemed pretty straightforward. If they could build a pool, they could build a church, so that's what they did. They built it right over the swimming pool, actually, so it turned it into an indoor pool. They installed a large kitchen in the building where they could cook up large meals to share together. And they left a lot of extra room in the church besides what they needed for themselves because Jim had plans. He wanted to grow. They even got a, a kind of a cute little plastic stained glass window custom made with a People's Temple logo, which was a sunburst and a, you know, a dove of peace. And they put it up on the wall so that it was right over the pulpit on one side. And on the other side of the wall, it was over the pool. Again, it was much bigger than they needed because Jim Jones had plans to fill it up. When the people went to church services, when they would you know, share meals cooked in the kitchen that they'd built, or when they watched their children swim and play in the pool that they dug out, they felt a tremendous sense of pride, and they'd earned that. And they felt a lot of love and appreciation for each other, and they earned that too. You almost wonder what would have happened you almost wonder what would have happened to People's Temple if they had stayed in Indiana. Or if they had done like Golden Rule and moved up to Montana or North Dakota. You know, found some quiet patch of land and built a nice little rural Eden for themselves. But 
then again, maybe it had to fall apart. You know, maybe the maybe, maybe all the good and the bad were you could kind of trace them back to the same tendencies. You know, maybe the time bombs in their ideology and in Jim Jones' personality were going to have to go off at some point, no matter where they were. It seems like the the story of every disaster starts off with everything was going so well, and then, you know, in any case, they hadn't stayed in Indiana, and they hadn't gone off into the mountains or to a farm in Montana. They'd gone to California, in the orbit of the Bay Area, no less. They had gone right into the heart of the craziest place they could have gone at the craziest time that they could have possibly chosen to go there. Jim and his people hadn't been the first misfits to pack up their wagons and head west. All those people who had to keep moving, you know, keep moving west, finding each potential stop along the way just a little too stifling and, you know, people around them just not quite as welcoming as as they'd hoped. You know, they barreled over the horizon, over mountains and over deserts toward the orange haze of the setting sun until they all piled up on top of each other, running headlong into the final barrier of the Pacific Ocean. And that's California. And California was more wide open in a way that most of the older settled parts of the country were not anymore. When it came to the 60s black power and other radical movements, you know, maybe New York was more militant, but no place was wilder than Cali. In the Bay Area, you know, Berkeley, San Francisco, it was like a beacon drawing in all the people from around the country who were sure that they were going to find some unidentifiable thing that they hadn't been able to turn up anywhere else that they looked. And of all times for someone like Jim Jones to show up, right? Jim and his merry band drove into Ukiah in July of 1965. They hadn't even finished unpacking when the Watts riots erupted just a half, half day's drive down Highway 101 in Los Angeles. This was the year that the U.S. got fully committed in Vietnam. The people spent the fall and winter of that first year finding homes and jobs in and around Ukiah, getting themselves settled. And that first summer after they'd been settled, while they watched their kids play tag and swim in the new pool, Stokely Carmichael was announcing the birth of the Black Power Movement. And race riots were raging in cities around the country. And two young guys named Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were buying their first guns and pulling in their first recruits for the Black Panthers in nearby Oakland. By 1967, 100,000 hippies were converging just that summer on San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury to drop acid and make love and rock out during the summer of love. Jim would have turned on his TV set in 67 that May and seen California's new governor, Ronald Reagan, standing outside the Capitol building in nearby Sacramento denouncing the swarm of armed Black Panthers that had just invaded the legislative chambers. And a few months later, after devastating race riots in Newark and Detroit that saw the freaking 82nd Airborne and the 101st called in to bail out the police and National Guard, Jim would turn on his TV again and see that same young Black Panther Huey Newton being led away in handcuffs after shooting a cop and taking a bullet in his own belly. The number of U.S. soldiers in Vietnam that year had increased to over half a million. And thousands of young American men, including 25-year-old heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, were being arrested for refusing to go. And this is just 1967. Things haven't even gotten started yet. So no, Jim and his people had not gone to Montana. They had come to California. And they hadn't come for a quiet life. Soon after they were settled, 
Jim decided now was the time to announce their presence to the residents of their new conservative little town in case anyone had missed them moving in. And so they drew up placards and stuck them on sticks and printed up flyers to pass out and went on a march through the downtown boulevard of Ukiah in protest against the Vietnam War. It was intentionally confrontational, and as you can imagine, it was not well received. No one threw rocks at him or anything, but the demonstration ensured that from the earliest days they'd be looked at a little sideways by this community that they'd just moved into. And I mean, just this act, it's, it, sounds pretty, it sounds pretty basic, but just think about it. It gives you an idea of the mentality that Jim and his people had and how they planned from the beginning on relating to the people around them. You know, I know it doesn't sound like much, and you could say, you know what, those rednecks in Ukiah don't like an anti-war protest? Screw them. But think about the whole context of it. You know, this is a pretty small town. All of a sudden, a hundred people all move in at once, together, and they have a leader. You just think about that part. They have a leader. You know, what do you mean? He's like the leader of your church? No. He's our leader. Okay. You know, that's pretty weird, right? They do everything together. They don't really associate much with the rest of the community, and they have a leader. And almost as soon as they're settled in, they're marching down your downtown street for a cause that, um, I mean, you know, right or wrong, they knew damn well was going to run contrary to many of the people in your conservative town. You know, who are these people? We didn't do anything to you. You're just going to barge into our town you know, en masse, acting all strange, and your kids stick together on the playground and don't interact with any of the other kids at school, and now you're waving signs in our faces and yelling about politics while we're trying to go to the supermarket? You know, it's a bold thing to do, and it's kind of a strange thing to do, and it's a knowingly confrontational thing to do, and it got the reaction that you would expect, and to be honest, the reaction that Jim Jones probably expected. And for a group like this, you need there to be a barrier between the people and the rest of the community for it to for it to stick together over time. I don't know if Jim Jones thinks about it consciously that way, you know, setting up situations like this on purpose to make sure his people are kind of alienated from the community and therefore, you know, bound more tightly and securely to one another. I don't know if that's something conscious. You know, his his biographers always assume that he was that cunning and cynical and that everything is kind of a manipulation like that. But to be honest, as far as I can tell, that's just an assumption. I don't think there's any information that kind of gives anybody that idea. I, I think it was just their way. I think it was his way, but also his people's way. They, they were out to change the world, and they took that seriously. And if anyone had a problem with it, then not only were they not going to accommodate those people, you know, they were going to make something of it. I mean, you know, it's the mentality of, uh, you know, why can't the, you know, the, the, the left wing gender queer feminist granddaughter just kind of roll her eyes and ignore grandpa at Thanksgiving when he makes some, you know, positive remark about Donald Trump rather than blowing up the dinner by starting an argument with him about it. Because screw him. Why should she? You know, and not everyone's like that, but Jim Jones was like that and his people were like that. And. You know, maybe there's a bit of truth to the biographer's cynical interpretation, too, to be fair. Um, but in any case, they were going to be right at home in California as the fateful revolutionary year of 1968 came into view. Paul Berman, a writer who 
he was a left wing veteran of the, the this this period, sympathetic veteran. Uh, you know, he writes about it with sympathy. Um, he remembered those days. He said, "Quote." In the years around 1968, a utopian exhilaration swept across the student universe and across several adult universes as well, and almost everyone in my own circle of friends and classmates was caught up in it. The exhilaration was partly a fury against some well-known social injustices and against some injustices that had always remained hidden. Partly it was a belief, hard to remember today except in a cartoon version, that a superior new society was already coming into existence. And it was the belief that we ourselves, the teenage revolutionaries, freaks, hippies, and students, together with our friends and leaders who were five or ten years older, and our allies around the world, stood at the heart of that new society. Our own student uprisings, the building occupations, marches, strikes, battles with the police, the insurrections that were sexual, feminist, and gay, the bursts of ecological passion, the noisy entrance of the first mass group of African-American students into the previously segregated American universities, the slightly crazy effort to raise insubordination into a culture, to eat, dress, smoke, dance differently. It was a political insurrection, but also an insurrection in middle-class customs, a phrase that we would have loathed, end quote. In the last episode, I tried to describe the development of the African-American protest movement from the nonviolent civil rights demonstrations of the early 60s through the beginnings of the black power, uh, more militant movement later in the decade, and how that transformation was partly a generational conflict. You know, younger activists like, like Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown, you know, while, while men like Martin Luther King and his allies kind of tried to hold back the tide of militancy. Well, there was a parallel generational conflict going on at the same time within the white American left. Or, Well, I mean, these groups weren't white in the way that civil rights or black power groups were black, but the people in them were white almost entirely. And, and, and they followed closely the transformation from black protest to black militancy with their own movement from reform socialism to revolutionary communism. Now, anyone who knows me, anyone who follows me on Twitter, which is not something that I can recommend, knows how much I hate communism. And I can give reasons, but I don't claim to be rational about it. I've just read too much history, and it's left too deep a mark. But you know who hated communists even more than me? It might surprise you. In the 20th century... You would have been hard-pressed to find any group of people who abhorred communism more than American socialists. And their reasons were better than mine. To them, communism was not an abstract evil. Okay, Many of America's left-wing institutions were populated with recent generation immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe and who still had family and friends behind the Eastern Bloc. So they knew firsthand the evil that had been done in the name of communism. But knowing about the reality of Stalinism obviously doesn't automatically turn a worker into a supporter of fascism. These people were still solid democratic socialists, but they were also solid Americans. You know, they liked the New Deal. The communists didn't like the New Deal because improving the lives of workers, in their their view, that, that, that little bit, it made it harder to win them over for the cause of revolution. There were still reforms to fight for, but these people 
who had been through the battles of the 30s and 40s, you know, who gutted out the Great Depression and had a tragic perspective on how horribly wrong things can go when they do go wrong, they knew that America was no hellscape. The trade unions and student organizations and, you know, all the, all the leftist policy organizations in the U.S., they had a hard and fast rule against communists. You don't even let them in the door. These were lessons that they had learned the hard way over decades of going to war with communists over control of America's leftist institutions. You know, in Holocaust histories, you'll hear about the time that supporters of Hitler's regime filled up Madison Square Garden for a rally. Around that same time, the garden was filled up by a bunch of socialists. But they weren't rallying against Nazis. They were making a show of force against the pro-Soviet communists who had recently packed themselves into Yankee Stadium. The socialists knew from bitter experience that in America, communists were a far greater danger to the left than fascists had ever been. And this was a lesson, though, that had to be taught anew to each left-wing generation. It's not going to be immediately obvious to the younger leftists and the student groups why communism, yeah, perhaps not the Soviets or the Chinese, you know, maybe they weren't doing it right, but, but communism in principle uh, excited such hostility in the adults who were in charge of the adult socialist organizations. And young people often tend toward extremism anyway, and, and they kind of viewed the temperate energy of their elders as, as apathy or laziness. That's kind of a common, common way for, for young people to look at, look at that. You know, they lacked the perspective of the elders on the achievements that had already been hard won. They grew up taking for granted improvements that the elders had bled for in jails and on picket lines. And to many young people who had never really experienced repression or violence in any meaningful way, the revolution, I mean, let's be honest, it's just sexier than reform. And so they had to be taught. And until they were properly taught, they'd simply have to be told, no communism, period. See, again, the elders had seen the movie before many times, and they were not interested in seeing it again. They knew what happened the moment you made an exception and cracked the door open for those people just a little bit. Once the communists were inside, you no longer had a democratic organization. Instead of members discussing the policies and direction of the group and in which they were all invested and then voting or compromising to find a consensus, the communists didn't work that way. The communists worked together in a disciplined block, taking orders directly from party headquarters on what they should do. And before long, they'd take control of one or two committees, and then they would leverage the power they had in those committees to push or block according to the directives of their party bosses. It would all be done according to, you know, the democratic bylaws of the institution, technically. But, but you know, those democratic bylaws assume good faith. But they knew that the Social Democrats were going to be loath to violate those bylaws because then, you know, how are they any different from the communists? But these communists, they weren't operating in good faith. They were working toward a different purpose, trying to subvert the institution so that it could be put to use by the larger communist organism. And so bit by bit, they would frustrate and overwhelm everybody else. All those mere individuals who were voting according to their conscience and reason, but not according to any party program. And then that would be that. Once the communists had control, they had the power to change the rules to make sure that they kept it. And then it was all over. 
This had happened many, many times to many leftist groups, and in every case, it was the death knell for that institution. You know, these socialists, the democratic socialists, they were Americans. They fought a class war on behalf of American workers. During the Second World War, FDR had forged a settlement between the classes that the socialists knew you know, it represented some pretty good progress. But revolutionaries are not looking for a settlement. They're looking for victory. And the communists were the explicit enemies of the United States, literally. You know, they aligned themselves with Moscow. And so once they, they, they seized control of one of these socialist organizations, it became a weapon in the hands of the international communist movement with very different goals from anything that had gone before with, with the socialists in control. And so at that point, it was just a matter of time before Joe McCarthy or J. Edgar Hoover or whoever took out his fork and knife and just ate them all for breakfast. And there was going to be no one there to defend them. You know, you want to call yourself an enemy of the United States government? Roger that. You can get treated like one. And worse, the damage would never be contained to that one organization. The people who had previously been involved with the organization, even people who had left because the communists came around inevitably picked up some of the stink. You know, they'd been involved with a communist organization, maybe with proven ties to Moscow, as was often the case. Joe McCarthy was not interested in hearing your excuses or the convoluted history of your organization. And so now, whatever organizations you were currently involved with, they had to answer up for why they had members who had known ties to communism. It gave the hardcore anti-leftists in the country enough ammunition to do so much damage to the American left, you know, not only through these investigations, but by using this to smear whole swaths of the left with the communist brush, it would take years and years to recover. And many of the old, grizzled socialist veterans of the labor wars, they knew that they really only had themselves to blame for it. We should have known better than to let those goddamn totalitarians in the door. Well, by the 1950s, that lesson had been learned. You know, it had been seared into the individual and institutional memories of America's left. After 1956, with the revelations regarding the nature of the Soviet regime by de-Stalinization and Khrushchev's brutal invasion of Hungary, communism in the U.S. was eviscerated. You know, the, the official party, the American Communist Party, all but collapsed. And, you know, at the time, the economy's humming, Workers' lives are improving. You know, the, 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 the legitimacy of the government, you look at polls from the time, I mean, it's just sky high. Even labor, had to, it seemed to have a, a pretty secure place in politics, had a voice. But then, of course, because God has a great sense of humor, that's when everything got a million times more complicated. And by the late 50s, it was fairly straightforward for the adults, the adult left, to explain to the student left that communism was bad and they should have nothing to do with it. Pretty straightforward case. Communism at the time meant the Soviet Union. And it was easy enough, you know, not to side with an enemy superpower that, even applying the most ungenerous lens to America, had at least as much to answer for as your own country. The case got more difficult to make when revolutions in the third world started up. And some of those post-colonial states that resulted from those revolutions started calling themselves communist. It was one thing for America's vast military to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe 
you know, in Germany against the Red Army, things began to look a lot different to some people when we started turning our attention to places like Cuba. The Cubans had no sooner won their revolution to overthrow a corrupt military dictatorship than the American government set itself the task of destroying the new regime. And this didn't look like self-defense under any reasonable definition of the term, you know, to these people. It looked like an attempt to reinforce a regime of control left over from an era of colonial domination that America was, according to the great mythology of the country, officially supposed to have stood against. Our strategy of containment meant that, you know, we would not attack the Soviet Union, but we would oppose the spread of communism anywhere in the world. And what this ended up meaning in practice was that America became the enemy of many much smaller, weaker countries, many of whom had just emerged from, you know, colonialism in parts of the world that, you know, had been formerly dominated by Europe. Obviously, the Soviet propaganda wrote itself. They were supporting national liberation movements against colonial domination, while America had taken up the sword from the depleted colonial powers, you know, to, to keep the third world in its place. Now, when a communist was banned from entering a meeting of an organization like the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, which was the largest left-wing student group in the country, the communists could say, what, I'm not allowed to support the Cubans? I'm not allowed to like Che. And many of the younger leftists, they found that quite persuasive. You know, I mean, when when the leaders of SDS got together on Lake Michigan to put together their famous Port Huron statement, it was only at the absolute insistence of the adult organization that paid their bills that they included an anti-communist clause in the form of a statement anathematizing totalitarianism. Well, thing got... I mean, even worse, just considerably more complicated as America became involved in Vietnam. It was hard to even come up with a pretense of a rationale that could plausibly sound like self-defense to the student left. At least Cuba was 90 miles from Florida and had officially declared for the Soviet Union, right? The students didn't buy that rationale, but they could at least believe that others did. The domino theory, you know, justifying our involvement in Vietnam seems so abstract, they just couldn't take it seriously. In what imaginable world could Vietnam threaten the United States, whatever form of government it had, and whoever its allies were? But again, the adult left did not want to hear it. They were not interested, and they were unbending. Because again, they had seen the movie before. They knew how it ended. And so they were firm and final, no communism, end of freaking story. If you want to chant, ho, 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 chi Minh, you can do it somewhere else, because in this place, you are not welcome. In 63 and 64, the country's political attention, you know, it was fixed on Martin Luther King, JFK's murder, Johnson versus Goldwater, and, and the escalating racial strife in the South, while our involvement in Vietnam was still limited to providing some military advisors and logistical support to help the South Vietnamese government fight its war against the communist North. 64, President Johnson ran the campaign promising that our involvement would stay that way. Maybe we could plausibly argue that we were supporting, uh, you know, that, that we were supporting again in a very limited way, the recognized legitimate government of Vietnam, the one with a seat at the UN against a dangerous subversive threat. 
but that pretense collapsed in 1965. With the election over, Johnson was sworn in in January of 65, and just two months later, we invaded Vietnam. The government we were supposed to be supporting by that point had no meaningful support or legitimacy with its own people. It was completely incapable of carrying on the war against the North, and so we just pushed that government aside like, you know, we'll take it from here. In the election year, 64, we'd had about 23,000 military advisors in the country. By 1965, we had 180,000 boots on the ground. Well, 360,000 if you count both feet. In 66, it was a quarter million. By 1968, there was over half a million American troops patrolling those jungles. And of course, I mean, the optics were outrageous. You got these cone-hatted peasants. Don't get me wrong, the Vietnamese were warriors, but if you just saw pictures of this stuff, you got these cone-hatted peasants ducking for cover as our B-52s are dropping more bombs on Vietnam than we had dropped on Germany and Japan combined during the entire Second World War. The student left found our opposition to Cuba hard enough to handle, but this was not the Bay of Pigs anymore. They looked to their anti-communist elders and said, hey, you told us the Soviets were bad for what they did to Hungary in 1956, and we believed you. What do you call this? But it had no effect. I mean, the old left were either anti-communist enough that they just found it difficult to take a firm stand against an anti-communist war, although that would very quickly change as the war's nature became clearer, to be fair. Um, Or else there were just... You know, there was just the fact that these old trade unionists and social democrats, you know, social democratic veterans of those picket lines, they just weren't primarily oriented toward foreign policy at all. You know, it takes time to change an approach that's that that shaped your view of politics and the world your whole life. Maybe they deplored the war, but it wasn't at least at first it wasn't looming for them as large as it was to the younger left wing generation. You know, the left wingers would come. You know, can you believe this? Oh, my God, that, you know, this war, it's so awful. And, you know, the adults are like, yeah, yeah, it's awful. You know, it's its terrible. We're totally against it. We're going to vote also the same people you are for it to stop. But, you know, that emotional disconnect was extremely strong and very frustrating to, to the younger people. And the adults, you know, the adults were becoming annoyed at the students' tolerance of this new communist heresy. And the students were becoming dismissive and belligerent toward the adults. And relations just deteriorated until finally in 1965, the year that we invaded Vietnam, SDS voted to drop the anti-totalitarian clause in its charter altogether. And they cracked the door open for the communists. You know, they just couldn't any longer justify keeping people out merely because they were supporters of the North Vietnamese. The anti-communism that so anachronistically to them uh, obsessed the adult left, it sounded like the same rhetoric the U.S. government was using to justify its slaughter in Vietnam. More and more, they came to see the plotting, reform-minded democratic socialism of their elders the way Lenin had described it, as the left wing of imperialism, providing cover for it. And on top of everything... You know, the, you you can imagine this. I, I can certainly imagine it. These young to the to the younger group, 
you know, the adult's obsession here, it just sounded like absurd paranoia in, in the 1960s. You know, this isn't the 1930s, Grandpa. What do you think's going to happen? The commies are going to sneak into SDS and subvert us and take over the organization from the inside? Ooh. And the adults are like, yes, you damn idiots. That is exactly what's going to happen. And they officially cut ties with the student movement after they dropped that anti-totalitarian clause. And then the socialists in the old left shook their heads and they watched from a distance as the new left cut its mooring lines and careened toward a cliff, the exact cliff that they had been trying to warn them about. It took less than two years for the adults to be proven right. By, by the time the students learned that their parents might have had a point, it was too late. By 1967, communists had taken control of SDS. And by 1969, that, that old, venerable organization, which had been around since 1905 and had its roots in the grandest traditions of the American left, you know, started by people like Upton Sinclair and Jack London, would no longer exist. When the student left cut itself off from the traditional American left. You know, it cut itself off from the institutional memory that might have kind of told it what to expect and given them half a chance to fight back. As it happened, they were completely defenseless. When a sect based out of Harvard, calling itself Progressive Labor, put SDS on the dinner menu, and um, our guide in, in, in this subject, Paul Berman, again, a left-wing veteran of all this, he describes what happened. Quote, Progressive labor was more communist than the communists. PL was pro-Beijing, admired Stalin, worshipped Mao. Looking at these progressive labor people, you could have easily shared the disbelief of many anti-communist SDSers that any kind of communist infiltration could get anywhere at all. Progressive labor was the antithesis of every rebellious instinct in SDS. The PLers struck genuine SDSers as robots. They wore anti-hippie short haircuts, which made them look like marines, except with the flabby muscles and pale complexions of bookish personalities, and they maintained a marine-like discipline, too. Their manner at meetings was notoriously patient and manipulative. They raised their hands and quoted Stalin or Mao in flat tones that were oddly remote from American English. Yet, something about the PL spirit was in keeping with the era. Maybe there was, after all, a link, faint though it had to be, between the young, faraway red guards of Mao's rep cultural revolution and the young rebels of the Western world. Soon enough, the PL student Maoists and the occasional assistant professor were attending every meeting of SDS they could find, carrying out a disciplined infiltration that was coordinated from party headquarters. And the relatively disorganized SDS socialists, ignorant of their own history that might have taught them how to resist, were in no position to do so. The deadpan Maoist rhetoric sounded weird, but... Back then, weirdness was good. Many a student revolutionary who was privately frightened out of his wits by the hippie counterculture discovered with great fascination that PL, in its scary Chinese fashion, offered a counter-counterculture, which was exceedingly straight, yet exceedingly radical. The PLers gave up cigarettes. These were not potheads. Their look may have been androidal, but at least they weren't fashionable. Their attitude toward ordinary working people was laughably paternalistic, but they did at least pretend to sympathy, which was better than some of the anti-PLers managed to do. And because of the machine-gun efficiency of their Leninist discipline, plus the allure of their ghastly Chinese rhetoric and the reassurance that came from their stodgy cultural ideas, 
The malice in chapter after chapter were able to rope in a handful of students long enough to get them to vote at one or two meetings, which was sufficient to take over a committee, then to influence the chapter, and sometimes to take over entirely. The PLers managed to confuse the SDS rank and file with their accusations of anti-communism directed at anyone who spoke against them, since by the time of their challenge, 1967-69, to it had become impossible for true SDSers to affirm anti-communism as the movement's proper doctrine. Almost five decades of left-wing repudiation of communism lay in the SDS's past, but the break between generations had performed a kind of lobotomy on the collective student brain, and the whole previous experience of the American left had disappeared from memory, except for the great history that was passed along through family tradition. And since, in no small number of cases, family tradition among SDSers contained a fond, fond nostalgia for the Communist Party of the 30s and 40s and a keen appreciation of the non-party communism that flowered at Monthly Review and the National Guardian during the 50s, living memory tended to become, for SDS, a celebration of American communism and of everything that accorded with it, with, with the communist past, and of nothing that did not. In SDS, the phrase social democracy came to mean the left wing of imperialism, exactly as in the writings of Lenin. So the crew-cut robots stood up and quoted Stalin. No one among the ordinary SDSers knew what was wrong with Stalin, except that maybe he went too far, that Trotsky was vaguely preferable. No one knew how to explain that Lenin was a dictator. The short hairs chanted, Smash red baiting! The long hairs, speechless, adopted the fateful strategy of opposition by imitation. They went thumbing through the handsome little pamphlets published by China's foreign language press, looking for Maoist quotations to hurl back at the Maoists. They read North Vietnamese pamphlets and speeches by Fidel Castro. The little Lenin library became a common possession. Stalin's theory of nationalism was everyone's favorite reading. And by, those, and by provoking those several responses, the robots of progressive labor did more damage to SDS than a thousand secret police agents. End quote. Now, there had never been, there, there never was a lot of ideological sympathy for progressive labor inside SDS, but that didn't matter. They had control of the organization. They knew, as all revolutionaries must know, that a keyed-up mass of individuals is nothing more than a weapon in the hands of any disciplined cadre that knows how to pick it up and put it to use. They managed to maintain control of SDS through the crazy year of 1968, but the direction of events in American culture meant that a Marxist nostalgia cult like PL was inevitably going to be pushed out by a group who better understood which way the wind was blowing. In fact, that was how they got their name, from a Bob Dylan lyric. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. I need to give you a little background before we get into weatherman. Because I think it's easy to think that this is just a bunch of crazy people. Especially if, since if you ran into a group of them, half of them would be on acid or speed and the other half would be on both. But everything has an internal logic to it. And what led Weatherman to the conclusion that armed guerrilla warfare against the United States government was a reasonable political pathway... It sheds a lot of light on how Jim Jones and People's Temple arrived at the crazy conclusions that drove them out into the jungle. I'll draw on Paul Berman again. Um, you know, again, he's kind of my guide for this for this period, among just a few other people. 
Uh, and again, I want to emphasize, he's a left-wing chronicler of this period. And he has a generally sympathetic approach to the motivations that drove many of the people that he knew at the time in, in, in such wild directions. He wrote, quote, The new left was a young people's movement motivated by fear. Naturally, not just by fear. New leftists all over the world knew very well that in the decades after World War II, European imperialism was steadily collapsing around the world. And certain kinds of social progress were advancing nicely in Western countries and might go on advancing too, given a proper left-wing push. Utopian cheerfulness was a sunbeam that fell here and there. Yet fear swallowed it all. It was a fear that, at least in the Western countries, social progress rested on a lie. A fear that prosperity was theft and Western wealth was third world exploitation. A fear that Western civilization comprised an all-encompassing system of manipulation designed to mislead its own people and everyone else. An iron cage cleverly designed to resemble the open air of freedom. End quote. So what could drive a bunch of mostly wealthy, privileged white kids from the Ivy League to begin to see their world in those terms? And maybe uh, the first thing that is hard to avoid noticing about Weathermen when you study them, uh, it's a delicate thing to notice, but it, it has to be addressed because it's kind of important, is that virtually all of them were Jewish. And why that's worth noticing is the reason it's worth noticing the overwhelming role of Jewish Americans, the, the, the role that they played in all of the social justice and left-wing radical movements of this era. I mean, Jews were even well represented in the leadership of People's Temple, ostensibly a Christian church, very well represented, actually. In the previous episode, we discussed the Freedom Riders pretty in-depth. And I mentioned that the Freedom Riders consisted of both black and white young activists riding buses into the Deep South to challenge local segregation laws. What I didn't mention was that those white Freedom Riders were almost all Jewish. Not all, but four out of five. That was all the way back in 1961, when most of white America was only just beginning to wake up to what was going on down there. And they're already involved. They're on the front lines. It's not hard to puzzle out the reason why Jews were among the first white people to really start paying serious attention to the plight of blacks suffered under Jim Crow. I don't think you have to, you know, you, you don't have to think too hard about that one. The Freedom Rides took place just 16 years after the end of the Second World War. You know, while Anglo and white ethnic kids of the baby boom grew up hearing about the heroic exploits of the greatest generation and the victory over fascism, you know, young Jews grew up hearing, yes, that story too, but something else besides that. You know, they learned how, no matter how safe and civilized the world around you might seem, you can never really be sure. And they've been taught to look for the signs. You know, when images of brutality against blacks in the South began to be broadcast into American living rooms, a lot of good white Americans saw the carnage and thought, I can't believe this is happening in our country. You know, how could my fellow Americans treat other human beings in such a manner? You know, these, these are not our values. This is not who we are. But a lot of young Jews saw those same images of men in uniforms 
holding snapping German shepherds a few inches back from the faces of terrified black men, women, and children, while rage-crazed civilian mobs hurled insults and stones at them, and very different thoughts ran through their heads. They saw those images and thought, oh, no. No, 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 no. I know what this is. I've seen this before. Nope. No way. Not this time. And a lot of them got on those buses, coming down from New York and Jersey and Cleveland and other, other northern cities, leaving behind very nice, perfectly comfortable lives, Ivy League enrollments. And they sat down next to black people that they had never met and had no earthly reason to care about. And they rode down into Jackson, Mississippi, and Birmingham, Alabama, and all the rest, and they said, if you want to hurt them, you're going to have to hurt me too. And that's exactly what happened. You know, these are, these are real heroes, those, those freedom writers. You know, some of the great people in, in American history, those white freedom writers, those Jewish freedom writers, they, they get lost in the shuffle a little bit sometimes because you know, nobody wants to distract from something that should really be about the African-American heroes, which is fine. Um, you know, but those black writers, and, and again, I absolutely do not mean to diminish anything. I'm absolute heroes as well. But those black writers, they had a stake in this. Those young Jews taking off from college to put their lives on the line, they didn't need to go down there. I mean, we all had a stake in it, you know, as a country, as a people. I'm not trying to say they deserve any more credit than the black writers, but those young white people, mostly Jews who went down there, those are very, very special. Very, very brave people. I mentioned in that last episode that, you know, when the buses were attacked by mobs wielding bats, chains, boots, fire, you know, sometimes worse, the white freedom riders were singled out for special abuse. Well, those mobs were well aware that those white freedom riders were Jews. That's not the kind of thing that escaped people's attention back then. And so those young people got to see it firsthand. And to feel it. And to think about it while they laid in their hospital beds. Until they had to evacuate because the mobs came for them in the hospitals. And their parents, you know, the older, the older kind of left-wing generation that they were interacting with. You know, again, and this relates to the whole left-wing generational conflict I was talking about a minute ago. In a little bit different context. Because... A lot of their parents were those older socialists in those left-wing organizations. A lot of these kids were in groups like SDS. You, but, you know, their parents had been through a lot by this point. For a Jew who had fled the pogroms of the Russian Empire and toughed out the Great Depression, or had made it out of Europe before the Nazi volcano exploded, or, God forbid, had been in Europe during the war and managed to survive with their skin intact. You know, for those people, it was, it was, you know, it was really something to be able to raise their kids in peace in an American suburb, and after everything, to see them off to NYU or Columbia or the University of Chicago. And so when those kids came back on summer break saying, Mom, Dad, it's happening again, you know, you can, you can maybe understand the parents saying, Son, listen, I don't like it any more than you do. We're the ones that taught you, raised you not to like it. It's terrible. But trust me, I know what fascism is, 
and this America, this ain't fascism. And so the kids, uh, you know, shocked and, and dismayed and angry at, at the, you know, it wasn't apathy, but what they saw is kind of the apathy uh, of, the, of their older generation. They went their own way. And from there, the next leap was not as big as it might seem from far away. You know, once they learned to identify with the blacks and to see the sheriffs and civilian mobs as Nazis and obedient Germans, it did not take much to start seeing the Wehrmacht and SS in the U.S. Army and to see Operation Rolling Thunder in Vietnam as just an updated version of Auschwitz. It was a vision began to appear. A vision of all the organized violence in the world coming together into one one constellation of oppression and brutality. A vision of all the world's downtrodden, from African Americans to their distant African cousins, from all the peoples of Asia and Latin America struggling from under the legacy of colonialism, to the Jewish victims of Treblinka and Kishinev, all pressed down into the dirt by one giant system of exploitation. The very system from which these young Jews, they themselves were the beneficiaries. The system that bought off their parents' consciences with that house in the suburbs and was proposing to buy off their own with that nice college education. And so suddenly everything beautiful began to look ugly. And everything true started to look like a lie. And a shadow fell over the world right before their eyes. Paul Berman again, quote, The social optimism of the new left drew on visible realities of world history, and so too did the fear. New leftists from all over the world looked at the United States. They saw that America's ancient prejudices against blacks had come under challenge, But the spectacle of America trying to reform itself succeeded only in revealing how persistent were the ancient prejudices, and therefore how limited and false must be America's claim on democratic virtue. New leftists gazed at the Cuban Revolution and at America's attempt to overthrow it in the the invasion of the Bay of Pigs. Che Guevara had tried to stir up social revolution in South America, and everyone knew that the CIA tracked him down in Bolivia and killed him. New leftists gazed at Vietnam. The fighting there had the look of a colonial war in an extremely ugly version, a war no less racist under the Americans than under the French imperialists, except with a Madison Avenue smarminess, defense of the free world, and a terrifying industrial face. American bomber planes overhead and cone-hatted rice farmers down below made an unbearable spectacle, and the smarmy slogans, together with the old-fashioned race hatreds and technological ghastliness, All of this aroused a dread, finally, that pointed to the terrors of the past. It was a fear, in some, that in World War II, fascism, and more specifically Nazism, had not been defeated after all. A fear that Nazism, by mutating, had continued to thrive into the 1950s and 60s and onward, always in new disguises. It was a fear that Nazism had grown into a modern system of industrial rationality geared to irrational goals, a Nazism of racist superstitions committing the same massacres of the past 
a Nazism declaiming a language of democracy and freedom that had no more human content than the old-fashioned rhetoric of Lebensraum and Aryan superiority. And so, the new left, in its youthful anxiety, found its way to an old and mostly expired panic from its parents' generation, and they bent over it, and they fanned the dead embers and breathed on them and watched aghast as the dying flames leapt up anew. What was new leftism then? It was, it pictured itself as, Nazism's opposite and nemesis, the enemy of the real Nazism, the Nazism that had survived Nazism, the Nazism that was built into the foundations of Western life. End quote. Now it took some time for people to arrive at that place. They rode the buses. They listened to Dr. King. They marched against the war, but nothing seemed to make the slightest bit of difference. Things only seemed to be getting worse at an accelerating pace. By the time 1968 rolls around, it feels to a, a lot of people like the whole world is starting to shake beneath their feet. And now, I'm telling you, if you don't know a lot about the history, 1968 was just chaos. It's a fascinating period in American history. I've been reading about it for a long time now, and you can't get enough of it. It was just absolute chaos. Vietnam had spiraled completely out of control. The government had spent 1967 bombarding the American public with assurances that the Vietnamese communists were on their very last legs, that things were winding down. But right away, in the first month, of 1968, the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong launched this massive, coordinated, countrywide Tet Offensive. And think about this. Over the course of the entire Second Iraq War, the United States lost just over 4,400 soldiers. We lost over 4,000 men in the Tet Offensive by itself. You know, you, if you're old enough, you remember those dark, dark days, the darkest days of Iraq back in 06, 07. And you turn on the news and get casualty reports every day. You know, two more U.S. servicemen killed in Baghdad last night. Six U.S. soldiers killed by an IED outside Ramadi yesterday. In mid-February in Vietnam, we lost over 500 guys in one week. Another 2,500 wounded. All told in 1968. In 1968 alone, over 16,000 Americans would be killed in Vietnam. 87,000 wounded, over 100,000 casualties in one year in a filthy war whose moral and political support had completely collapsed. And it wasn't just what Vietnam was doing to our men. It was what our men were doing to Vietnam. A month and a half after Tet, a company of soldiers would kill and rape their way through over 500 unarmed civilian men, women, and children in this little hamlet called My Lai. I've got an episode about that. Young Americans were being dragged, kicking and screaming, under threat of federal prison and, and sent off into a steaming jungle that they wanted nothing to do with and told to kill a hardened, nasty enemy that melted in and out of the civilian population. And they were being told to do it for reasons that made no sense to any of them. In Vietnam, junior officers were being killed off at such a clip that the army was putting butter bars on anybody with a college degree by that point. 
and putting him in charge of enlisted men who had seen his predecessors come and go home in a body bag so often that they're just trying to survive their enlistment at this point. And so an officer who arrived with too much motivation to take it to the enemy and thereby putting his men in danger over some hill or piece of jungle that had already been taken and lost and retaken and lost several times before, that officer had a good chance of getting fragged by his own guys. And we were sending boys fresh out of high school or college, guys who hadn't voted or seen a naked woman yet, and they were coming back addicted to heroin, struggling to sleep through the nightmares of the mangled bodies they'd seen, bodies they'd mangled themselves. Tens of thousands of these of these boys, many of whom hadn't ever had a beer when they had shipped out, were coming back junkies. Your morale was not even in freefall anymore. It was it was it was it was splattered all over the jungle floor. And that's just Vietnam. That's just the backdrop for what's actually going on in the US itself. At risk of repeating myself, okay. And yes, I know it's become a running gag to make fun of how often I repeat myself, okay? I guess that tick is my version of Dan's Statue of Liberty in the Sand moment. But when, in my defense, when I loop back around on a theme, it's because I can't stop thinking about it as I'm putting these episodes together. And I really want to drive something home. So, you know, I really want to convey a sense of the accelerating pace of events in the 60s. For people who are politically engaged and following along, I mean, you could hardly get your head above water from the last massive wave before the next one crashed over you. 1960, the Cuban Revolution is resolving itself. Kennedy's elected. Americans are watching black Southerners being dragged away from lunch counters at the Greensboro sit-ins. 1961's the Bay of Pigs disaster and the Freedom Riders. 62's the Cuban Missile Crisis. 63, civil rights leader Medgar Evers is killed. Martin Luther King gives his I Have a Dream speech, but that speech is immediately followed up by a church bombing that murders several little black girls. There are daily reports of violence against Southern blacks, and in November, John F. Kennedy, one of the most beloved and popular presidents of all time, is assassinated in Dallas. 1964, there's more racial violence during the Freedom Summer. Lyndon Johnson passes the Civil Rights Act as he and Barry Goldwater going back and forth in the presidential campaign, both trying to convince their respective bases that the other is going to take the country to nuclear war. 1965 starts off with Malcolm X getting murdered. More Southern brutality during the Selma March and a whole new kind of racial violence in the Watts riots. And of course, the U.S. invades Vietnam. 1966, black power is born out of the march against fear. Martin Luther King's chased out of Marquette Park in, in, in Chicago. Race riots are occurring in several cities. 1967, the war goes into really goes into high gear. 100,000 hippies are camped out in Haight-Ashbury. You know, this is a different time. This is 50 years ago. You know, things were, you know, a lot of things that we kind of take as being passe values today. The country was very different in its values, and people were seeing. You know, these hippies in Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love dropping acid and having sex with strangers in public. Meanwhile, massive race riots are rocking dozens of cities. That was the year again in Detroit. Black gangs are sniping and getting into running gun battles with police and the National Guard. And the 82nd 101st Airborne had to be called in to quell it. The Black Panthers 
are on TV, you know, storming the California Capitol. They're out having shootouts with police. You open up a newspaper and you'll find Stokely Carmichael or Rat Brown or, or some other black radical talking about bringing full-scale urban warfare to white America. 1968, Vietnam goes pear-shaped. The government's just announcing the Tet Offensive has been contained when Martin Luther King is assassinated in Memphis and riots just burn out of control in well over a hundred cities. A few months later, Bobby Kennedy, JFK's little brother who's running on a, on, on a reform platform for the Democratic presidential nomination, he's killed just after winning the California primary. And after an establishment candidate is stuffed down the throats of the activist wing of the, of the Democrat Party, their protests at the Democrat National Convention are brutally pacified by the Chicago police. You know, there are a lot of drug-addicted, traumatized Vietnam soldiers coming home on leave that summer and seeing uniformed men like themselves beating the shit out of anti-war pre- protesters their own age for demanding that they be brought home and the war ended. And if you picked up an international newspaper, you'd see that America was just the tip of the iceberg. All over the world, the ground seemed to be quaking with revolution. At the Paris Commune, in Britain, the Netherlands, West Germany, Italy, in in Mexico and Central and South America, the, the Cultural Revolution was tearing China apart. The Soviet Union even had to put down a democratic rebellion in Czechoslovakia. It was just boom, 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 boom. And of course, in the U.S., there was that you know uh, unique dimension of the civil rights movement. You know, the last episode again traced that arc of that movement from the early days of nonviolence through all the assassinations and riots until by the end of the '60s with the murder of Dr. King and the rise of the Panthers. By that point, most you know, the, like among the young people, the most fashionable, you know, and kind of influential black activists, the people that everybody the young people looked to and took their cues from, they had embraced a very confrontational, violent, virulently anti-white and, and openly anti-American attitude. They'd also come to identify the struggle of black Americans with the fight of all non-white or non-Christian peoples around the world against this Christian European oppressor. This was the message of Malcolm X. This was the message of the Nation of Islam. It was the message of the Black Panthers. And they had gotten there by a somewhat different route than the white activists who were coming to that same conclusion that they were living in a fascist state with global reach. But after a decade of pain and chaos, those two trajectories intersected with one another and the results were going to be devastating. You know, Maroon from their elders in the Socialist parties, the young white activists, they, 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 were, they were looking for some kind of firm ground to stand on. You know, on whose behalf were they working? African-Americans, sure, but, but who specifically? Whose approval were they seeking once they'd cut their ties with the older socialists? Well, it ended up being the black radicals, especially the, the Black Panthers. They worshipped the Black Panthers. They saw Huey Newton as an American Che Guevara, and they, they saw the Panther soldiers as our version of the Tupamaros and the Italian Red Brigades. The central issue for the most important figures of the radical left in the U.S. in the late 60s and 70s was always race. 
the circumstances and the treatment of black Americans framed how they saw other issues around the world, whether it be apartheid in South Africa, uh, the rise of black nationalist movements in the Caribbean, and even Vietnam. One of the early leaders of the Weathermen, this group that would presently challenge progressive labor for leadership of the student left, uh, one of the early leaders, Howard Mochtinger, went, went further, saying in an interview, quote, We related to the war in a purely opportunistic way. And we were happy to draw in new members who were anti-war, but this was never about the war. End quote. In his book, Days of Rage, against the violent underground uh, of this period, Brian Burrow clears things up very forcefully on this issue. Quote, What the underground movement was truly about what it was always about was the plight of black Americans. Every single underground group of the 1970s, with the notable exception of the Puerto Rican FALN, was concerned first and foremost with the struggle of blacks against police brutality, racism, and government oppression. While late in the decade, several groups expanded their worldview to protest events in South Africa and Central America, the black cause remained the core motivation of almost every significant radical during the 1970s. And Burrow quotes Howard, Howard Mochtinger, Helping out the blacks, fighting alongside them, that was the whole kit and caboodle. That was all we were about. Race always comes first, says Elizabeth Fink, a radical attorney in Brooklyn who represented scores of underground figures. Everything started with the Black Panthers. The whole thrill of being with them. When you heard Huey Newton, you were blown away. The civil rights movement had turned bad, and these people were ready to fight. And yeah, the war. End quote. In his book, SDS, The Rise and Development of the Students for a Democratic Society, author Kirkpatrick Sale wrote, quote, Revolution? How would it come to that? It was a blend of many things. Bitterness, hatred, and alienation, hope, confidence and conviction, energy, passion, and need. It was the pattern woven by all the threads of the 60s, the inevitable product of the awakened generation as it probed deeper and deeper into the character of its nation. There was a primary sense, begun by no more than a reading of the morning papers and developed through the new perspectives and new analyses available to the movement now, that the evils in America were the evils of America, inextricably part of the total system. Clearly, something drastic would be necessary to eradicate those evils and later that system. Various reforms had been tried. Confrontation had been tried. There had been civil rights agitation, university pressures, anti-war marches, doorbell ringing, electoral actions, student power, draft resistance, demonstrations, campus uprisings, and even tentative political violence, all to little avail. Worse, those who wanted peaceable change who tried to work through approved channels, seemed to be systematically ignored, ostracized, or, as with the Kennedys and King, eliminated. More was necessary. And in the words of one SDS leader, what it came to that year, 1968, was that people came to the conclusion that the only way to stop the war was to make a revolution. And the only way to stop racism was to make a revolution. The monster... That was the recurrent phrase now. Could not be altered, deviated, halted. It had to be destroyed. End quote. Elizabeth Fink, that 
radical attorney that Burrow quoted a moment ago, she puts a point on it. Quote, The country was turning into Nazi Germany. That's how we saw it. Do you have the guts to stand up? The underground did. And oh, the glamour of it. The glamour of dealing with the underground. They were my heroes. Stupid me. It was the revolution, baby. We were going to make a revolution. End quote. Brian Burrow quotes another member of the underground, the weather underground. Quote, We actually believed there was going to be a revolution. We believed the world was undergoing a massive transformation. We believed third world countries would rise up and cause crises that would bring down the industrialized West. And we believed it was going to happen tomorrow. Or maybe the day after tomorrow, like 1976. We really thought that was going to happen. I know I did. End quote. So what do you do if you are a young leftist in the 1960s who takes that red pill and realizes that you've been living in the matrix, the fascist matrix? How do you fight it? That old uh, 1984-inspired Apple commercial, the famous one where the person runs up and throws a sledgehammer through the Big Brother screen, that commercial is sort of a 30-second expression of the basic fantasy of all these type of people, right? The fantasy is that you can do something, make the right speech at the right moment, or or blow up the perfect regime symbol on, on, on the right phony national holiday, or you know maybe you once you're caught, you can meet the gallows with such unprecedented dignity and, and consciousness of your sacrifice, and suddenly it just shatters the whole illusion for at least a critical mass of people who sort of turn and look at each other, you know, shaking out the cobwebs like, what happened? Did we fall asleep? And then everything changes, right? That's how we write all of these movies. But more often than not, I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, it does not work that way. More often, the person running in to smash Big Brother is tackled by security when entering the building. Or if they get in and manage to hurl the sledgehammer at the screen and ruin the event, then they get tackled and hauled off to jail for destruction of property. And instead of waking up to the great illusion, the people who are watching the screen just get angry at you, and they go home to their wives, like, hey, honey, what's for dinner? You know, you never believe what happened today. We were at the weekly meeting, and out of nowhere, some goddamn hippie runs in and throws a hammer at the TV screen. No, like a big-ass sledgehammer. I'm telling you, smash the screen. There was glass everywhere. we got to go to our meetings in conference room B until it's fixed. Huh? Oh, I wasn't paying attention. You know, you know fascism, oppression, we're all living in a giant totalitarian lie. You know, the usual stuff. I'm telling you, this is exactly why I voted for Nixon. That's what happens. I mean, this is something like what happens more often in real life. Uh, you know, you end up on a viral internet video saying, Don't tase me, bro. And so what do you do? How do you fight back? Well, the weathermen had their answer. The PL robots, progressive labor robots, they, they were politically radical, but this new bash was wild in a whole new kind of way. And this was their moment. Burrow, quote, By one count, incidents of bombings and arson on campuses had increased to 41 in the fall of 68, a 300% rise from the spring. ROTC facilities burned in Delaware, Texas, Berkeley, and Oregon, and at Washington University in St. Louis, where an SDSer was convicted of arson. Campus buildings were bombed at Georgetown, the University of Michigan, New York University, and four California colleges. When the ROTC building at the University of Washington burned, 
Students dance by the light of the flames, chanting, This is number one, and the fun has just begun. Burn it down, burn it down, burn it down. For the first time, underground newspapers began publishing instructions on the making of Molotov cocktails. Homemade bombing manuals began circulating at SDS meetings and rock concerts. A rash of bombings occurred in Detroit that winter. Small devices exploded five times outside the city halls in Oakland and San Francisco. End quote. Armed students occupied buildings at Columbia University in April of 68 in protest of the school's involvement with some DOD research projects. They destroyed college records and held hostages while turning the event into a kind of celebration of their insubordination, making themselves famous and raising defiance of authority to the status that it still enjoys today as kind of a hallmark of youth culture. One SDS leader during the Columbia occupation, Mark Rudd, he made the cover of Newsweek, striking a pose, you know, with one fist raised in the air and the other holding a bullhorn in front of his face. The radical circle of SDSers that would become the Weathermen hold up during the winter of 68-69 to plot their move against progressive labor. At the center of that circle were a very sexually charismatic young woman named Bernadine Dorn and her boyfriend, John Jacobs, a drug-addicted political maniac with apocalyptic predictions about the immediate future. And they're in there chowing down on amphetamines when they write the famous Weatherman paper, John Jacobs punching it out on a kitchen typewriter and passing finished pages around to the rest of the group to review them as he, as he finishes and, and, and edit them. And when it was done, they all signed their names to what Brian Burrow called this impenetrable blizzard of Marxist jargon, and then they released it out into the world. Quote, A crystallization of all Jacobs' pet ideas, the paper didn't just draw parallels between American student protests and the Third World guerrilla campaigns sprouting up around the world. It judged them all part and parcel of a single, titanic, global struggle between oppressed minorities and the agencies of U.S. imperialism. In other words, Mark Rudd hadn't just acted like Che at Columbia. He was, in fact, Che's comrade-in-arms. But the genius of the argument was that it allowed white radicals to portray themselves as allies of those oppressed minorities by rallying behind the one group whose leaders, from Martin Luther King to Huey Newton, they adored even more than Che Guevara, American blacks. I think in our hearts what we all wanted to be, former SDS leader Kathy Wilkerson recalls, was a Black Panther. John Brown, live like him, became their rallying cry. What this meant in reality was, like most protest-era rhetoric, open to interpretation. In the minds of apocalyptic radicals like Jacobs, white American protesters were destined to become Che-style guerrillas in the streets of America, rallying blacks and the white working class to a bloody revolution. For Jacobs and his allies, talk of violence was no longer abstract. They wanted to bomb buildings and kill the policemen who were murdering blacks in the ghettos. End quote. And so the Weathermen made their move in June 1969 at the SDS convention in Chicago that year. 2,000 people piled into the Chicago Coliseum, anticipating the coming showdown between progressive labor and the revolutionary youth movement of which the Weathermen were a contingent. Burrow describes the basic difference between PL and their rivals by saying that PL adopted a Maoist policy of focusing on workers while the Weathermen put its emphasis on 
the oppressed, especially blacks. That's an oversimplification that drowns out how culturally different the two were, but it does accurately depict the showdown between an old left emphasis on doctrinaire Marxism, worker solidarity, economics, you know, and the, and the new left focus on race, gender, sex, and other cultural issues, although at this point it's mostly race. Those other things will come over the next year, two, or three. Burrow writes, quote, The convention's first two days were consumed with the trappings of the student leftist uh, gatherings. Angry speeches, PL chants against RYM, RYM chants against PL, even fistfights. The turning point came Friday night, when a delegate from the Black Panthers took the microphone that condemned PL as counter-revolutionary traitors, who, if their ideological positions did not change, would be dealt with as such. It amounted as an ultimatum from the Panthers, whose approval every SDS leader sought like lost gold. Dump PL or else. PLers tried to drown out the Panthers, chanting, Read Mao! and Bullshit! When RYM supporters chanted the Panther slogan, Power to the people! PLers shouted back, Power to the workers! Fistfights broke out. On stage, Mark Rudd called for a recess. As he finished, Dorn rushed to the rostrum, eyes ablaze, and shouted that it was time to decide whether they could remain in the same organization as those who denied human rights to the oppressed. Anyone who agreed, she announced, should, should follow her. And with that, Dorn and the leadership marched into an adjacent arena to decide what to do next. The RYM caucus and its allies, maybe 600 people, talked there for three hours, then resumed discussions Saturday morning. The debates lasted all day. Finally, Dorn, pacing between a set of bleachers, delivered a slow, deliberate speech that detailed the case for expelling PL from SDS. We are not a caucus, she concluded. We are SDS. And with that, a vote was taken. By a five-to-one margin, PL was expelled. The leadership, led by Dorn and Bill Ayers, then drafted a statement listing the reasons why. Around 11, everyone filed back into the main hall, and Dorn strode to the rostrum. For 20 minutes, she laid out every PL sin, real and imagined, terming the group reactionary, anti-communist, and objectively racist. When she announced the PL's expulsion, chaos ensued. PLers chanted, Shame! Shame! Dorn led the RYM caucus out of the auditorium, leading their own chants, Power to the people! And Ho! Ho! Ho Chi Minh! By Sunday, confusion reigned. The PLers, refusing to acknowledge their expulsion, elected their own SDS leadership. At a church across town, the RYM caucus elected theirs, all prominent weathermen. By Monday morning, there were, in effect, two functioning SDSs, but everyone understood that weathermen had carried the day, in large part because its members had taken possession of the national office in the days before the convention. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Weathermen possessed the national office, and so it possessed SDS. But in name only, the weathermen who took control of SDS that summer envisioned an SDS unlike any protest group before or since. Gone was the idea of a national office as a shaggy bureaucracy to guide SDS's far-flung chapters. In its place, the weathermen became, in effect, an uber-chapter of their own, one dedicated to the leadership's twin goals. The first was fanning out across the country to recruit members of the working class. The second was melding recruits with existing weathermen for a massive protest march planned for October in which the new, far larger group would make its political debut, 
storming the streets of Chicago in an all-out attack on the police and symbols of government authority. They billed it as the National Action, but in time it would become known as the Days of Rage. End quote. So soon after taking control of SDS, Bernadine Dorn leads a contingent of activists on a visit to Cuba, where they were featured on magazine covers and introduced to figures from the international revolutionary left. A North Vietnamese delegation that was there at the time gave the weathermen members who, who, who had come to Cuba rings forged out of metal from downed U.S. aircraft and encouraged them in ways that they could start a Viet Cong-style underground militia in the United States. Back in the U.S., weathermen sent out 200 or so activists to rally and recruit working-class followers. They sent them out to Seattle, Columbus, New York, Denver, Detroit, you name it. So imagine a bunch of wealthy Ivy League Jewish kids showing up to a truck stop or mechanic, you know, mechanics garage in middle America somewhere spouting Marxist jargon and denouncing the U.S. as an imperialist aggressor. That's what they did, and it went exactly as well as you would expect. Mark Rudd tried it on a group of working-class teenagers in Milwaukee, and they beat the hell out of him and put him in the hospital. And so the weathermen invaded high schools and community colleges. They'd run through the halls shouting slogans and encouraging students to join the coming days of rage. They took over classrooms, mow-mowing the teachers and professors and forcing them out of the class, you know, locking the doors so that they could lecture these confused students on the horrors of American racism and imperialism. At a high school invasion in Pittsburgh, they threw leaflets like confetti and waved a North Vietnamese flag. And when that didn't work, the adult weathermen started lifting their skirts and flashing their breasts at the high school boys just to keep their attention. They led marches and sought out conflict with the cops. They would attack police, throwing bottles and rocks at them. They brawled with members of the Progressive Labor Party. As that summer of 69 ramped up, Again, this is the summer of Woodstock. As that summer ramped up, weathermen morale was very high, but their attempt to recruit working-class people had been a complete bust, of course. Several members other than Mark Rudd, uh, Mark Rudd had been chased off or physically assaulted by the oppressed working-class victims they were you know, supposed to be saving. Now, Rudd, Mark Rudd had rode his Newsweek cover in his leadership role at Columbia the previous year into a kind of a default leadership position with, with the weathermen. But as things got hot, it became clear that he was not up to that job. And so he, he, he kind of tried to, he had to engage in a lot of pretty transparent posing to prove himself. At an event in the fall of 69, a month before the days of rage, Mark Rudd took the stage and he challenged the crowd, just a lot of overcompensating. He said, I've got myself a gun. Has anyone here got a gun? Anyone? No? Well, you better fucking get your shit together. And so a non-weatherman member of SDS, he's like, I've heard enough of this. And he jumps up on the stage. And Mark Rudd tries to back him down. Like He, he takes a few t- steps toward him. But the guy just runs forward and slams him into the podium. And Rudd just kind of shrugs and slumps off to one side of the stage to make way. And that was the end of him. Describing that incident, Kirkpatrick Sale wrote in his history of SDS... Rudd's face was a picture of stunned fear, all his rhetoric having done nothing to overcome his ingrained middle-class unfamiliarity with and anxiety about violence. See, the weathermen, like 
so many of the white radical groups that came out of the universities, they were insecure about their privileged origins, and they really needed to borrow legitimacy from the oppressed groups that they were trying to represent. They didn't have the moral authority to bless themselves. They needed the approval of the working class, or the black activists, preferably. You see, rejection by working class whites was something they could deal with. Almost all the Weatherman leaders, again, were from wealthy Jewish families. And so to some degree, as far as their own self-understanding and sense of identity, you know, they were in white America, but not 100% of it. There was a certain level of sort of rhetorical distance that they could take from it. It wasn't that long ago that their parents or grandparents had had to deal with quotas at some of the same universities that they were now attending. So, you know, it's kind of easy not to, it's kind of easy to feel a little bit of distance. When they found white workers often unresponsive or hostile to their politics, it was a pretty smooth transition from the paternalism that they were proposing to a kind of contempt. Most of these people hadn't spent much time around actual working class people ever in their lives, and when they tried to, they often didn't like what they found. It turned out that plumbers and bricklayers and their families tended to be patriotic Americans. You know, they went to church, they didn't root for the North Vietnamese to win the war, and they didn't like communism, and they were wary of pushing the outer frontiers of the gender and sexual revolutions. When Black Panthers got into bloody shootouts with the police, you know, these white working class Americans tended to support the police. You know, after all, these were the people who voted Nixon into office, right? They were the cops patrolling black neighborhoods and guarding southern jails. They were the baby killers of Vietnam. America couldn't be Nazi Germany without obedient Nazi Germans, and that was the relationship that they started to take to a lot of the working class. Their relationship to the black radicals was more difficult to process. If the white radicals spent much time with the Panthers, they'd have found some cultural gaps pretty difficult for their Ivy League sensibilities to overcome as well, but you know the Panthers tended to keep the white radicals at arm's length most of the time. The relative lack of close contact allowed the Panthers to remain kind of exotic and mysterious. But they couldn't, they couldn't ignore the fact or avoid realizing and admitting the fact that the Panthers just did not take the white activists seriously at all. You know, they thought they were soft, and that just drove the weathermen crazy. You know, but they were soft. I mean, you have to remember, the Panthers are not a student movement. There were plenty of black students who were Panthers, but the soul of the organization was forged on the street. And they were risking their lives because their lives were already at risk. Not because they were uncomfortable with their upper middle class privilege and looking for a little adventure. The SDS National Office was set up in Chicago, located on purpose a few blocks down from the Panthers' offices. One SDS member who worked there at the time remembered, The office was a terrifying place. The presence of the cops was constant, sitting outside, following us to the bank. We were under siege by this group of black boys, 10, 11 years old. They would come up the fire escapes, race through, and steal people's purses. It was absurd. Eventually, we boarded up all the windows to keep the kids out, put deadbolts on all the doors, and built a metal cage like an airlock to get in. None of it helped. End quote. The disrespect that they got was even worse from the adult Panthers. Burrow writes, quote, The leadership never published the danger coming from the Panthers themselves. If SDS was a focus of some police harassment, the Chicago Panthers were approaching open war with the police. 
Their derelict offices were regularly raided. Their members stopped and frisked on an hourly basis. The weathermen idolized the Panthers, but the relationship fast deteriorated. And now quoting one of the weathermen, The Panthers were in a state of total madness. As those months went on, as they became more paranoid and more crazy, they kind of took it out on us. To them, our offices were much bigger, much nicer than theirs. We had lots of equipment and cars and the printing press. It rapidly developed into this rip-off relationship. That was emotionally horrible. You couldn't dare question it politically. It was completely insane. And now back to Burrow. Tensions climaxed when a group of Panthers stormed the SDS office, jammed a gun into into a girl's face, beat up the SDS printer, Ron Flegelman, and ransacked the office, making off with typewriters and other equipment. Afterward, when several weathermen went to the Panthers' offices to complain, Lerner recalls, we were basically kicked down the stairs. End quote. And so, the white weathermen felt a constant need to prove themselves, to prove that they were down for the cause, and, that they, and it led them to overcompensate. You know, each one trying to out-radical the person next to him, and you got this left-wing extremist purity spiral that every member had the power to escalate and no one had the authority to stop. So by the time October comes, the weathermen are just all keyed up and ready for the days of rage. Leaders are giving interviews to papers around the country predicting the largest and most violent protests in American history. Mark Rudd told a TV station that thousands and thousands were on their way to Chicago to fight back, to fight the government, to fight their agents, to fight the police. Weatherman leader Bill Ayers said, uh, we're not urging anybody to bring guns to Chicago. We're not urging anybody to shoot from a crowd. But we're also going to make it clear that when a pig gets iced, that's a good thing. And that everyone who considers himself a revolutionary should be armed, should own a gun. And so as a prelude, to the apocalyptic demonstration plan for the Days of Rage, the weathermen lit off a small bomb that destroyed a 10-foot bronze statue of a policeman in Haymarket Square, which was the site of a labor rally and anarchist bomb attack, which ended the lives of 11 people, including seven cops back in the 1800s. When October 8th arrived, they were disappointed. Only about 200 people showed up, almost all of them existing veterans of the weather underground. No one knew. But the ones who came, they were ready for action. They, they wore helmets and goggles and gas masks. You know, they carried pipes, chains, other weapons, and, and their emergency contact information. A few people gave some speeches, and with the battle cry, I am Marion Delgado. Marion Delgado was a five-year-old boy in California. Uh, In 1947, he had placed a concrete block on some train tracks to derail a train. And with that, they they ran from Lincoln Park into the wealthy neighborhood known as Gold Coast, and they began the attack. Burrow writes, chanting, Ho, 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 Chi Minh, they tossed bricks through the bay windows of chandeliered apartment houses and bashed the windshields of dozens of cars. Racing toward downtown, they smashed more windows at the Astor Tower Hotel, at the Park Dearborn Hotel and the Lakeshore Apartments. High above, a few irked residents threw ashtrays and flower pots at them. The police, dozens of whom had been lining Lincoln Park, were caught off guard. They had assumed that the demonstration would take place inside the park. 
Scrambling to stop the surging protesters, police managed to erect a roadblock in front of the Drake Hotel. Seeing it, the charging weathermen veered a block east, then ran south into another roadblock, this one manned by 30 helmeted police officers. A melee ensued. 30 protesters were beaten to the pavement. Others broke through and split into two groups, which the police ran down, truncheons swinging, gunshots fired. Six weathermen were shot, none seriously. Dozens were hauled off to jail. By midnight, it was over. End quote. So it took three days to bail everyone out of jail and reassemble their forces. This time, they marched downtown, fists in the air as they hurled insults at the police lining the street. And at a certain point, one of the protest leaders gave a signal and they attacked the police again, breaking into a run, smashing car windshields and throwing rocks. And the cops had had enough. They were waiting for him this time. Burrow, quote, They never had a chance. This time, uniformed officers, augmented by plainclothes detectives, appeared at every corner, mercilessly beating everyone with long hair until they fell bloodied into the gutters. More than 120 people out of the 200 total were arrested. This time, someone was seriously hurt. A city attorney named Richard Elrod, who charged at a weatherman named Brian Flanagan, lost his balance and hit his head, leaving him paralyzed from the neck down. End quote. Well, this was a humiliating defeat for the weathermen. You know, this was the big event that they'd been hyping ever since they'd taken over SDS in May. But after spending the whole summer getting punked by the Black Panthers and chased off by working-class high schoolers and excommunicating SDS members who thought that the Days of Rage was a terrible idea and refused to go along, in the end, hardly anybody showed up, and those who did got their asses handed to them while the police picked up a PR victory. All of the leadership was arrested and charged. Bail bonds cost over $2.3 million, and so the weathermen raided the SDS treasury to pay them off. Well, the response of the leadership was to double down. Their next publication announced, quote, We came to Chicago to join the other side, to do material damage to pig America and all that it's about, to do it in the road, in the open, so that white America could dig on the opening of a new front, to attack, to vamp on those privileges and destroy the motherfucker from the inside. We did what we set out to do, and in the process, turned a corner. And in all caps, from here on, it's one battle after another, with white youth joining in the fight and taking the necessary risks. Pig America, beware. There's an army growing in your guts, and it's going to bring you down. End quote. So within days, the leadership gets together at a pair of cabins in northern Illinois to do a kind of post-game debrief. Mark Rudd remembers Bernadine Dorn saying, We've learned from Che that the only way to make revolution is to actually begin armed struggle. This is what we've been waiting for. The next step after the national action is to move to a higher level of struggle, to build the underground. Street violence is an unsustainable tactic. It makes us too vulnerable and costs too much. We've got to be able to work clandestinely. John Jacobs, Dorn's boyfriend, and her and a few others made the decision for the rest of the group. The weathermen were going to go underground. They were going to assume fake identities and live on the lam while they carried out guerrilla warfare against the United States government. That winter, they called for a gathering at a hall in Flint, Michigan. 
Burrow writes, quote, Billed as the National War Council, or Wargasm, it was the pep rally from hell, a five-day orgy of violent rhetoric intended to set the stage for the underground revolution the leadership was now ready to begin. The Detroit Collective had handled the decorations, hanging large psychedelic portraits of Castro, Che, Ho Chi Minh, Mao, Malcolm X, and Eldridge Cleaver. One wall was lined with posters of the fallen Fred Hampton. Above the stage, they had hung their centerpiece, a six-foot cardboard machine gun. Four hundred weathermen and friends attended, all watched closely by local police who patrolled the parking lots. The days were filled with calisthenics, karate classes, workshops, evenings with weatherman songs written by a popular Columbia SDSer named Ted Gold and others. I'm dreaming of a white riot, just like the one October 8th. Increasing violent speeches, frenetic dancing, and copious amounts of illegal drugs. Every speaker tried to top the one before. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to hit a pig, Rudd found himself telling the crowd. It must be a really wonderful thing to kill a pig or blow up a building. John Jacobs hit the high notes. We're against everything that's good and decent in honky America, he declared. We will burn and loot and destroy. We are the incubation of your mother's nightmare. But it was Dorn's speech that people would talk about for years to come. For once, she shed her cool facade and screamed for the crowd to avenge the murder of Fred Hampton by bringing violence and chaos, writ large or small, to white America. She told a story of an airline flight where she claimed she and Jacobs had run down the aisles stealing food from the other passengers' trays. That's what we're about, she shouted, being crazy motherfuckers and scaring the shit out of honky America. She climaxed by heaping praise on the wild-eyed Charles Manson for his cult's murders, including that of Sharon Tate and Tate's unborn baby. Dig it, she famously cried. First they killed those pigs, then they ate dinner in the same room with them. They even shoved a fork into the victim's stomach. Wild! Soon everyone in the hall was raising their hands in four-finger salutes, signifying the fork shoved into the pregnant Sharon Tate's belly. In one gathering... They debated whether killing a white baby was a properly revolutionary act. Most nights, many of the delegates repaired to the, to the nave of a nearby Catholic church for marathon bouts of group sex. Behind closed doors, the leadership was finalizing a battle plan. On New Year's Day 1970, as the last of the attendees rubbed their eyes at the dawn of a new decade, only one thing seemed certain. The weathermen were going to war. End quote. So the course set. The weathermen begin purging all but the most reliable, obedient soldiers from SDS. One of the signers of the original weatherman paper, Jim Mellon, was watching the Super Bowl with John Jacobs, Bernadine Dorn, and Bill Ayers when Jacobs casually stated that anyone who attempted to leave the group after this, well, they would have to be considered a traitor and be killed. Mellon got up and left the house at halftime, and he never came back. By February... There were only about 150 weathermen left, but they were hardcore, and they were ready for action, and without fanfare, they slipped off the grid. As a final act, they shut down Students for a Democratic Society completely, ending the organization's 65-year existence, and then they went underground themselves. And these LARPing Bolsheviks started making plans to go storm the Winter Palace. 
the irony of the loud and angry death of the organized student left at the hands of these would-be revolutionaries is that they killed it at a time when there was still there, there, there were still plenty of young people who were fired up and ready to put their energy into action. It wasn't like the student left was kind of fizzling out when this happened. In 1970, during a protest at Yale, several thousand people gathered in support of the Black Panthers. Tom Hayden, an early SDSer who played a big role in putting together the Port Huron Statement, he stands in front of the crowd and calls for a nationwide student uprising, and in a short time, there are protests taking place at thirteen, more than 1,300 colleges across the country. 500 of them had to be shut down completely, and the rest of the academic year had to be canceled at several dozen. Over 10,000, in this one instance, over 10,000 young men of draft age tore up their cards. At more than 100 schools, police and National Guardsmen were called out to suppress the students. One of them was Kent State, where the confrontation escalated until the guard opened fire, and when the smoke cleared, four students were dead of bullet wounds. Two more were shot to death at Jackson State. More were wounded in Buffalo, at SUNY Buffalo. Altogether across the country, more than four million people took part in these demonstrations. Those are serious numbers. After SDS is gone, at a time when Many people think of the glory days of the student left as having been in the rearview mirror. You know, but these numbers, the numbers don't mean jack if you're not organized. Experts in counterinsurgency know this very well. You know, the FBI understood it very well, that's for sure. The problem the student left had by now was not that they lacked numbers or energy or commitment. They lacked leadership. They lacked organization and direction. All the institutions that had existed for the purpose of structuring and channeling their energy had been subverted and destroyed by a few small groups whose ideas never commanded majority popularity at any point, even as they had kicked in the door of headquarters and seized control of the national offices. The vast, vast majority of the student left, and I'm using that phrase to refer to the left-wing younger people. You know, Some of them are out of college by this point, but they're still kind of part of the movement, the vast majority are not radical communists. You know, they were anti-war, anti-racist, democratic socialists at, at the most. Most of them weren't even that. At the end of the day, most of them were just liberals. But no matter how many of them there were, if, if you're not organized, you're not going to get anything done. You know, I, I should make clear, too, I, I talked about I, start, I started off with the narrative talking about you know, how a lot of young Jews were the first ones to kind of come to this worldview that led you know, these, the Weathermen, which were a bunch of radical you know, Jewish, Jewish activists, down this road that they went on. Just as it was true that the vast majority of the student left did not embrace anything like that kind of ideology, 100% true of you know, even the most left-wing Jewish activists as well. You know, this is a very tiny contingent that you know, again, just like the older socialists had predicted, we're going to come in here and subvert these organizations and, and tear them apart. It's a very tiny minority of these people. And again, you know, it, no matter how many the, the, the how, how many of the liberals and democratic socialists there are, if you're not organized, forget about it. Think of the protests during the lead up to the Iraq war. Over 30 million people in 800 cities hit the streets between January and March of 2003. 
30 million people in 800 cities in, in like two months, in like three months. February 15th, 2003, had what was probably the largest protest in world history, literally, between 6 and 10 million people in 60 countries. A New York Times writer commented that the demonstration showed that there were two superpowers in the world, the United States and worldwide public opinion. But, you know, that's not true. It's okay, 6 to 10 million people, 60 countries, so what? What difference did they make? We went to war. Flash mobs are not going to accomplish anything. You know, they can create chaos, but they can't create change. I mean, in fact, all they can do is open up cracks in the status quo for actual disciplined cadres who are organized to squeeze in and push their own agendas. Just like we saw during the Arab Spring in 2011. It's a perfect example. The number of people who hit the streets demanding reforms from their oppressive governments in the Arab Spring... They outnumbered the ones looking to use the opportunity to impose Islamist rule by a long shot, by most accounts. But in most places, it was the Muslim Brotherhood that were the only ones who were actually prepared for the moment, actually prepared to take advantage of it. And so that's where the activist left is by this point. Numerous, energetic, completely disorganized, and completely lacking in coherent leadership. The civil rights movement had been displaced by the black power movement. The socialist organizations of the old left had been subverted and destroyed by radicals like PL and the Weathermen. Public sympathy, to the extent it had existed before, had evaporated. And the authorities just came in, you know, the, the, the police, the FBI came in and tore the new left apart. Easy pickings. Celebrity activists from a year or two ago, like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, you know, they were on the speaking circuit hawking new age consumer fads and exotic massage techniques and telling people that politics was a dead end. Which was fine for a lot of people, you know, uh, who were using the movement therapeutically anyway, as a way to find themselves and create an identity. But, you know, it had nothing at all to say to the millions of black people who were still suffering through daily life in these burned-out inner cities, most of which now were infinitely worse than they had ever been thanks to the riots. You know, So well-intentioned left-wing people who just wanted to voice their opposition to the war or, or, or their support for black rights, they looked around, and what did they see? They saw a whole lot of nothing. I'll come back to Berman. Quote, To undo the organizational shambles that had been caused by Maoism and the weather underground, to reassemble a membership organization with any kind of national following among the young, that was impossible. It was because the madness in SDS, and by then in a wide swath of the left, was much too strongly rooted to allow for any other outcome. The new left had been founded by students who felt a revulsion for the softness of their own student life. And the guerrilla leap at the end of the decade was made by students who felt a revulsion for the softness of their own revolt against student softness. Guerrilla leftism was in that respect merely new leftism intensified. It was hardness, hardened. In the circles of SDS, even the people who knew quite clearly that guerrilla war was insanity, they tended to feel that a few basic particles of the guerrilla motivation remained admirable, in spite of everything, which was an attitude that undid any possibility of arguing effectively for a more intelligent position. There was 
some of the arguments that did prove effective were merely variants of the cult of the hard. There was the variant of crime. Around the edges of the guerrilla movement in New York, Cambridge, Berkeley, and a few other places, where the Weather Underground or one of the other Red Armies enjoyed some student support, a culture of criminal leftism, to call it that, grew up. Mostly it was based on a network of marijuana concessioners with a halo of utopianism above their long hair, who could feel that crime was in the eye of the beholder, yet beyond the marijuana dealers lay a penumbra of bank frauds and shoplifting and the inevitable diversifications into cocaine and beyond. Criminal leftism was a desperate idea, but compared to guerrilla war, it was, in a certain fashion, a model of realism, and it attracted no small number of people. It had a literary side. Abby Hoffman's Steal This Book was the light classic of the movement. The heavy classics were by the prison authors from the Black Panther Party, Eldridge Cleaver and George Jackson. And just as the books were light and heavy, the crimes, too, were light and heavy. And among the Panthers in California and New York, and perhaps among a few other people, too, there were rackets and rubouts and murderous purges, all of them conducted under a haze of sinister-sounding slogans. The fist salute and power to the people took on creepy overtones to anyone who knew what was going on. The other alternative was ascetic Leninism in a non-guerrilla version, which drew on the same revulsion for the softness of the student world. Several thousand people went in that direction, though nothing in their own impulses or in the atmosphere of the moment obliged them to coordinate their many efforts. And so the 1970s became the golden age of micro-parties. There were Maoist sects, not only progressive labor, but also the Revolutionary Union, the October League, the Communist Labor Party, Workers' Viewpoint, and some others too. There were the Trotskyist sects, the socialist workers, which dominated one wing of the national peace movement, the workers' world, with its youth against the war and fascism, strong in Buffalo, the Workers' League, the Independent Socialists, the Spartacist League, plus the truly small Trotskyist groups. There was talent in those parties, which would have produced a powerful movement if only the many militants could have figured out what to do. But as Lenin and McCartney took the occasion to observe... If you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. As was true of Trotsky, too. The Communist Party enjoyed a bit of a revival itself. The Communists established some influence over the West Coast Black Panthers, which might have led to big results if only the Panthers hadn't been so intent on killing one another. Angela Davis made loyalty to the party of Comrade Brezhnev seem, well, not exactly fashionable, but not unfashionable either. And between the guerrillas, the dope dealers, the criminals, and the Leninists, what chance was there, really, to reassemble any kind of normal organization? All kinds of people made the effort far more than ever flirted with the hard alternatives. A trickle of decent souls slowly wended their way back to Michael Harrington into what eventually became the Democratic Socialists of America in an effort to pick up the old severed thread of the Democratic left. Some of the community organizing enterprises managed, managed to thrive, usually by putting away their left-wing posters and slogans. There were the academic radicals, who had a lot of success in the humanities departments and a few other places, and there were the journalists of the weekly radical press, which flourished in cities around the country. But there was nothing to bring those different people together, and beyond the guerrillas, the outlaws, the Leninists, the democratic socialists, the level-headed organizers, the academics and the weekly scribblers, the vast majority of people who had once felt a loyalty to the world that they had come out of with SDS and its fraternal organizations simply slipped away. 
They took up tomato farming or Buddhism or the I Ching, or they threw themselves into political causes of a different sort, something post-New Left. Nothing remained but ashes and embers and several million people in a daze. End quote. I would add one more thing to the list he provided. A lot of those dazed and confused people, especially out on the West Coast, ended up in cults. A woman named Laura Cole had been a student activist in New York during the 68th student occupation at Columbia. She had opened up her house to Black Panthers who had come to take part in the action. She was hardcore, you know, but she was very disappointed and alienated by the experience. The Panthers were willing to accept help from white allies like her, but if she was looking for gratitude and validation from them, and she was, she wasn't going to get it. The Panthers at this point... They were very suspicious, even of white people who were trying to help them by this point. They saw right through people like her. They resented how, you know, they could show up calling for violent revolution and acting all down for the cause one day and, you know, then leaving for the weekend for a vacation at their parents' lakeside cabin in the mountains the next day. The Panthers could do with or without their white allies as far as they were concerned. And if it wasn't for the money and connections that the white activists would bring... They'd have rather done without them. But the white activists really needed the Black Panthers to, and, and the other black activists to validate their existence. It was a very one-sided relationship, and by this point it had gone sour. So shortly after the action at Columbia, Laura Cole moved to the Bay Area, and she found her way into the local scene, and before long, someone told her about a radical integrationist preacher giving a talk nearby, and one thing led to another, and Laura Cole was a member of Jim Jones' People's Temple. Others found their way into the temple for related but different reasons. Berman said that when the new left collapsed, millions of people were left wandering around in a daze, and he doesn't just mean figuratively. The drug scene had exploded onto a population in America that really had not been prepared for it. It really was nothing like that before in, in, in American history. A lot of very naive young people found themselves in a scene full of people who were not naive at all, many of whom were unscrupulous, dangerous, or just plain crazy. You know, a few years of sleeping in parks, doing drugs, that will do a number on you. Women, obviously, were especially vulnerable. The story of Jenny and Forrest Gump, it portrays it pretty well, but... You know, that was not a unique story. What, what women were going through during those years in the movement is not something that's really gotten a whole lot of attention in the mainstream narrative. You know, everyone is going around preaching free love, but of course, of course, there's an asymmetry between men and women in a situation like that. And in practice, it often amounted to nothing more than men being able to sleep with any woman they wanted to. The Weather Underground had something they called the Smash Monogamy Program. It required all members who were in a romantic relationship to break them off in the name of putting aside selfish attachments, in the name of group solidarity, etc., etc. Well, that program also included mandatory orgies. The first one took place during a visit of weather leadership in Columbus, Ohio. One weatherman, Gary Long, was there, and he, he describes it, quote, We were doing booze, dope, and dancing, and suddenly, you could see the wheels spinning in people's minds. Will it happen? When? How to get started? We knew it wouldn't happen of its own accord. Somebody had to do something about it. 
We were constantly talking about asserting leadership in ambiguous situations, and here was a case in point. After a while, one of the leaders went upstairs to the attic where the mattresses were with an old girlfriend. Another sees them goes up and follows, taking off his clothes too and lying down beside them. Finally, Billy Ayers yells, It's time to do it! and takes the hand of the woman he's been dancing with and goes up too. Within minutes, there was a whole group of naked people looking down from the head of the stairs saying, Come on up! I took the hand of this girl and exchanged a few pleasantries to give it a slightly personal quality, and then we fucked. And there were people fucking and thrashing all around on the floor. They'd sort of roll over on you, and sometimes you found yourself spread out over more than one person. The room was like some modern sculpture. There'd be all these humps in a row. You'd see a knee, and then buttocks, and then three knees and four buttocks. They were all moving up and down, rolling around. He, uh, end, end quote. That guy remembered that uh, the next day there was this like lingering awkwardness until one woman finally blurted out, I'm sure Ho Chi Minh has him do it this way in Vietnam. There's another member, John Lerner, who at the time was in the process of coming out as gay, and he remembered those times. He said, quote, I was one of the people who instigated the orgies, one in Chicago, I remember, after a demonstration in Washington in November. Billy Ayers and I were the leaders in D.C. After the demonstration, about 30 of us came back to this house. Somebody had a bunch of acid. We sort of said, let's all drop acid and have an orgy. And so we did. For me, it was sort of liberating because I got a chance to have sex with some of the men I was after. The creepy thing was, I have a memory of several women who came out as lesbians having their first sex with women, and it was weird because everyone was sitting around watching. There were people who clearly didn't want to be there, standing on the sidelines, legs crossed. It was basically creepy. End quote. Brian Burrow actually interviewed Mark Rudd about the national orgies, as they were called. Quote, Rudd thought all the sexual experimentation from smash monogamy to orgies to homosexuality was disastrous, fostering petty jealousies, driving people out of the collectives, and introducing a level of sexual confusion that did little to focus cadres on the revolution. Worst of all, he recalls, was a resulting epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, from gonorrhea to pelvic inflammatory disease to crab lice and genital infections that became so common they were called weather crud. For Rudd, the final straw came when he was having sex with a woman and noticed a crab in her eyebrow, end quote. So this is not a healthy environment. Okay, you've got a lot of confused young people and a lot of very vulnerable young women and a lot of unscrupulous and predatory men slipping around in the shadows. The lines between free love and rape often became very, very blurry and even where consent did exist, you know, the women often found themselves under different kinds of duress, either being manipulated by men who had been around the block many, many more times than they had. You know, come on, baby, you, you want to be free, don't you? you? Don't let the bourgeois repression of your parents control you anymore. Or else sometimes, you know, they were under actually like extreme social pressure. You know, you know in forms that. It wouldn't really make a lot of sense to us today, but at the time, you know, we're, we're very powerful. Everywhere you looked, people were engaging in these Red Guard-style all-night struggle sessions, these 
they'd call them, you know, struggle sessions, criticism, self-criticism sessions. The People's Temple, when they started doing them, called them catharsis sessions. It was basically the group would just take turns singling out members for abuse, supposedly to help them break through ego blockages and strengthen collective solidarity. But in reality, it always just devolved into the stronger personalities emotionally abusing the weaker ones. You can see videos and, and, and stuff from these different organizations, and it is ugly stuff. You watch and you see whole groups of people just screaming like wild-eyed rabid baboons on some poor soul in the middle, threatening and insulting them for some you know, real or imagined shortcoming. It looks exactly like an extremely emotionally abusive one-on-one relationship just scaled up. And often in these free love environments, men would use these struggle sessions to break women down emotionally. Marshalling the rest of the group to their side, you know, if the women were too selfish or repressed to have sex with them. By the end of the 1960s, millions and millions of young people are just in bad shape. You're strung out on drugs, either, you know, addicted or just coming off of addiction. Women who have been passed around and used and very often, very, very often physically abused. Lots of them with unplanned children and the rolling stone of a father long gone, or often even worse, still around. You know, that scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest sees Jenny's boyfriend smack her around in the panther den, that, that's not just a random scene for the story. That's playing on what used to be a well-known dark side, you know, of the hippie and new left scenes. A bunch of drug-addled, overly emotional men beating the hell out of their women. There's a reason that the feminist movement took on a new dimension of militancy in the 1970s, coming right out of this. And so besides people like Laura Cole looking around for some place to put their activist energies, you just had a lot of people who were at their wits end looking for some kind of stability and structure. Many were coming from lives that lacked anything like structure since long before the 60s ever got a hold of them. Vern Gosney, he was a gay man who'd grown up in an abusive conservative family with an alcoholic mother. He joined People's Temple. As a teenager, he would walk the streets of San Francisco getting picked up by older men. When he was 19, though, he met a woman named Cheryl, heavyset black woman. Now, Vern Gosney was shy, skinny, and even though he was gay, it, you know, he was pretty confused at the time, still young. And when he met Cheryl, he said, here's this woman who's a survivor from Harlem, who's strong, dignified, who's, you know, the warrior goddess. I mean, if you walk down the street with Cheryl... No one would fuck with you. No one, man or woman. Nobody. She was that strong. And I fell in love with her. I was not necessarily oriented towards all the women in the world. I was in love with Cheryl. Well, his family disowned him for marrying a black woman. His father told him that their children would look like gorillas and his mother simply never spoke to him again. Well, that couple, they found People's Temple right at a time where they couldn't rent an apartment anywhere because nobody would rent to an interracial couple. And to them, People's Temple, when they found it, it seemed like a dream. A lot of people and groups talked racial harmony. It was not talking in People's Temple. It was the real deal. And so they were accepted in a way that they had never experienced. They'd never really even imagined possible. Vern Gosney bounced in and out of the church. Uh, He was a drug user, and that wasn't allowed at the temple. 
So he, he would kind of go in and out. And during one of their periods away from the church, Cheryl became pregnant with their son, Mark. And when it was time to give birth, she was in the hospital and the doctor gave her too much anesthesia. And the baby was delivered in a C-section, but Cheryl went into a coma and never woke up. And so Vern Gosney took the hospital to court, but the doctor said that he couldn't tell that Cheryl was losing oxygen because she was too black, and the jury bought that excuse. And so after that, he went back to the temple, and he stayed there until the final day. Gary Lambrev, uh, the first temple recruit in California that I quoted earlier, he was another gay man. Very well-educated guy, and he was a left-wing organizer and activist before he ever ran into People's Temple. He'd been arrested for jumping the fence of the Oakland Naval Supply Depot during an anti-war protest. And this is back in 65 or 66. So, you know, he he's coming out of this, this left-wing student world that, you know, I've spent some time describing. He dropped out of his Ph.D. program at Stanford, and he was living in Ukiah when he found himself at a temple gathering... He was a guy, obviously left-wing gay, uh, who found Ukiah's sort of conservative community pretty stifling. He was very happy to hear that some people had moved to town who were interested in racial justice like he was. Years later, that first night, he still remembered it vividly. Quote, I was extremely shy and felt incredibly awkward, but I went with them. I remember arriving at this shack. Basically a two-room home, and maybe 40 or 50 people were gathered around a wood stove in the middle of the room. The room was lit by the stove and some kerosene lamps, so there were as many shadows as there were lights. The adults were sort of clinging to the sides, and the young people were dancing to soul and rock and roll. I mean, the rhythm was pounding. Aretha Franklin, a lot of black soul, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye. And feeling self-conscious and not wanting to dance, I just sort of faded into the wall. Where I faded into the wall, on my left, was a man who seemed to be somewhere in his mid-thirties, approximately my height, considerably sturdier than I am, and somewhat swarthier. And we got into this conversation, very easily, that went from the most mundane to the most esoteric and most profound, and hops, skipped, and jumped throughout the universes in the most extraordinary conversation I had ever had with another human being, or ever since had with another human being. And finally, I sort of broke through and said... Excuse me, I didn't get your name. I'm Gary. And he said, Oh, I'm Jim. And I said, Oh, you're Jim Jones? He said, Yeah, I'm really glad to meet you. And it was a sort of genius that I saw repeated many, many times over the years, in which Jim knew precisely how to approach any new person in terms of their own world, their own reality, and even in terms of their own language. End quote. And that gives you some idea uh, some kind of an idea of Jim's gift. Lambrev is a very intelligent man. He, he'd had a master's degree from Stanford, and he'd been working under a Woodrow Wilson scholarship getting his Ph.D. there. He's a poet and a writer. He's been around a lot of other people like himself, more educated than himself. But Jim Jones, this young preacher just arrived from the Midwest, approaches him out of nowhere, and to this day, Gary Lambrev remembers it as the most extraordinary conversation he's ever had before or since. Gary Lambrev and Vern Gosney, they were also drawn in by the fact that they were not just accepted by everyone as gay men, but it was real acceptance. You know, just like the racial harmony was not an affectation. It didn't require effort from the people. 
There was nothing fake about it. It was real and it was natural to them. Race, sexual orientation, you know, this is, this is 50 years ago. And in people's temple, that stuff did not matter. If you're someone like Vern Gosney, with his background, never feeling comfortable or accepted anywhere, and only getting anything like acceptance when you're around other people like yourself, which, since they couldn't be in public, were often seedy environments, you know, it was an absolute revelation to find these people. You know, just kind, wholesome people who went to church and had kids. And you could be yourself and be accepted around them. Many other people began finding their way into People's Temple after 1968. A lot of them were also educated, young, white leftists like Gary Lambrev. And they were making their way into the temple from the Bay Area activist scene. People who had had enough of the drugs and the free love and... You know, who who didn't find the imposed discipline and exceedingly straight lifestyle in the temple to be a drawback. It was something that attracted them at this point. It had, they'd had enough of the other side. Dick Tropp was one, and he jotted down his story just shortly before taking his life on People's Temple's final day. He wrote, quote, I started out in Bedford Stuyvesant, grandson of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, Studied cello from age nine. Went to University of Rochester, where I majored in English and comparative literature. Graduated with highest honors. Went to Europe on a travel scholarship. Tried to pursue academic route at Berkeley, 1965-66, on a Wilson Fellowship. I was supposed to go to the top of my field, but somehow I had a profound dissatisfaction with it all. I had been experimenting with psychedelic drugs and had drifted into the hip culture of Berkeley... I lived on several communes. I was a participant in civil rights demonstrations and marches, and by the mid-60s I was attracted to revolutionary ideas. Then I met Jim Jones. To be brief, I have found a place to serve, to be, and to grow. To learn the riddle of my own insignificance. To help build a future in the shadow of the apocalypse under which I felt I was always living. I look back on the past as if to another world. A dead and dying world. A new center of gravity has been established in my life, and to my great, great relief and happiness, that new center of gravity is not me. End quote. And I would encourage you not to discount the power of that sentiment he voiced at the very end there, of having found a new center of gravity for his, his life other than himself. It's not merely the lifting of a burden, although it is that. A lot of religions in one form or another are about the neuroses and hang-ups that are the natural result of having a self at the center of each one of our universes. And to feel free of those, if only in passing, it can be a profound and intoxicating experience. It changes people. You know, Think about the feeling of, of being in love, of really being in love, where your every thought is of the other person and the center of your world has shifted from yourself to the object of your love and your relationship to that object. Take that same intense feeling and put it into a different context where it's not coming from being in love but from a social experience with many people. You can watch video of people's temple services that really cannot ever do them justice because what the video can't capture is how these people weren't just having a good time 
you know, walking out after a meeting, big smiles. Wow, that was great. You know, that's just the background music. These people were sharing that intense experience comparable to being in love, except their center of gravity hadn't shifted from themselves to some love object, but to each other and to this movement and and to, to the people they were serving and to their pastor, Jim Jones, who had made all this happen, who worked longer and harder than any of them every day. And together they were feeding and housing and healing people. There, there was something special happening, something important, more important than, than just their charity work. They had come upon a new way of living, a better way. And it felt like enlightenment to these people, or it felt like that feeling of being in love, or in any case, of being a part of something very, very, very meaningful. And when they came together in these services, you know, as they're dancing and singing and and listening to Jim, they could look around and, and look each other in the eye, men and women and white people and black people of all different backgrounds and classes at a time when everything around them is just tearing itself apart with hatred and violence and riots. And these people from all these different backgrounds, different races, everything, they could look at each other and share like this knowing, meaningful look of we are part of something very, very special here. Like, there's something going on here. And that's how you explain somebody following Jim Jones to California, you know, against the wishes of their family and friends, who all think they're crazy. Or how you explain some good people rationalizing some increasingly insane behavior as time goes on, because even after that significant feeling begins to become rarer and rarer, when it seems to have gone away completely, this was the only place that they had ever found it. And they just, they knew it had to be in there somewhere. That's how Jack Palladino, who was a private investigator who was hired to the legal team of one of the survivors of the last day, put it, quote, Jones gave people joy, and you can't put a price tag on that. That's why they stayed. Because no matter how bad it got, they were still holding out that they could find that joy. They could find that ecstasy. They could have that memory of that period of time, of that time and that spark, the ecstasy, that joy back. And that's why they stayed. That's why they held to the end, end quote. Well, when these new people started joining the temple starting in 1968, they transformed it. Coming out of this new left milieu, they were politically radical in ways that the Indiana Temple hadn't really been much exposed to. But just as significantly, you know, they were educated and professional people, many of them, who brought skills and connections that opened up whole new worlds of possibility. You know, these weren't people finishing up their GED like many of the church leaders from Indiana. Like I said, Gary Lambrev was in a PhD program at Stanford. There's a lot of educated people coming out of these Bay Area, you know, left-wing uh, movements into the church, and, and they really transformed what was possible. In Indiana, Jim and his people had gotten by on determination and elbow grease, you know, and they'd accomplished a lot. Opening two old folks' homes, running their free restaurant and job placement programs, everything they'd done out there was amazing. But there's only so much that this ragtag bunch of blue-collar folks with high school educations or less could do by themselves. You know, to do the kind of things that they were they, they, they were doing at, at the scale that Jim Jones, you know, saw. You needed organizational management skills. You needed 
some ability to navigate the Byzantine worlds of nonprofit legal and tax policy, financial management, you know, licensing and regulation, stuff that was totally opaque to the folks coming out of Indiana. That all changed starting in 1968, when this whole new layer of membership was added to the movement. And the single most important addition was a young lawyer named Tim Stone. Already in his late 20s, Tim Stone was a man who had everything going for him. He was successful, he was well-educated, he was popular, ambitious. You know, he, he often took a few hours away from his private law practice during the day to go volunteer or attend anti-war demonstrations in San Francisco, but when they were over, he drove his Porsche back to his nice, well-appointed Berkeley apartment. He'd been raised, well-raised, by middle-class parents in Colorado, and they'd instilled in him, you know, a basic ethical sensibility and a very solid work ethic. He was a Christian man, and he took his faith seriously, but he was not a fundamentalist. Um, he considered himself a liberal, Tim Stone did, but you know he was no militant. In fact, he hoped to run for Congress one day as a liberal Republican, and to that end, he had plans to put a Stanford Law degree to work in the district attorney's office. He'd already had experience in the public sector before, starting out in the Mendocino County Prosecutor's Office before he left to do some legal aid work for flower children during the Summer of Love. And at that time, when, when he did that, he was looking for some cheap or volunteer labor to help renovate his new offices, and a friend recommended that he contact a local group calling themselves People's Temple to see if they could give him a hand. And so the next day, bright and early, the next Sunday morning rather, uh, two dozen... People's Temple members show up with mops, buckets, tools, just ready to go, you know, for this fellow traveler who's doing the Lord's work as far as they're concerned. And as he started to see the temple in action, he's becoming more and more impressed by their dedication and especially by their affection for one another. He's very drawn to it. He's especially overwhelmed by what he's seeing in the character of their leader, Jim Jones. It was obvious that the people adored and looked up to Jim. But one day, while he was looking for Jim in the Ukiah Church building, Tim found Jim in the bathroom, sleeves rolled up, scrubbing a toilet, just like he was no different from anyone else in the temple. And it just blew Tim away. It kind of sold him on that little detail. Then he found Jim conversant in current events, more conversant than he was on many subjects. Uh, Jim impressed him with his ideas about social justice activism kind of being the core of the Christian message. And so... Tim Stone began to send people that he met in his legal aid work to the church for counseling or for help getting off drugs, and consistently he was amazed with how the people responded. And so Tim Stone became a dedicated member. He'd make the drive from Berkeley up to Ukiah for services, and he would also offer his expertise and his energy to help put Jim's ambitious vision for the, for the temple, uh, for its future, help him put it into action. Tim wasn't put off by the faith healings, uh, which were not the focus of the ministry in Ukiah anyway. Um, they weren't really a big part of it. And, you know, in any case, this is the 60s in California. There were New Age gurus and secular Enlightenment fads popping up with fantastic claims on every corner. So Jim Jones' faith healings were hardly the strangest thing to be found. Um, and so Tim, Tim Stone wasn't really too worried about that. Uh, and, and, in fact, pretty soon he accepted it like everybody else. When Telegraph Avenue and People's Park turned into war zones in Berkeley toward the end of 1969, 
Tim's politics got more serious, and his work with the church became more and more the focus of his life after that. At the time, Tim had a girlfriend. Her name was Grace. Grace was much younger than Tim, 18. He was 29 when they met in 69. Uh, And her background was very different from Tim's as well. Grace was a pretty girl of Mexican descent from a roughish neighborhood in San Francisco. Uh, Not a ghetto, but, you know say, lower lower working class. Um, she found Tim's attempts to impress her with his Porsche and, you know, his other things. She found that to be a bit much. She rolled her eyes a bit when Tim would drive her down Telegraph in Berkeley, you know, pointing out, this is the place where I buy my crystal. You know, those are the places where I shop for clothes and so forth. She thought that was a little corny. And part of it was maybe that she was put off. Part of it was that she could see through it. Um... You know, she lacked Tim's worldliness. When he took her to visit Berkeley's campus, it was the first time she'd ever been there, even though she'd grown up just across the bridge. Uh, but she had street smarts and kind of a more grounded common sense that Tim did not have. But he was sweet and he was kind and she did like him. He was very smart and interesting. And so before long, they're in a relationship and uh, he got her to check out People's Temple with him. Well, Grace's natural skepticism and ability to kind of see people who were trying to blow smoke at her, it shaped her first experience with the temple. From from the first time she met Jim Jones, she didn't like him. There's just something a little bit too slick about him for Grace, and she was put off by the way everyone treated him like he was the second coming. She didn't buy into the healings or the prophecies, and she was shocked that somebody like Tim would buy into it. And she disliked how Jim constantly was just haranguing his congregation for donations throughout the service. You know, the offering plate didn't just get passed around once, not twice, just again and again. And Jim would play on every single angle, just every single card he had, he would play to get money out of people. The temple needed money to build a bomb shelter to protect from imminent nuclear war. You know, children were starving in third world countries while the congregation ate three meals a day. And how dare you? Um, corrupt political parties are funded by rich, while, rich people while positive social organizations like the temple rely on donations from regular people. You know, Tithing showed evidence of faith that would ensure that they'd be protected from car accidents and house fires and cancer. Whatever it took. Jim would play on whatever worked on you know, individuals. The money all seemed to be going toward good work. Uh, Grace had to admit that. You know, Jim wore second-hand clothing. He lived modestly with old, you know, used furniture. He drove around a beat-up car, but she just didn't like it. And she didn't hate she didn't hate Jim. She just wasn't drawn in by the whole thing the way a lot of people were. She had the reaction that probably most of us would have if we walked into a situation like this, right? And from the moment we got there, all these doe-eyed people who just seem a little too friendly and too welcoming for our taste, you know, they're not just saying he should really meet our pastor. He's a good man. I think you'd really like him, you know, but he's amazing. He's the greatest, most loving man in the world. Like, you know, and then he comes out and although it's true that he is very dedicated to social justice causes and is kind and he does work hard for people, he he kind of has the air of someone who's used to everyone around him treating him that way. And, you know, Grace was put off by that. But she liked him. And Tim loved Jim Jones, and so, although she always reserved a place in the back of her mind to remember where the exits were, she visited that place less and less, and slowly Greystone became a part of the Temple family, too. It's not easy for me 
to understand what happens to someone like Tim Stone. You know, my personality has always been constructed in a way that I kind of resist authority. And I'm a lot more like Grace in, in being somewhat repulsed when I see people sucking up and showering adulation on another person. It might be a, it might be a generational difference. You know, the people we're talking about in this story are boomers. Uh, most of most of the, the, these young white people who at the time were coming in from the Bay Area, they're mostly boomers. And these are this is the generation of people who fainted when they saw the Beatles literally fainted and who had a sort of generational religious streak that sent droves of them off to India to seek enlightenment or following gurus in the United States. You know, I was a latchkey kid born in 1981. So right on the edge of where Gen X kind of tips over toward millennial, but I've always had that Gen X tendency to take a certain kind of automatic, ironic distance from things, Uh, you know, a natural suspicion of too much certainty Difficulty committing myself too completely to any ideology or party or, or religious sensibility. I mean, that's why Gen X will probably have the shortest run holding leadership positions in the United States. You know, boomers held down the fort longer than normal because Gen X just hadn't been that interested or, or maybe not self-confident enough to take it away from them. And once Gen X inherits things by default, millennials, who are a lot more like boomers in, in this way, will probably take things over a lot earlier than than otherwise and gen x will have to just move on and so maybe that has something to do with it or maybe it's just me but try as i might i find it difficult to get into the head of someone like tim stone it took some doing but tim convinced grace to move with him up to ukiah and by january 1970 he had sold his porsche and quit his private practice and was ready to devote himself body and soul full-time to people's temple and he'd sold his portion, given the money to the church. But as he began to get ready to pack his things and move, he had some questions. And so he wrote a letter to Jim Jones. And I'm going to read the letter to you. Quote, Dear Jim, Mike Cartmel, it's one of the Indiana members, suggested I write and formally ask certain questions in my mind as I plan to move to Ukiah. First, what factors should one employ in purchasing a car? New versus old, big versus small, American versus foreign. Second, what factors in buying clothes? Third, what type of furniture? Should it be sturdy but as unpretentious as possible? Or is it okay to have nice furniture if it's shared? Fourth, what about possessions like books and records? An expensive stereo system, expensive paintings, art books? What do I do with them? Fifth, Is it best for us to completely refrain from alcohol, including a glass of wine before bed? Is it harmful to an anti-materialist lifestyle for us to go to nightclubs? I hope you won't be offended by these questions, Jim, for I know the mere fact that I ask them shows how important these aspects of materiality are to me. I have, however, decided to live up to the standards of the communal Christian church as set forth in the Acts of the Apostles, to donate everything I have, I can no longer be the same person seeking power and pleasure as I have blueprinted myself to be. Sincerely, Tim Stone. P.S. In your opinion, could I do more good for the church by becoming assistant district attorney, civil, or by becoming directing attorney of legal services? Please advise. End quote. This is a grown man. Jim Jones is just a couple years older than he is. And he's asking Jim to tell him how he should dress himself, 
what kind of furniture he and Grace are allowed to have in their home, whether he can keep his stereo and books and records, and if it's okay to take Grace out to a nightclub every once in a while. He's asking Jim to decide what job he should take and whether he and Grace are allowed to have a glass of wine before bedtime. I, You know, actually, maybe it's not as off the walls of making it out. People join the military knowing that they're going to be told what time to get out of bed, what to wear, what to eat, and how they spend most of their time. You know, priests join the church knowing they're not allowed to have romantic relationships. So maybe Tim thought of it like that. But there's something about it that feels different when, instead of joining an institution with rules and regulations that govern certain aspects of everybody's lives, you're submitting yourself to an organization that is very difficult to distinguish from the individual man at the top of it, and whose rules and regulations are impossible to distinguish from that individual man's whims. And regardless of how powerful or popular he is, no pope is synonymous with the church. You know, it's reserved for Christ himself to say, I am the head and the church is the body, but People's Temple was an extension of Jim Jones. Its actions flowed from his will. You serve the temple when you serve Jim Jones, and you serve Jim when you serve the temple. And so it just feels, it just feels different. Tim and Grace got married by Jim Jones. They were married by Jim Jones later that year. They took a one-night honeymoon because Tim was eager to get back to work for the temple. Uh, They rented a little house in Ukiah where they were allowed certain material luxuries that were frowned on by the rest of the temple. And It was an exception that Jim justified by the fact that at Tim's job at the district attorney's office, uh, he, he would be required to kind of present a certain image. And so they got... Settled in, Grace enjoyed playing Lady of the House, and when they had free time together, Tim would read to her left-wing political tracts by Eldridge Cleaver and Paul Ehrlich. But free time soon became harder and harder to come by. Tim was a zealot, fully committed to his work for the church and for Jim Jones. At Jim's request, he set up a temple legal clinic to provide free services to the poor. He met with Jim regularly to discuss legal matters and provide guidance Uh, dealing with church matters. And Jim spoke to him with a frankness uh, that he he didn't speak to anybody else in the church with that kind of frankness, very directly, uh, almost as an equal, not quite, but almost. Jim Jones knew how important Tim was going to be to his ambitions, and he made sure that everybody worked hard to keep Tim happy and engaged. When Jim required Tim Stone to write an essay expressing his feelings about socialism, Tim put it like this, quote, Until two months ago, socialism was for me a very unnerving word. So imbued am I by the rotary luncheon speeches praising free enterprise and condemning socialism as mutually exclusive and slavery invoking, that it's been the greatest deterrent to a full acceptance of the values held by People's Temple. But a socialist sees the individual as existing on behalf of the community. He is not an elitist. Economically, he resents the accumulation of money into the hands of an unresponsive elite, capitalists. The socialist wants the means of production nationalized. He wants the wealth of the country redistributed so that everyone has his basic needs met. End quote. Pretty straightforward. Well, as a church passed... 300 members by the end of 1969, Jim Jones 
starts directing his people to do more things. He has them open up a rest home for the elderly, as they had in Indiana. They open up a drug rehab center. Tim Stone, he used his connections and expertise to, you know, shepherd the legal work that was necessary through the system. He was made the chairman of the church board, and his dual role as church attorney in Mendocino County uh, District Attorney, assistant district attorney, gave the church a nice, clean, shiny face to show to the community. And, you know, he came into daily contact with the most powerful people in the county, the district attorney, judges, the newspaper editor and journalists, police and school officials, agency heads. Jim Jones could not have asked for a better person to come in and just be ready to fully devote himself, especially considering that Tim Stone's oath to his public job was secondary to his loyalty to the temple. And he did not hesitate to share information from the district attorney's office with Jim Jones or to use his access to help the church. And sometimes his zeal would get the better of him, you know, and he would forget where he was. He would talk about the temple to anyone who would listen. At work, at the grocery store, walking down the street, um, anywhere. If he could find somebody's ear, he would talk about it. He would sing the praises of the temple and Jim Jones himself. People who knew and respected Tim from his, from his work, they found his relationship to the temple very confusing. Um, you know, in 1971, one time, he would try to tell the county welfare supervisor, that Jim Jones had healed himself instantly after being shot. And when the supervisor balked at the story, Tim offered himself as an eyewitness. He said, Jim took the bullet and held it up and dropped it, and it went plink. And so the supervisor sarcastically is like, Tim, it went plink. It's a strange thing to hear from somebody who's an assistant district attorney. Uh, One time at a Republican Party political event, Tim was still involved at that time. A party official said, Tim, it sounds like you think Jim Jones is God. And Tim just said, well, I guess I think he is. Another time at a meeting with the county board of supervisors, uh, Tim's secretary comes in and hands him a note that says, Jim Jones needs you. He gets up at the board of supervisors meeting, just walks out without even bothering to explain why. He comes back the next day and one of the supervisors asked him what happened And he said, uh, can't talk about it. I took this job on the condition that if anything came up, you know, my work for the church comes first. And that was it. Yeah, he had become a fully committed servant of People's Temple. And he was fanatically loyal personally to Jim Jones. Between work and serving the church, Tim had no personal time of his own. He woke up at 4 a.m. to study history and politics at Jim's recommendation you know, every minute of his day was scheduled with meetings and phone calls, and his calendar even had minutes blocked out for the times that he would eat, sleep, shower, shave. It was just one thing after another. And the one thing that did not make its way into Tim Stone's schedule very often, uh, and increasingly less often, was his new wife, Grace. And so with people like this surrounding Jim Jones, especially given that, again, many of them are young women coming into the temple from environments where free love was kind of the rule. Uh, What happened next was probably inevitable. I mean, look, let's just be honest. How long would most men go if day in, day out, they were surrounded by many attractive women who worshipped you to a point where any attention you give them, anything at all, made them lightheaded? You know, where all you had to do anytime you wanted was walk up and say, do this. And they would not only do it, 
but they would feel like they'd been given a gift. How many men are built to deal with a situation like that? Really? Maybe you don't take advantage at first. Maybe you don't take advantage for a long time. But how long does a big bowl of candy have to sit on your table with your name on it before you start coming up with reasons why maybe this one little bite won't hurt anybody? You know, you can be good for a week, a month, a year, but all it takes is one moment of weakness, and after that, I mean, who in that situation only does it once? There's a reason that damn near every single cult leader you have ever heard about, from Munster to Jonestown, ends up sleeping with his followers. You know, psychiatrists have to be trained on how to deal with the transference issues of patients who fall in love with them, because it happens so often. You're the one with the control. You're the one with the answers. You know, in this situation, you know you're 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 the most popular guy in high school. The boss and the object of transference all rolled into one. And in Jim's case, he's the living embodiment of love and compassion and understanding and every other human value that his followers cherish. And it's not like it's one-sided. It's not like. You know, you're just cold calling these ladies out of the blue. They know what they're doing, too. And, and Jim Jones is just a guy from Indiana at the end of the day. He's just a guy. And very often it was not necessarily Jim Jones doing all the manipulating. And to be fair to Jim, it didn't start out this way. You know, there's no evidence that he had any extramarital affairs during the years in Indiana. And his first in California, it wasn't until after they'd been there for four years, and it wasn't on impulse. Uh, At the time, his wife, uh, Marceline, she was having some health issues, uh, issues she'd had for a long time, actually, including severe lower back problems that required frequent therapy. And by the late 60s, that was limiting their sex life to almost nothing. Marceline would often sleep in a separate bed because any movement by Jim at night was just completely intolerable and she kept awake all night. And so that and the 24-7 schedule he kept up for his pastoral duties and overseeing the church's growing operations had caused the two to grow more distant from each other. And, uh, you know, know, they were still respectful, but it was just they were becoming more distant, Um, certainly more distant than this flock of newcomers that were trying to impress him and competing for his attention at every single moment. And yet still... His first affair was not with something that happened. You know, it, it, it wasn't something that happened on impulse. It was not with some young, pretty church member that he got bored with not long afterward. The first woman, first woman that Jim turned his attention to in his whole life after Marceline, it was the it was only the second woman woman he'd ever been with was named Carolyn Layton, and she was a lean brunette who had joined the church with her husband Larry Layton. The best way I can think of to describe her is that she looks like olive oil from the old Popeye cartoons. So Larry, her husband, you know, he had been a shy and retiring child. And although he had found something of an identity in the student left, he was a drug user and a loafer. And he just he lacked energy and ambition, um, kind of stereotypical of his sort of privileged upbringing. Carolyn was not that way. She was a serious woman raised by liberal Methodist parents who had practically groomed her for for work in the People's Temple. On the Sunday after she and her sister Annie ended their lives in the mass suicide, her father, who was a preacher himself, gave a sermon that spent a few moments 
just a few moments eulogizing his two dead daughters and the whole rest of the sermon, he was basically just delivering a political lecture that would not have been out of place coming from the pulpit of people's temple. So that was the kind of home she'd come from. Carolyn and Larry Layton, they, they really provide a window into the structure of temple society in certain ways. They were both archetypes of the kind of men and women who would end up forming the leadership circle. You know, Larry Layton was slavishly devoted to Jim Jones. Jim didn't even bother hiding that he was having sex with Caroline. And when he decided it was time, he simply told Larry that you're going to have to divorce Caroline and get out of the way. And as a consolation prize later on, Jim would arrange for Larry Layton to remarry to one of the most beautiful women in the church. But before long, Jim decided to just take his turn with her as well, and he cuckolded Larry again. But nothing Jim could ever do would break Larry's dog-like loyalty. You know, it often seemed like Jim was trying to see how far he could push that. O- over the years, he humiliated Larry Layton almost as a sport. You know, Again, al- almost as if, as his own power and control within the temple grew. He was curious, how far can I push this? You know, the most dedicated and devoted of my followers, how far can I push them before something in them has to revolt? You know, there was no revolt in Larry Layton. This is a pathetic man. Walked over and held in contempt, even by people who considered loyalty to Jim to be a primary virtue. And of course he was looked on by contempt with Jim himself. By the end, in Jonestown, you know, when when Jim crazed and strung out on amphetamines and barbiturates and holding all night ranting lectures and struggle sessions in, in the jungle, he's up there slurring his words and waving a gun around as he screams about the CIA's plots to kill him and threatening torture and worse to anybody who tries to escape. Larry Layton would stand at the edge of the stage with a cup and he would hold it out when Jim needed a place to take a piss and he didn't want to leave the microphone. That's what kind of man Larry Layton was. And as time goes on, that's more and more what... He's the extreme version, but that's what a lot of the men are like in the temple. Carolyn was not like that. She became very devoted to Jim Jones. You know, by all accounts, the two were in love with each other, like for real. But even at the beginning, it took some time for her to warm up to Jim. You know, this was not the case with most of the other women over the years, but it was the case with Carolyn Layton. Almost uniquely in the temple, she would question Jim in public. She would let him know when she thought he was wrong, and Jim would take it. Jim would take it from her, which was also almost unique. He wouldn't take it from anybody else. Well, Carolyn's privileged position isolated her, you know, made her a subject of resentment to the other women especially, but... Along with Tim Stone, she held as much authority in the church as anyone besides Jim himself. As far as the day-to-day operations, you know, Marceline, mother, as, as church members would come to call her, she would always command a level of respect almost co-equal with Jim, especially with all the people who'd come from Indiana. But her role was more ceremonial, you know, not administrative. She was the queen, you know, and Carolyn was kind of the prime minister, Right. And so it was Carolyn who actually exercised more real decision-making authority on a regular basis. Carolyn was an extreme ideologue, a left-wing, hardcore extremist, you know, and she got more and more so over the years. One of the real political fanatics in the temple. She'd been a high school teacher before devoting herself to People's Temple, 
a solid enough job, but one that she had kind of settled for among the more limited opportunities that were available to women 50 years ago, just as she had settled for Larry Layton as, as her husband. And my own suspicion, I haven't been able to find anything direct that substantiates this, but just after having read and listened to just about everything uh, out there, uh, and, and a lot of it having to do with these two these two's relationship. My suspicion is that Jim saw a bit of his mother in Carolyn. You know, his mother was a smart, ambitious woman who'd had to settle for Jim's useless layabout father during the great depression. Carolyn was smarter, stronger, more ambitious and more assertive in every way than Larry Layton, who like Jim's father was as harmless as he was useless. And that was how his mother was related to Jim's own father. Both Carolyn and Jim's mother had had to put aside their ambitions to take up regular jobs and make ends meet. And both Carolyn and his mother, uh, to both Carolyn and his mother, Jim was kind of the means by which both of them might finally see and do the great things that they'd originally dreamed about. Both women to other people seemed frigid and blunt and kind of closed off. Uh, But both of them were completely open with Jim Jones and only with Jim Jones in a way that they would never be to anyone else. I think part of Jim's years long abuse and humiliation of Larry Layton, it had to have been a form of belated indirect torture of the memory of his hated father, you know, as well as just, you know, Carolyn is his woman now and he wants to torture her ex-husband I can't prove it, but I can practically hear Jim and his mom in some private conversation, one that wasn't recorded and put down in the Jonestown archives. And, you know, Jim telling her that Carolyn reminds me of you, mom, and his mom, you know, also getting a little bit of perverse pleasure out of seeing her son ritually humiliate a guy who's standing in for the man that she, too, had always really you know, held in cold contempt. Jim Jones and Carolyn Layton would be together until the very end. And she would become, for all practical purposes, like a second wife to him and a second mother to his children also. When the family would take vacations, Jim would schedule them for two weeks. One week for him, his children, Marceline. The other week for him, the kids, and Carolyn. Of course, that was very hard on Marceline. His oldest son, Stephen, his biological son with Marceline, hated his father for betraying his mother. And he never really forgave him for that. But over the years, even he got used to Carolyn. At the end, uh, in the death tape, which you'll hear in a future episode, this is the tape recording of People's Temple's last hour or so on Earth. Uh, It'll be Carolyn that you'll hear matter-of-factly standing up and instructing the assembled multitude to form up in lines to receive their cup of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid from the vat. Outside the temple, she'd been a high school teacher, grinding out lessons for, you know, disinterested kids. Inside, she was one of the most powerful administrators and chief ideologues of a revolutionary movement with thousands of members and millions of dollars in operations and, you know, friends and enemies in the U.S. government. And as far as she was concerned, a mission to politically transform the world. And she was quite serious about that. You know, as long as Carolyn was able to exercise power within the temple and was secure in her position as Jim Jones first, she didn't really mind so much when other women in the church began requiring his special attention. Once he'd broken the seal with Carolyn, Jim's sexual energy kind of flowed freely, and the attractive young women 
from that California group began lining up for a close experience of father's love. Because he and the organization were one, you know, People's Temple members jockeyed for position within the church hierarchy by competing to be close to Jim Jones. Jim's sexual partners obviously had an inside track. To be one of his partners was an automatic ticket into the church aristocracy, and the women knew this. It wasn't as if, you know, they were just surprised and shocked beyond everything one day when Jim made a move. When that happened, it was usually as the culmination of a process in which they were taking part, and they went away pleased that they'd finally made it. You know, often hoping against hope that Jim's feelings for them were unique, and when each one, other than Carolyn, inevitably found out that she was just going to be one among many. She was disappointed, but in every case, you know, Jim's the man. Jim knows what he's doing. In every case, she would take it out on her competitors and not on Jim. This had the effect of ensuring that the women closest to Jim, who were eventually really running most of the church's day-to-day operations, they remained rivals with one another. They distrusted each other. They often worked to undermine one another, which you know made it very easy for Jim to kind of manipulate and play them off each other. Over time, again, more and more of the church's activities came to be managed by these women. Uh, that was kind of how the, the, the church ended up being structured, to the point that People's Temple has sometimes been described by people who studied it as a matriarchy that was ruled on a day-to-day basis by Jim's close inner circle of ultra-loyal, politically super-radical white female sex partners. You know, Jim would show up and preach. Uh, he'd be the man. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd be the guy on stage that everybody would be focusing on. And, you know, he'd maybe have the ideas, you know, go build this, go do that. But on a day-to-day basis, this inner circle of Jim's women were really the ones who were running the church and, and taking it in the direction that, you know, that, that, that they wanted it to go. Now, Jim always framed his liaisons with the temple women. It was, it was an act of compassion for him. You know, it was really a distraction from his more important work, but you know, it was necessary to help these women relate to the movement in a more personal way. Jim Jones never did anything for himself, you see, but he was willing to give the women what they needed in a spirit of self-sacrifice. Strangely enough, of course, uh, the women who seemed to need such special attention always seemed to be young, attractive, and white. Uh, But they weren't always women. Jim also sometimes had sex with his male followers, always maintaining the dominant position and always telling them it was only for their own good. Jim would teach his people that all men in the world other than himself were actually homosexuals and that despite his distaste for anal sex, he was willing to perform it on them in order to show them the truth about themselves. Many of the young men who joined the church, they wandered in in a vulnerable and confused state of mind as well. You know, some had been living lives of self-destructive chaos until Jim Jones pulled them out of it. Men who had negative reactions to the idea of sex with Jim Jones were then accused by everybody else of being repressed and homophobic which were two cardinal sins in the church, and the men were very eager to disprove that about themselves. Other people just believed truly that Jim Jones was this special being with magical powers, and they submitted to him because of that. One man, Tim Carter, he had been in Vietnam, and he describes a time when he was in the jungle in Vietnam when he had a mystical experience that sounds like something you'd read in a 
bargain bin new age book uh, he says that he suddenly ceased to be and he became light he became everything in the universe and everything in the universe became him there was no me it was uh, he says there was no me it just was okay you know fine many of us have had good mushrooms uh, and so he gets back to the U.S. from Vietnam, and he's sort of drifting around, intermittently homeless. He hates America, hates the politicians and the rich for putting him and so many others through the hell of Vietnam. And so after the shootings at Kent State, he buys a hunting knife, and he goes down to City Hall in San Francisco with the intention to cause some kind of mayhem. But suddenly, he says... A voice spoke to him and told him that violence could not change the world. Only the spirit can do that. And so he left off the knife attack and soon enough comes across an article in a newspaper about a miracle working preacher named Jim Jones. And when he finally made it to a service, it's as if Jim Jones is speaking directly to him uh, in a sermon from the time that Carter joined. This was just a bit later than the other events I'm describing when Jim was more openly strident in public about this stuff. Jim thunders from the pulpit, quote, America's got a false sense of security. She's too fat, too content. She's too materialist, and the bombs never hit her shores. That's why we push our big guns all over the country and all over the world. The commander of your United States Marines says there's nothing but dirty, dollar-grubbing, capitalistic fingers in Vietnam. We were never there to bring freedom. We were never there to protect those people from communism. He said, I've been a baron, a robber on three continents for U.S. steel, standard oil. Walter Cronkite showed you just the day before yesterday the entire terror of what we're doing. Showed a school, showed an orphanage, showed a hospital that had been bombed to powder. And if you don't give it of yourself and discipline yourself, you're a murderer, you're a traitor, and you're worse than all the killers making the napalm because you know better. End quote. And then, suddenly... Jim does address Tim Carter directly. As the donation plate is being passed around, it comes to him, and he reaches into his pocket and puts what he's got into the plate. He leans over to his sister, who's there with him, and says, Well, that's my last 67 cents, so I hope you've got money for cigarettes. And then a short time later, Jim's up there giving his sermon from the, from the stage, and he points up to the balcony where Tim Carter and his sister are sitting. And he says, and you up there that just gave your last 67 cents, you know that gift means far more than these people who give $10 when they can afford to give 100 and So as it turned out, the temple had assigned someone to sit behind them. And when he mentioned the 67 cents, it was jotted down and the note was passed up to Jim on stage. That's an old trick from his days on the revival circuit. But Tim didn't know that. And he was already a guy who believed in psychic phenomenon, believed that, you know, he'd merged with the universe in Vietnam. And, you know, he had, he'd kind of self-selected as, you know, a person who had already responded to an article about a miracle-working preacher. So he was like, wow. And Jim Jones had him. And since he'd been homeless, Tim Carter was soon asked if he'd like to come up to Ukiah and live in one of the temple's communal homes and join the movement full-time. And so he did. And this wanderer, this lost, broken wanderer who'd been filled with anger and had been on the brink of launching a random knife attack on City Hall, suddenly finds this sense of belonging and peace and joy that had been eluding him his entire life, and it was all because of this miraculous preacher. And so one day, Tim Carter remembers, he was 
passing by Jim Jones in a hallway, and Jim turns to him and says, Tim, I just want you to know, I'll fuck you in the ass if you want me to. And so things are beginning to get strange. Although, again, I want to emphasize something. The reason I've spent so much time talking about the rest of the radical left movements in which People's Temple was embedded and from which its members were being drawn, its leadership class at least, and with whom they continued to break bread like throughout the years, is that as weird as People's Temple was, in the context of the environment in which it was operating, it was not really out of place. You know, if the thing hadn't gone down the way it had at the end, it honestly would not have made the top 10 craziest turns that radical movements took in the 1970s. Anyway, to oversee the church's expanding activities, Jim orders the creation of something called the Planning Commission. It's initially made up of about 50 people, 50 of the most dedicated members from Indiana and California. And these are people you know, who really see the church first and foremost as a vehicle for social change. After regular members would go home from a church service or a potluck, the planning commission would stay behind, and they would meet for hours on end, sometimes late into the night, sometimes damn near to the next morning, discussing church business and listening to Jim discourse on politics and and everything else that popped into his head. And at this point you know, in their history, it would only be at these meetings that Jim would really let loose on his politics. He pushed his people, these people in particular, he pushed them hard, calling them out for any sign of slacking off, pointing out that, you know, he worked longer and harder than anyone, especially when you consider how drained he was from the sexual demands that all of you selfish people are putting on me. And, you know, these PC members, uh, planning commission folks who were veterans of other left-wing organizations, they imported those criticism, self-criticism, you know, sessions. They, they brought that format into planning commission meetings. And so they'd be bluntly calling out other members for their perceived shortcomings, especially the, the, the great shortcoming of, you know, lack of commitment to the cause or appreciation for Jim Jones, which more and more often and more and more were, you know, coming to be considered the same thing. Now, privacy was not a thing in the temple, okay? It was not a thing. It shared that with all the other left-wing radical groups that would engage in these regular catharsis sessions. That that was what the temple called them. And they had the same character as those infamous struggle sessions of the Bolsheviks and the weathermen and, and, you know, the students during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I mean, those are the models that the people in the temple were consciously emulating. You know, a dispute or a rocky marriage between two members, that was not a personal problem. It was a problem for the whole community, and so the whole community dealt with it. Defending yourself against accusations was useless. You know, the point was to get the member under criticism to face up to what they were repressing or denying, you know, they were denying their latent racism or sexism or anti-Semitism or their homosexuality. Other members were encouraged to make accusations against other people, to bring up anything that they had seen that might serve as an example uh, of something that somebody had done. You know, defending another person was completely forbidden. It was the quickest way to put yourself on the hot spot. It, it bears resemblance to the social justice inquisition mobs we see form up in an online version from time to time today, where defending the target from even charges which are obviously spurious will just bring a share of that hostility down upon your own head. And often merely refusing to join in with enough gusto, you know, uh, that, that was enough to bring negative attention upon yourself. You've seen how it can go. You know, 
why hasn't so-and-so spoken out about such-and-such? Or why hasn't so-and-so denounced the person we've decided today is bad? It's very similar to that. But, you know, it's undiluted by the presence of any dissenting opinions. And it's in person with people that you know well. These are your friends and your family. These are the ones accusing you. Your friends and family would often be the fiercest for fear of betraying special loyalties or a cliquishness that, you know, put themselves and a few others above the rest of the group. The subject of sex increasingly became an obsession during these meetings. Official temple policy was that it was inappropriate for revolutionaries to selfishly waste their time on sex when there are so many people suffering in the world. And the catharsis sessions would often consist of members calling out others for suspected sexual liaisons and then bringing that couple before the group to learn their lesson. Members who were obeying the injunction against sexual activity or more often just those who found it more difficult to find willing partners, they would lead the attack against the other members that they resented for doing it. The only authorized way to have sex in the temple, really, was to have sex with Jim Jones, which is one reason that over time, more and more of the attractive white women gravitated to his inner circle in order to immunize themselves against attack by the planning commission. Over the years, catharsis sessions in People's Temple would take up more and more of their time. It got to the point where the planning commission would meet all night, every night, and that's all they would do. You know, The withering verbal and emotional abuse would eventually expand to brutal physical abuse. Members who were not on the PC, but who were still involved more than the average Sunday parishioner, they'd hear rumors and stories, and it got to where everybody walked on eggshells around everyone else all the time, watching every word and making sure they kept nice plastic smiles plastered across their faces at all times for fear of being pulled aside and told that their presence was required at tonight's meeting of the PC. Jim would preside over the meetings, sometimes ranting for hours about politics or religion, other times just guiding the proceedings with prompts, you know, suggestions, rulings, while the other people just laid into one another. Sometimes he wouldn't be there at all. People would just do this themselves. They didn't need him around for it. When he was there, Jim was very clever about positioning himself as the good cop. You know, he'd say that he'd hate to have to discipline someone, but, you know, it's for their own good, of course. And then the other people would just start going off. And, you know, as they worked each other up into a frenzy of attack, it would always be Jim to step in and say enough is enough. He was the only one authorized to do that. He was the only one, you know, who, who, who could step in and say you know, they've had enough. If you tried that and you were one of the normal members, you would get attacked too. And so each member tried to outdo the others with displays of their dedication and love for poor people and for black people and for Jim Jones. It was just this one big spiral. There was one damaged specimen, uh, Sharon Amos, who had joined the church as a young woman after she'd run away when her schizophrenic mother tried to strangle her to death with the leash of the dog, uh, the family dog. And her devotion to Jim Jones crossed over into psychosis. Uh, at one meeting, she stood up and pledged that in order to be able to give the temple more money, she would from then on start feeding her three children nothing but birdseed. Even Jim didn't know what to say to that, but thankfully she was put off that idea. Years later, when the call came down that the much-talked-about mass suicide was finally happening, Sharon Amos was not at Jonestown at the time. Uh, she was in the Guyanese capital at a building uh, that the People's Temple ran. 
And so she got the call, and she marched her three kids into a bathroom and slit their throats with a kitchen knife before killing herself. At these early planning commission meetings, there was this unspoken awkwardness that pervaded everything. Because Marceline had to sit through through these things alongside many temple women who were sleeping with her husband, and everybody knew about it, including her. She'd been having a very difficult time with Jim's philandering, especially with how he conducted it so brazenly right under her nose. You know, she'd married Jim Jones as a young Christian woman who was hoping for something like a normal family to comfort her, even if Jim's ambitions required his attention outside the home. But now she was becoming resigned to the fact that that was never going to happen. And so she was confused and depressed, and she had nobody to confide in because nobody she knew was capable of thinking or speaking about her husband in anything other than completely sycophantic terms. One time, she had informed Jim that she was going to take the children and get a divorce, but you know she was no match for Jim's talent for manipulation, and she backed down when he turned the kids against her for trying to break up the family. One time, he threatened that she would die before she left with the kids. It was a threat that he framed as a prophecy, like he was predicting that this would happen, but she had already seen how far Jim was often willing to go to make sure his prophecies came true. And while the Indiana members loved her and might have even been split over what to do if Jim really tried to turn them against her, she didn't doubt for a second that many of these newer, radical, you know, fanatical California members would carry out any task that Jim Jones assigned to them. I mean, even absent the threats. Marceline, at the end of the day, she just couldn't bear the thought of leaving her children. She wasn't going to leave alone. And even Jim, you know, Jim, he just had her number. Just like he always had everyone's number. He had the abuser's touch. Able to alternate between frightening and charming her you know, being threatening one minute and the next seeming as though his fits were just the immature petulance of a boy, you know, a child who needed someone like Marceline to look after him for all his seeming impotence, really just vulnerable. And so, you know, although she often cried herself to sleep at the moment of despair, Jim would just seem like, you know, he'd seem innocent and she couldn't bear the idea of him alone in the world, surrounded only by people who didn't know him like she did. There are a lot of wives who were physically and emotionally abused uh, who would understand this mentality you know, very, very easily. John Nash, the mentally ill mathematician that I spoke about earlier, he was often vicious and unpredictably cruel to his wife, and her life was unbearable as a result, but she put up with him for years. You know, She tried her best to nurse and save him. Finally, Marceline couldn't handle the strain any longer. She would either change or die, and she knew she didn't have it in her to leave, and so instead she just accepted her lot. She just accepted it. She accepted that the situation was kind of her cross to bear. And so at an early planning commission meeting, she decided that she was going to put all the awkwardness to rest. She stood up and addressed the assembled members directly, and she apologized for having been so selfish with regard to Jim's affections. She said the work of the temple was too important, and she'd come to understand that You know, many people in the temple needed to relate to the movement in a way that could only be fulfilled personally, intimately by her husband. And she promised that from now on, she was going to be willing to share him because her husband's role as father to the church was more important 
than any of her petty jealousies, you know, jealousies for which she hoped they'd forgive her. And with that, she walked out of the meeting, and Jim was very pleased. He had broken her, and from that point until the massacre at Jonestown was already underway, she played the good and loyal wife and did not challenge her husband again. Tim Stone's wife, Grace, did not share Marceline's submissiveness. She was not the type to tolerate being ignored or disrespected. And so it didn't take long for Tim's absenteeism to get old for her. He'd been very attentive when their relationship began, and this was not what she'd signed up for. But when she complained, Tim, you know, at this point, a total, total ideologue and totally subservient to Jim Jones, he would just chastise her for being insufficiently socialist. Grace had come to admire Jim Jones for the work that he clearly put in on behalf of other people, but she did not worship him, not like her husband did. And so Tim and Grace's relationship it hit the skids, and the way Tim tells the story, it was really all Jim's fault, you see. One day, Jim approached Tim Stone, and he complained that the demands of Temple women for his sexual attention had become just too much for him. He didn't have the time or energy to meet his obligations to his people, and yet these women needed him. What was he to do? And so he asked Tim, could you pretty please help me by having sex with one of the particularly needy women? Well, of course, Tim was married to Grace, but gosh, if it was for the good of the church and this poor woman, oh, all right, you know, I suppose in the name of service to my fellow man. That's Tim's version of how his infidelity began. Uh, at one point, Grace asked him point blank if Jim had asked him to begin sleeping with the woman, and he denied it. And after the fact, he claimed he was just covering for Jim, and I suppose since neither Jim nor the woman are around to dispute the story, he can claim whatever he wants. When she asked the question, uh, Tim went to Jim straight away to inform on her, writing a letter to Jim that he worried about his wife's loyalty to the church and warning Jim that she might come around asking loaded questions. You see a lot of this from temple members who survived the mass suicide. You know, they were just naive. That's all. They were just too trusting and really too idealistic. And, you know, they just wanted to help people so much that Jim Jones was able to play on that. And he really knew how to prey on their ardent desire to serve their fellow human beings. You know, when you have spent years uh, involved in a sexually abusive, insane suicide cult, you got to come up with something to tell people so that they don't hold you responsible for what happened. Because it's not like Jim Jones could have done any of this himself. He did not. So after Tim begins his liaison with this woman, Jim makes sure that Grace finds out about it. And sometime around then, Grace has sex with Jim Jones. During this period of friction between Tim and Grace, Grace Stone becomes pregnant. And she knew the temple policy on pregnancy. There were starving children available for adoption, and the world was overpopulated as it was. And so any woman who became pregnant in the church was expected to get an abortion, point blank. And so when her condition became common knowledge, she was confronted at a planning commission meeting about it. And of all people, the woman that her husband had been having an affair with, the one she knew about at least, uh, led the charge against her, suggesting that if she insisted on worsening the world's overpopulation problem, then she, and not her husband, the church, or anyone else, should have to pay for all the costs of childbirth. Some of the people there insulted her selfishness, and others laughed at her, 
made fun of her. And despite fierce pressure to abort the child, Grace was determined to bring it to term, but she was determined to do it alone by this point. Finally confronting Tim about his infidelity, you know, he used the righteousness defense. He pointed out that all the women that he'd been with were not even that attractive. And shouldn't that be proof that he'd really only been doing it as an act of compassion, you know, to help them? Maybe that sounded like a plausible defense to him, but it didn't to Grace. And she soon told him that she couldn't live with them anymore. Both Grace and Tim remained in the church, though, and they both remained loyal to Jim Jones, who at this point must have felt like, I can, I can, I can, I can get away with anything. I mean, he must have felt like he could do no wrong. And so for, from his perspective, things are going pretty well. The church is expanding its operations and holding regular events in San Francisco. Um, you know, he's basking in the attention of beautiful young women, and he's broken his wife's resistance to that. He's surrounded by people who adore him and a dedicated cadre of young activists ready to make his life's ambitions their own. Money was a problem. There was that. Uh, you know, donations hardly covered the temple's operating expenses, let alone his grand plans. But Jim had a plan for that, too. A plan that he had been waiting to hatch for over ten years. Father Divine was dead. And now it was time to go inherit his crown. And so Jim prepared his people meticulously for this operation. Divine had actually died in 65, and the movement had been putting along under the guidance of his young white widow. In the past, in Indianapolis, you know, Jim had tried and failed to take over Laurel Street Tabernacle Church. He had tried and failed to infiltrate the Golden Rule in Ukiah. But Divine's peace mission was always the prize. This is a multi-million dollar nationwide empire that would allow Jim to accelerate through years of developing People's Temple on his own and instantly vault him into the ranks of the most important figures on the American left. The things he could do if he got control of this thing. Father Divine's widow, we'll call her Mother Divine, uh, she had had a few years to build loyalty in the peace mission. You know, Father Divine, like I said, had been dead for a few years, but, you know, Jim had gotten no sense when he'd met her that she could present a credible challenge to him. Many in the peace mission knew and respected Jim Jones, and they knew of his good relationship with Father Divine. Divine himself had planted the seeds that Jim was going to use when he justified his remarriage to his new wife by claiming that his dead wife's spirit had transmigrated into her body. If Divine's people had bought that, why wouldn't they believe that Father Divine's spirit had taken up residence in the body of a young charismatic healer working every day for racial justice. And so Jim had his people learn peace mission songs and memorize facts about Father Divine. He had them studying, preparing, practicing. They began to call him Father and Marceline Mother. That's when they began this, just as Father Divine's followers would have been familiar with. And that habit would become permanent. And so Jim eventually, when he was ready, loaded up more than 200 of his followers, black and white, into a train of buses, and they made their way to Philadelphia. And they were welcomed as guests of honor when they got there. Room was found for them in the Peace Missions hotels in downtown Philly, but they were not there for a social call. Temple members scoped the buildings. You know, They were interviewing Peace Mission followers and gathering intelligence about them in little notebooks. 
Jim and some close aides remained at the mansion with Mother Divine, and that's when Jim began to put his plan in motion. They were led down to the elaborate burial chamber, lined with 24-karat gold wall tiles where two bronze statue angels were perched atop a limestone sarcophagus containing the remains of Father Divine. Jim Jones and Mother Divine stepped forward from the group to approach the body, the sarcophagus, and they read the inscription on it. Father coming to the country that is supposed to be the country of the free. And Jim annoyed Mother Divine right off the bat by kind of breaking the solemnity of the moment with a snarky comment, supposed to be the country of the free. But she let it go. And so as the people filed out, Jim held back with Divine's widow. Alone with her, he revealed that her husband's spirit had come to rest in his own body. Now, Father Divine had returned to the world to continue his mission in the form of Jim Jones. And perhaps more cleverly than Jim had anticipated, uh, Mother Divine put him off kind of diplomatically. She said that Father Divine had always told his people that upon his passing, his spirit would pass into each and every one of us. And that all people who sought to do good in the world would have a piece of, had a, have a share of his spirit. Pretty good. You know, she said this was true of Jim, but then she was more direct about it. No one can take father's place. You're no more special than anyone else. And so later, at a feast given in the honor of the temple visitors, in the grand banquet hall of a Peace Mission Hotel, Divine's followers are singing songs praising their deceased leader. And to Mother Divine's horror, the temple members who were prepared for this, they respond on cue. They're raising their arms and rapturously swaying to the praise songs, only they're directing their worship toward Jim as Father Divine returned in the flesh. Jim's people stood and one after another throughout the night are giving these well-practiced testimonies to the love and compassion and the great power of Jim Jones. And finally... Jim stands to address the peace mission members directly. Father Divine has conferred his mantle on me. We are from the same celestial plane and are messengers. His spirit has come to rest in my body. And a gasp goes up from the peace mission followers. Could it be true? They looked up at Jim and they look at one another and to the temple members who are alternately gazing toward them with affected love and welcome and then toward Jim and rapturous worship mother divine is beside herself so she stands up and tells jim that he and his people must leave immediately and she announced to her people that he was not father divine and in fact may actually be that other fellow the devil some of the peace mission members bought the charade and they would return on the buses to the temple in california but not enough of them jim had been so confident in his charisma Within his own bubble, you know, his people competed with one another to turn his every whim into a reality. He hardly remembered what it was like to be told no. He thought that Mother Divine, unmarried at 45, isolated in her splendor at the top of this personality cult, that she could be bowled over by his charisma, and that she would welcome being joined by a man who could take the reins of Divine's movement and allow her to kind of return to the secondary, more passive role of, of, of Peace Mission's First Lady. But it turned out that she was not the pushover that you know he had imagined, and his plan had failed. His great-grand plan had failed. 
Returning to California, his people wrote letters to Peace Mission members whose information they gathered. They spread rumors that while Jim and Mother Divine were down in the tomb of her husband, that she'd torn open her blouse and begged Jim to have sex with her atop the sarcophagus of Father Divine. She became so angry when Jim refused that she'd rejected his offer to unite People's Temple and the Peace Mission, even though she knew the truth that Jim was carrying the spirit of Father Divine. Their campaign did have an effect. A short time later, several empty buses were sent back to Philadelphia to collect defectors and bring them out to California. But in the end, it was only a few elderly women who were who, who got back on those buses and, and headed, headed to Cali. There wasn't even any property to be had out of it. In exchange for permanent residence in temple communal care homes, the old ladies who came over, they signed over their shares that they owned in Peace Mission properties, but Father Divine had accounted for something like that, and as it turned out, each Peace Mission member's shares were set up to revert back to the organization after they died. About a dozen old ladies was all the temple had gotten out of his extensive preparations for this Peace Mission coup. And this was a disaster for Jim Jones. For years, he had been plotting to take over the Peace Mission. You know, that was the plan. One he had shared with many of his followers, whose help he needed in the attempt, and now he'd failed. And now here he was, a pastor with a small, relatively small following in a rural northern California, you know, uh, city. Um, a, a would-be civil rights leader with almost no black people within a hundred miles head of a community that had uprooted their lives on his say-so, who, like him, were working multiple jobs just to keep the lights on for their kids and seniors. Maybe Jim could have settled down in Ukiah as a small-town pastor of a committed congregation. You know, they stuck with him after 1967 came and went, along with his initial prediction of the date of nuclear apocalypse, but they had followed him to California to save themselves and, and change the world. You know, it was this sense of mission that kept his people together and bound to him. I gave you my opinion on the fact that I think it was probably all the way back in Indianapolis when Jim Jones began to lose his mind. You know, but it wasn't really until California that he started requiring his followers to lose theirs as well. After the failed takeover of the peace mission with people wondering about the direction of the church and perhaps even questioning why they had left Indianapolis to live in an all-white California cow town two hours from anywhere, and with this new batch of Bay Area radicals that had come up to be a part of this, having left San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley in places where they might have been able to do more work, Jim Jones called his people together. And they assembled in the meeting place. Marceline wrote the song list on the chalkboard, and his son Stephen ran the chords for the microphones while the rest of their family waited. The Indiana flock trusted their leader to have a plan, and the new California activists waited anxiously to hear what it was. Tim Stone sat next to Grace with her round, pregnant belly. Carolyn directed the last of the people to their seats. And they watched the stage where their leader would presently appear. Jim knew what his people were feeling. He had their pulse. He knew how to build anticipation. You know, how to pluck all their emotions in the old Pentecostal style to make his services something you wouldn't want to miss. 
He knew, he knew people. He, he knew a lot about how we work. He couldn't have written a psychology textbook. It was intuitive, but he knew us. And when the band struck up at the precise moment and Jim walked out onto that stage, the wild applause that his people flew into, it was natural and sincere. And that's the level of emotion he could keep them at throughout an entire church service. And he comes out and he joins in the music and leads the men in singing. We live and die for freedom. We live and die for freedom. And then the women and the children. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And Jim begins to put his people to the test. As the people sing and and clap and dance, he's cutting in with slogans to the tune of the song. No more poverty. And then back to the singing. Freedom, down with racism. Freedom. Jim leads them into the closing chorus. Freedom and speaking over it. I'm here to show you as a sample and example that you can bring yourself up by your own bootstraps. People began to cheer. People go to church looking for God, but I'm here to show you that you can become your own God. Not in condescension, but in resurrection and upliftment from whatever economic condition, injustice or racism or servitude with which you have had to endure. Within you rest the keys of deliverance. We ask for no condescending saviors that's been pawned off on every breast. And I, God that came from of this earth, from this dust and this toil of this field, hardships of labor from the lowest of economic positions, from the misery of poverty near the railroad tracks, I come to show you that the only God you need is within you. And the responses come heavy. Yeah, right on. Jim swaggering across the stage. None other. That's my purpose in being here. When that transition comes, there shall be no need for gods or any other kind of ideology. Religion, the opiate of the people, shall be removed from the consciousness of mankind. There shall no longer be any need of anything called religion when freedom comes. These people are feeling it, shouting back their approval. Hell yeah! Yeah, you got it! I came in the power of God and religion. All the power you said God had, I have. I have come to make one final dissolution. One final elimination of all religious feeling. Until I have eradicated it from the face of the earth, I will do all the miracles you said your God would do and never did. I shall heal you of all the diseases. I will provide you with the cures that you prayed for and never happened. Jim liked to interrupt his rants with some wandering tangents. Uh, He reminded everybody how he'd recently saved a woman from a fire by his prophecy and raised a crippled woman to dance around the room. People are cheering, answering back, affirming, shouting back at him. You got a few hundred people in the room, you know, fixed on Jim Jones like there's nothing else in the world. You know, these are his people, and he challenges them. I see some are not aware of what God is. The only thing that brings perfect justice, freedom, and equality, perfect love, and all its beauty and holiness is socialism. Socialism! The crowd goes freaking wild, and Jim just flies into it. I have taken myself a body. The same one that walked on the ancient plains, of whom Solomon said his hair was as black as a raven. And he said he would shave, as Isaiah said, 720, with a razor. I come shaved with a razor. I come with the black hair of the raven. I come as God socialist. He's shouting at the top of his lungs with a microphone, and he's being drowned out by the cheering at this point. He waits for a lull. I shall show you from time to time proofs of that so that you will have no further need of religion because the highest authority tells you so. I come to you doing all the things you have ever imagined God to do and you have never seen done. 
It's beautiful to know God is a socialist worker. He is one of the people. He is all that you have desired, all the freedom, justice, all the sensitivity in minds. And I must say, it's a great effort to be God. Jim often framed his miracles just like his sex, his tasks, which, you know, they took a lot out of him. So he was not only healing and saving his people, but doing so at great cost to himself and in great difficulty. And so he points to a man in the audience. My brother John came to me last week. You were concerned that something was lost. He lost it miles and miles away. Well, my spirit retrieved it for you today. Out of his sleeve, Jim produces Brother John's lost credit card. And he passes it to an aide to bring to the amazed man. And the crowd is going crazy. And you hear some guy shout, God damn, in the background. And the music's going this whole time. And you got to remember, the thing's a whole production. Where the organ would make a sort of suspenseful music as Jim's describing that John has lost something. And then rise right at the moment that Jim pulls the credit card out to show the crowd. And then it would go into a sort of happy interlude when John receives his lost credit card. I mean, the whole thing's got a soundtrack. You know, there are periods when there's no music, but that's part of the soundtrack, too. So you have this emotional event where a, a grandmaster MC, Jim Jones, is pulling people around with his words. But those words are amplified by the music and everything else, which really just keys the people into the precise mood that Jim wants them to be in as he pushes through this. You know, and they're all doing it together. They're in a place that they built with their own hands. Building on each other's emotion, just cathartic emotional levels and feelings of being close to one another that, you know, they would achieve in these events. These people who had decided to move across the country so that they could live with each other in a different kind of way. And it's not easy. And they're kind of out here on their own, but they're with each other together with their leader, the great man. Tim Reiterman does a great job with this sermon, so I'll let him take it over from here. With organ music and people keeping time with their hands, Jones shouted over them like some Bible thumper, urging people not to hate because it boomerangs, decrying loopholes that let the rich escape taxes, calling for freedom from the bondage of the aristocratic rich. Then, in a frantic and seemingly incoherent fashion, Jones railed about the theft of the Bill of Rights, the spread of social disease, drug abuse by eight- and nine-year-olds, and drug pushing to fourth-graders, even here in rural Redwood Valley. No heavenly God could cope with those things, could he? He reminded them of his own miracles and parapsychology and social goals, all in one breathless rush. If you don't need a God, fine. But if you need a God, I'm going to nose out that God. He's a false God. I'll put the right concept in your life. You understand the mystery? If you don't have a God and you're already believing that you have to build a society to eliminate poverty, racism, and injustice in war, I will not bother you. But... If you're holding on to that sky god, I'll nose him out ten lengths every time. Will you tell me you believe in a god out there? He shrieked in anger as at imaginary doubters. So what? What's your sky god ever done? Two out of three nations in the world are hungry. Misery in every one of your homes. Then his voice rises to a crescendo. The only happiness you've ever found is when you've come to this earth god. Waiting for their cries to die down, he went on. When you came to your socialist worker father, some of you never knew the fulfillment of happiness. You never knew that anyone cared. Your children were in difficulties. No one came to the jails. You prayed to your sky god and he never heard your prayers. You asked and begged and pleaded in your suffering and he never gave you any food. He never gave you a bed. He never provided a home. But I, 
Your socialist worker god have given you all these things. Then, in a display of power, as though to demonstrate that no harm would befall blasphemers, he slammed a black Bible onto the floor. There were cheers. No fears of doing that, he said, almost out of breath. Say what you feel. Tap all the resources of energy within you. No, it's not sacred. You won't die if... He flung the book down again. If you drop it, you won't die if you stand on it. He put both feet on the book, the toes of his shoes hanging over the edge, and tottered a little. His, audi- his audience delighted in the performance, reveled in his rebelliousness. They, too, were above the Bible that had guided the lives of so many of them. You won't die if you jump up and down on it. Jones calmed himself purposefully. He told them, I want you to realize that you must be the scripture, that any other scripture than you and the word that I am now imparting is idolatry. Yeah, they were with him again. He urged them and they urged back. They were one. I know where I am going. I know what I believe and I know what I am doing. Jones hollered, straining for a peek. And I've got a principle that will carry me on if the world passes away. When your world has failed you, I'll be standing. Jim shouted, savoring each word as if it were being handed down from the Almighty. Because I am freedom. I am peace. I am justice. I am God. The people went wild, cheering, cheering, cheering. See socialism as God in me, he told them. Look upon me harmoniously. Every service I've said that socialism has a higher dimension than the three dimensions. You don't have to worry about that God up there, he told those who still believed in a heavenly being. I can heal your back when your spine's wasting away and your doctor says you can't be helped, and I can cure it. You're free. You're free of that God. I want you to penalize that old God up there. He was ranting now, shouting at the heavens, challenging. If you're all-powerful, send one of your magic wands, he mocked. Send your electric lightning. Send your thunder. Let it rain. He stopped to give God a chance to perform. Nothing happened. The people chortled. That contest won. Jones took it one step further. When I was laying on springs with no covers, and the rain was pouring through the roof of my old ramshackle house, and they told me to pray to God, there was no God that came. The rain kept pouring. I had a beam of consciousness. I said, there shouldn't be any poor. There shouldn't be any private property. The pain and poverty of poverty and disadvantage flowed from his voice, A matter-of-fact righteousness, vengeance, swelled in his chest. Every time I take a drive in the country, I see a private property, no trespassing sign. I take those signs down. Approving laughter all around. When I want to trespass, I just trespass. Because they robbed the people to get it. They took it from my people, the Indians. They came down and shot our babies, raped our mothers. His words boomed like cannon fire. They took our babies and stripped off the scalps. He jumped from Indians to the precociousness of children, of mixed races, to sex. It's come up that there have been bisexual and homosexual patterns among church members, he said. And we got somebody coming in that won't tell the facts. And they say, I am a great lover. Now I know what you told me. He pauses and there is silence. One by one, he points them out with his index finger. One cluck of his tongue for each. He was making their admissions for them, those homosexuals, latent and otherwise. Raising his volume preacherly and righteously, he said, There can be nothing going on in the bedroom until mankind is liberated. There's no freedom in that bedroom. I've come to one of you. I've come to all of you. 
As I said, you'd be happier to admit it. Right, a woman called out. Right, a man called out. Right, came a whole chorus of voices. I told you before. Throughout his whole life, Jim Jones would respond to being backed into a corner by coming out swinging. If Jim Jones couldn't have Father Divine's movement, fine. He would build one himself. To do that, he needed money and he needed people. And so he went back to what he knew using the two assets that he did have at his disposal. His own charisma and the tireless dedication of his people. And so Jim Jones and his people hit the road. They rented more buses and they started heading into San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle. Members in cars would go first, precede them by a week or so, or maybe a few days, and they would scout locations to hold their revival meetings, making arrangements, and then papering the whole city with leaflets and flyers announcing that the famous wonder worker, Pastor Jim Jones, was coming to town. They walked the streets of minority and poor white neighborhoods, spreading rumors about the miraculous healings, prophecies, and, and resurrections that had been witnessed in previous services. Multitudes had been healed, even raised from the dead, and, and through his clairvoyant gift, he had averted countless calamities that otherwise would have brought people to their doom. Also, there would be music and a free meal after the service, so people could come for that reason. They put a huge amount of effort into building a following in San Francisco, and they were soon able to establish a permanent uh, place for themselves in a location on Geary Boulevard in the Folsom District. Jim knew from his days on the revival circuit that it was healing that really brought in money. And so he started emphasizing that in a way that he hadn't been doing among his more politically oriented audience up in Ukiah. The planning commission helped pull off the chicanery. And when scouts spoke with people who planned on attending, they took down any bit of information they might prove useful. Spies would dig through the trash of attendees for uh, empty medicine bottles, say, and, and people had no explanation but divine power when Jim called them out from the stage and identified their illnesses. If the spies found letters from debt collectors or late bills from utility companies, Jim knew to identify those people with money problems, and the church made careful investments. You know, paying off one person's debt or late electric bill, that would bring in multiples of that amount in the form of donations from the rest of the audience. And it, and it made sure that larger and more excited crowds would show up at the next temple event. Soon, temple buses were heading out all across the whole country for months at a time on carefully planned trips that brought them into dozens of cities on a single trip. The coordination was magnificent. You know, each stop was preceded by energetic temple scouts who would find the venues. Uh, they would find parks and campgrounds where temple members could, could sleep. You know, they, they, they would introduce themselves to local church leaders and, and set up collaborative events and guest sermons for Jim Jones. And they would go around spreading the good news and even gathering information about local issues and politics that Jim could use when he was giving his speeches. And Jim was a sponge. You know, he would do an event in one city, pack up the buses, drive through the night to the next destination, and by the time he arrived, he'd soaked up enough information to be ready to play on local political controversies and to call out audience members by name, you know, prophesying and healing them. Jim Jones was good at this. There's just no other way to put it. He was never shy about adapting someone else's good ideas. Just as he had taken up Father Divine's organizational structure, he ripped off a practice that he'd gotten from a dude named Reverend Ike, who was a famous 
black evangelist back in the day who would sell pictures of himself and vials of water that he'd blessed as holy water, you know, bits of cloth from robes that he'd worn and other little trinkets and relics that would promise to protect their owner from, you know, various illnesses and accidents and so forth. Different items supposedly had different properties and would protect you from different calamities. You know, whether people believed in the hocus pocus or just wanted souvenirs, this made money, you know, hand over fist. And I know that probably sounds like a scam to you guys. Uh, Jim truly did not see it that way. You know, the church started raking in money from this stuff, but, but Jim Jones never lived some extravagant life. Your Reverend Ike, the guy that Jim took the idea of selling pictures and trinkets from, he was rolling around in big cars, living in mansions, you know, fancy suits, jewelry. The, the, the preacher you see on TV today, Joel Austin, have you seen that guy's yacht? Jim Jones did never, he never did any of that. He never did any of that. To, all the way to the very end. I mean, he wore old clothes. He drove a beat-up car. The only material privileges he ever took were, um, you know, later on in Jonestown, he would have a Coke when everyone else was drinking water. And he'd make some excuse about his blood sugar or something. Like, you know, even then, he was a raging hypochondriac, so he probably believed it. This is a guy who, when he was back in Indianapolis getting started, with just a handful of old black folks coming to his services, they couldn't afford to donate to the church. These people, you know, they, they, they were coming to his church because they'd heard that Jim Jones was helping people in need. And Jim was working two or three jobs just to keep the church doors open and provide services to these people. People wouldn't be able to make a utility bill or rent payment, and Jim was coming out of his own pocket to help them. Not out of the church's pocket. You know, he was working multiple jobs just to keep the church open. This was money that he was making by working those multiple jobs. You know, don't ever forget that about Jim Jones. Because if you forget that, uh, if, you, if you forget that end of things, as we move into this last part of the story, and things get so crazy and go downhill, uh... You know, if you forget that side of it, it really cheapens the whole story. You know, Jim Jones is working 18, 20 hours a day, every day, seven days a week for his church. He is fully engaged. You know, everyone says he has this extraordinary memory, inhuman memory when it came to people. He remembered everyone's name. You know, if they told him anything about their family or something from their past or a problem they were having, he remembered it. And he would spend his day visiting people, calling on them, uh, you know, asking his people if they were having problems and then spending the rest of the day doing whatever he could to help. I mean, he was going hard. And yet he never took a salary. His family, for their personal needs, lived on what Marceline made in her job as a nurse. Everything the church made went into church projects or to help people in the church. There were one or two times that Jim had to dip into church funds a bit because... You know, something came up that he couldn't cover. But in those one or two instances, the board voted on it and approved it. I'm not saying he didn't get anything out of this, obviously. You know, power, adulation, sex, obviously those are important motivators and benefits. But it wasn't about money. It wasn't about anything material. I mean, it's pretty clear that Jim actually enjoyed living as cheaply and simply as possible, whether to make a point or not. I mean, that's what he did. And again, the dude's schedule was insane. I mean, he would literally take his people down to San Francisco Saturday morning, 
set up in an auditorium, do a morning service. And he was not a lazy preacher, as you just found out. I mean, he's up there getting down, shouting, sweating. You know, it's a party, and he's the MC. That ends. They do a potluck or something, and he makes the rounds, ministering to his people. They get ready for an evening service. He does it all again. That finishes. They pack up. They get on the buses. They drive through the night to Los Angeles, and Sunday morning it's the same thing in L.A. Then they share a meal. They do an evening service in L.A. They pack up. Back on the buses, eight or nine hour drive back up to Ukiah, but they don't go to bed yet. They pile into the Ukiah building and the planning commission talks about the weekend's events. What went well, what went wrong, you know, lessons learned, who was slacking off and who was working hard and preparing for events and responsibilities that were set to begin in just a few hours on Monday morning. On the bus rides, people were sleeping underneath in the cargo bays, up in the luggage racks. You know, that was some of the only time they could really find to get any, you know, consistent sleep. And then all week, it's drives to Oakland, uh, San Francisco, Berkeley, back to Ukiah, back to L.A. for meetings, to minister people, conducting planning commission meetings in the wee hours of the morning, increasingly every night. A lot of these people were wrapping up PC meetings at 2, 3 a.m., getting to bed at 4, waking up at 6 because they had a job that started at 7. And the people who were going even that hard, did not complain about it because they knew that Jim Jones was going harder. And whatever else he was, he, he, he was doing, he, he was not running a scam. When Jim Jones said, from each according to their ability to each according to their need, he wasn't just recommending that as a political program. You know, he believed that to act otherwise was a sin. It was evil. It was evil that there were people hungry or who couldn't afford medical care or a place to live when other people were rich. To him, that was the definition of evil. That and the reasons that people would use to justify that, like racism. You know, it's okay that I'm rich and this other person is starving because da 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 da. That was the definition of evil to Jim Jones. And so if he was able to get you to part with some of your money by selling you some bullshit so that that money could be redistributed in a more equitable way to somebody who needed it more. He was not just helping the needy person. He was actually helping you by keeping you from committing sin. If I have to trick you in order to keep you from committing murder or rape or robbery or some other evil, my trick is saving you from yourself. The government threatens us with jail in order to collect taxes to pay for wars and prisons. And everyone says that's normal. If we sell a picture of Jim Jones to some old bird who believes in me enough to pay $5 for a photo, but you know doesn't believe in her sky god enough to give $5 to the poor, that's supposed to be a scam? That's the way he thought about it. He'd respond in his sermons to people who balked at seeing so many pictures of Jim Jones around the temple and to people buying photos of him and saw it kind of as a form of idolatry. And he said, every church in the world tells you that you should do good because God is watching. And how's that working out? You see a lot of good being done by people who claim to believe in that sky god, that abstract nothing god. People say, you know, I must do good for God is watching. When they stepped over a homeless man on their way to church and didn't even notice him. If love for that old buzzard god worked, you wouldn't need Jim Jones. I'd go sit in the pews and worship your sky god right alongside you, and we wouldn't live in this world of racism and capitalist sin. Obviously, it doesn't work. Obviously, most of you need something you can see and touch and who can 
stand in front of you and provide an example. He would tell him, you don't like my picture? Fine, I don't care what you use. If you want to use pictures of Harriet Tubman, we'll use pictures of Harriet Tubman. Whatever it takes to get you people who have been so corrupted by habits of mind instilled by a capitalist society to shake loose of it and actually start acting in the way that you damn well know is right. You can think of it as a kind of Robin Hood, you know, taking from people who have in order to give to people who don't. But as you listen to all the hundreds of sermons, as I have, a a kind of a coherent theology emerges behind it. Jim Jones saw the spirit of capitalism, you know, encouraging greed, competition, division, inequality, hatred. He saw that as the devil itself. It, it, It was the devil. He didn't believe in some being called the devil. The devil was something that somebody could be possessed by. You know, as when Jesus told his disciple Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. And Jim saw socialism as God. Which also, God was not a being. It was a spirit that one could inhabit. And which was synonymous with cooperation, love, brotherhood, that kind of thing. The Bible says God is love. And Jim Jones says socialism is love manifested economically and politically. And so Jim's worldview began to firm up. The United States was the representative and chief enforcer of the devil. Because its reason for existence seemed to be to stamp out and destroy socialism. God, wherever it was found. The man who... Years back, had seen People's Temple as a refuge for his people, you know, to escape the possibility of nuclear war. Now began to see his church sort of as more of a, a wartime entity in, in in a way, and also as a, as a place of refuge for people who were trapped in the land of the devil. It was the dualistic vision of geopolitics embraced by the new left radicals, but wrapped up in spiritual trappings and served to a religious audience. One Temple member, Gene Clancy, remembered, quote, When I was first in Redwood Valley, Jim called me out. He said, You say you don't like me because I talk bad about Jesus, but really you don't like me because I'm a socialist. And he had me. He just had me. His insight wasn't something you could get from an information card. He, he, was, in, he was observing me. What he was saying is that all that Christianity stuff is passe. The higher good is socialism. And you don't know diddly squat. If you join us, you'll be among the greatest people in the world in a movement that's going to challenge the CIA, racial inequality, economic inequality, everything. What is being supplanted is your theology, your worldview. So when it comes to turning your glance away from the things that are going on, you've already made your compromise. You've already said, I don't know anything about socialism. I was born into capitalist sin. I was born into racist sin. Socialism is your theology. And Jim Jones is the only one who can deliver you. Because he's the only one who knows. So women had sex with him. If somebody needed the shit beat out of them, people did it. I mean, stuff happened. Abuse happened. In my mind, it happened because we're in this limbo, this purgatory, this hell. And we're given this standard, which those of us who really believed tried our darndest to uphold. Whether it was celibacy or no alcohol or the work, living on $2 a week, you just couldn't do enough to purge yourself of this unrighteousness, this privilege that you were born into. You were born into money. You were born into the bourgeoisie. I can't speak for black people, but this is what hit me. 
a middle-class, religious, white kid who was deeply distressed about what was going on in the world. End quote. Another way that the church began to make serious money was by encouraging more and more people to live communally. Members who were good with children were assigned to large houses, and the temple got certified to take in foster kids. The state would pay the church for each orphan that it cared for. Members who worked full-time for the church were technically unemployed, and they would live communally, and they would collect welfare, and that money went to the church. A large number of elderly folks gave up their houses if they owned them and moved into the temple's rest homes, and the church would take the proceeds from selling their houses, and they would get the person's social security check, and in return, the church would you know, take care of all their needs. And so as it had for Father Divine, the communal living arrangement was a huge moneymaker for Jim Jones. All that extra money allowed them to provide services to people who otherwise would have had nothing at all. Phil Tracy uh, was one of the journalists who, in the end, would help bring down People's Temple um, at the end of its life. And he, he wrote about this. You know, this is a guy who's not sympathetic to the temple, obviously. Um, but he later on, he discussed the work that Jim Jones was managing in the community. Quote, I mean, he was feeding 600, 700, 800 people a night in shifts. And they had access to things that, as individual families, these poor people never would have had access to. You know, they had whirlpools and sonograms. I'm talking about in the 70s, right? This was not ordinary equipment at that time. What Jones was doing was he was using economy of scale to buttress his economics by connecting into that money from the state of California that it would give to foster care homes. Jones eventually developed political connections, and he had a track record from Indiana and then in California. They'd been doing this for years. I mean, the state was paying foster parents an average of $5 a night for supper, but normally that went to individual parents looking after a handful of kids at most. Jones was feeding them for 55 cents, and the difference went into people's temple's coffers. He also had a bunch of old people who were on Social Security and who couldn't probably live very well as individuals because of the rent involved, but if he warehoused them in these homes that he had, well, he can make a lot of money that way. Social Security became a pretty big part of his income, end quote. And people were packed in tight, but for a lot of the older people who took him up on the offer, I mean, it really was a big improvement in their lives. You imagine you're one of those old black ladies I mentioned earlier, 70, 80 years old. You know, you're born into the Jim Crow South in the 1890s, okay? If you're 80 in 1970 and you're in the temple, you're born in 1890. Okay, you've not led an easy life. You come out with your husband in one of the migration waves looking for work in California. Maybe like a lot of black migrants, your husband ends up finding a job working the docks at the Oakland port and living where a lot of them did in the neighborhood adjacent. Life in an Oakland ghetto does not turn out to be much easier than it was in the South. By now, you're an old lady, your husband's dead, you know, your kids, maybe they're in jail, maybe they're still around, uh, but they're, you know, the, the ghetto is not an easy place for people to live. Uh, and you still live in the old house that you guys bought, but now the neighborhood has turned into a gang and drug infested blight. You don't even like leaving your house. It doesn't feel safe. You spend most of your time alone, and then you come into one of these communal homes run by the temple, and you've got friends, 
other women like yourself and people are really kind, you know, not like hospital staff, nice, but actually friendly. You know, they want to be your friend. And some of the foster kids are there and you help take care of them. And so you were all alone and now you're playing with little kids and white kids. You know, this lady who maybe was 50 already when she left the Jim Crow South just to find herself in an all black ghetto. She's in this temple home helping take care of little white kids who are hopping on her lap and calling her grandma and they love her. You know, or maybe it's a child of one of the temple women who drops her child off while she's at work. And when she gets back to pick up the child, this white woman is just genuinely kind and open with you. You know, there's no formality to it. It's like you're part of a big family. And she dropped the kid off at grandma's for the day. You know, I don't think it's easy to really wrap our heads around what that would be like for a woman who had been through that life. I've read a lot of their testimonies. The church would take them down where they would tell their stories and what it was like when they found this place. And it was as if like it, it was as if they, you know, they, they had found something that they never believed could exist. Martin Luther King dreamed about little white boys and girls and little black boys and girls playing together. And that just being an everyday state of affairs where their color didn't even come into play. I'm telling you right now. For all of the problems that this church had, and it is going to get crazy here coming up, that part of it was real. One black man who made it out of the temple before the whole thing fell apart was named Eugene Smith. And he never liked talking about the experience. Unlike, uh, by the way, a lot of the white leadership who helped Jim Jones build the whole thing into the insane monster it became, before stepping out of the way of the truck at the very end. And now they love to tell every author and documentarian what poor innocent victims they were of the evil Jim Jones. But Eugene Smith did give an interview later on uh, explaining how it was his mother who had brought in his family to the temple when he was in high school. Quote, My mother had always searched for the perfect religion. She was always searching to be saved or searching to find something that would fulfill her life. Something was missing there, and I don't know what it was. You know, this woman who was born in Arkansas in 1903 only had a third-grade education. She had worked in the mills. She'd been a domestic worker. I went through the archives and, uh, end quote, I, I went through the archives and I found that his mother had given her own testimony. His mother, Maddie Gibson, told it like this, quote, when I was a child, I had very little schooling, no shoes, no proper food or clothing. I never went past the third grade. We lived in a country area and sharecropped. We really didn't have anything of our own. I worked in the fields. My mother did domestic work for 50 cents a day. I'm just going to pause for one second. I mean, just it's easy to get for me anyway to get caught up in these things. This is a letter from a real woman. You know, this is a real woman. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, you know, this isn't a story. It's not a story. This is, a, this is, this is something that, uh, you know, they took down from the testimony of a real black woman who was born in 1903 and found herself in People's Temple. Go back to it. During the Depression, I worked for 75 cents a day. My mother was a very smart and shifty woman. She had to be. I remember how we had to carry wood to keep the school warm. 
I remember a boy who was a friend of my brother. They said he was looking in a window. They took him out and castrated him. The people were afraid to talk. The doctor didn't do anything about it. There was no hospital, and so he died. My father had his horse taken from him that he had worked and saved for because my sister rode it to town during work time. We had to work extra hard to get money for the barest essentials. They only gave Dad $50 to get his crop started. I had to walk five miles each way to school. I had to wade through icy water. There was no way around. In school, I remember brutal beatings. There were lynchings. I have blocked it out. End quote. And her son, Eugene, said that he never thought a place like the temple existed until he found it. And he noticed that if you worked hard, then everybody liked you. And so he worked hard, and everybody liked him, and he liked them. The church put him through school. One member asked for some help publishing the temple newsletter, and so Eugene volunteered, and the guy took his time with him and taught him all the ins and outs of offset printing. While they were doing that, he saw Eugene checking out some of the cameras that they used to take pictures to the newsletter. And so he brought Eugene to the photographer and introduced them. And the photographer showed him all the stuff he knew about photography. He was interested in learning mechanics. And when he went down to the church mechanic shop, the boys down there welcomed him and taught him how to fix tractors and cars. Eugene Smith, of all people, uh, knows the dark side of Jonestown, but, you know, he would smile. It, it was a sad smile, but he would smile when he told these stories. Quote, Not only were you somebody, but somebody cared enough for you to help you get an education, give you clothing, pay your tuition, put you in college. And all you have to do is just be there. That's where a lot of people were at. They saw the breakfast program. They saw the community gardens. They saw the kids make these emotional U-turns from being a complete introvert, attention deficit child, to being somebody who can not only speak to adults and look you in the eye, but they actually play and laugh. And you see these kids turn around and all the rest. That drew people in. End quote. There was one old black man they called Pop Jackson. He was born in 1874, if you can believe that. He was over a hundred years old when he took up the offer to move full-time out to Jonestown. And here's what he said. Quote, I'm settling around here free this morning. Ain't nobody got no pistol on me. Ain't nobody running up behind me. Pull over there. White man always wanted to know what you're doing. Where you been last night? Put your hands on that car. And they go around putting stuff in your pocket. You better take that stuff out of my pocket. Everybody that come up that want to do something for a nigger, they shot him. They shot Martin Luther King for trying to talk for his race. They killed the two Kennedy brothers for trying to talk for the people. Shot him right through the head. And you tell me. Ah, shit. They say this is the white man's world. As long as you work with the white man, you live. If you didn't, they do you just like Martin Luther King. You shot. I could spend my life telling you because I spent my life back there. And all the dirty things I'm telling you, they happen. And when it comes to Jonestown, I'm telling you it's the best place that ever was. I want Jonestown to be cared for because it cared for me. When I came here, it was just getting started. 
I've been fooling around the United States for a hundred years and it didn't do a thing for me. The United States is the last place you ought to stop to. You in danger. You should go around that because if you go around, you'll live longer. End quote. You know, this is why what happened to People's Temple when Jim Jones and the white leadership class in the church that was running things really lost their minds. It just magnifies the tragedy that took place. The people who came into the movement for the left wing politics, you know, the people who ended up on staff and the planning commission, they tore each other apart in insane and sadistic, sadistic ways behind the scenes. But if you were one of these people on the front end, one of the old ladies or old men or orphans or the convicts and drug addicts and mentally handicapped and physically handicapped and any one of the people who had been alone and kicked around your whole life, you came into a place where you were for the first time in your entire life truly accepted and treated like a human being worthy of love and respect. I am not bullshitting you. You know, it absolutely transformed these people's lives in a way that would be hard to believe if I didn't know it happened. It was one member, Deanna Wilkinson. She was the lead singer of the Temple Band. Incredible singer. I mean, the Temple Band, Jonestown Express, they were very good. Um, you know, they were drawing a lot of talent and they could get down. I'm telling you, they were good. And so Deanna Wilkinson was the lead singer and she had joined the temple from Indianapolis when the church buses had come through the city to put on one of their traveling shows. Uh, she didn't come out with the original group. It was when they came back there once and her story just, just kills me. You know, you have to see the videos of her in that band when she's singing. I mean, she is up there. And she is just in her element, you know, totally in control and just so happy. And this is her story of how she ended up joining the temple in her own words. Quote. Born in 1950 in a place called Cook County, Illinois. I was delivered at a Salvation Army Booth Hospital. I am of mixed race. My mother white and my father black. I was just one more nobody born into the dirty filth of a Chicago city street. My life began with both parents alcoholics and out of work. As a small infant, I became the victim of a parental quarrel and somehow got caught between them arguing. When my father threw hot grease at my mother, it hit me burning me so badly that I still have the permanent scars of burn damage on my face, neck, mouth, and ears. My parents deserted me soon after, and the welfare system took over my life. At the age of one year, I had the unhappy pleasure of coming into contact with a woman by the name of Alice Moten, better known to me as the Devil. Life with her in Indianapolis, Indiana, was hell. By the time I reached five, my musical talent was being exploited. Most of my life those years was spent staying up night after night practicing piano until it was time to go to school the next morning, or being beat for not practicing. 
As a result, I failed many of my school years and served my time in a special education class for the retarded, which threw me far behind in school for the rest of my life. I can't remember how old I was when I attempted to commit suicide. I tried hanging a rope around the water pipe and putting my neck in the noose. I stood on a chair and jumped, but the pipe broke. I felt my life was destined to become nothing, and I was right. I lost my job because of coming to work drunk or high on diet pills and marijuana. I met this one young man I thought was nice and started dating him. I was dumber than cow shit. I fell for any line that was nice and sweet. I started meeting different people, the wrong people who I thought were my friends and liked me. We'd get high and sell joints and nickel bags, ride all night long. Until one day I saw a friend stick herself with one of those needles, and I saw how she got hooked. I looked up to her. She was 31 and I was 19. I thought maybe if I got an older guy, maybe he might be settled and maybe things can change. I went with a man. He was about 40. He had a good paying job as a bricklayer. You know, when you're a black man in a poor community, a bricklaying job is considered good position and money. I found out that he was a half-stepping pimp who hustled women on the side. He didn't let on to me that he was a pimp, and I was too dumb to realize it. He did set me up with a job at Marion County Hospital in Indianapolis, and I was doing pretty good until I started drinking and staying out late. One night he wanted me to stay home, and I told him to kiss my ass. He beat me up until I couldn't see out of my eyes. I called in sick the next morning, and she says, Well, Miss Wilkinson, if you can't come in, then we can't use you. I really started letting my whole self fall down after that. I took an overdose of speed and had to be rushed to General Hospital to have my stomach pumped. I was 20 years old. I continued to stay out in the streets, getting into more things than I could handle. During my childhood, my stepmother came in contact with People's Temple and Jim Jones. I met some of the Temple children who all befriended me, including Jim's children. They were children of every race, and they were really nice to me. I thought a lot of Jim because he was living in the middle of a black neighborhood in the heart of the ghetto on 13th and Broadway in Indianapolis. Also, that his adopted black son was named after him, Jimmy Jr. The Jones family had a lot of pets, and all of them, especially Jim, were really kind to me. This is the only recollection of any happiness in my entire childhood. But Jim and his family went away, and during the time I was separated from them, I left home and got really messed up and messed over. When Jim returned, he came to Indiana and held a meeting. I didn't know right away that Jim and his family had since moved to California. Jim didn't even ask me if I had any money. When I told him what had been happening in my life, and now she's weeping. He asked me to come to California with them. As I sat on the beautiful Greyhound bus Jim had bought for his people, I looked out the window and said goodbye to Indiana. Goodbye to the pain and misery and knowing I never, ever had to look at that life anymore. At the end of the transcript of her story, Dick Tropp, who had recorded taking it down, he made an addendum, quote, 
afterward. Although Deanna speaks very modestly of her musical talent, she is recognized by many people as a musical genius. She is lead singer of the Jonestown Express Band and is known as Lady Soul. She has received standing ovations in major nightclubs. She is an excellent organist, pianist, and composer of both music and lyrics. End quote. He's not lying. She's good. And I'm telling you, when you watch her perform, she's up there, and she is in control, and she is free. You know, she's still got those terrible scars all over her face and neck from the hot grease being thrown on her as a baby, but you never even notice it when she's performing. I mean, she's just beautiful up there. I'm telling you, just... And she died out there in the jungle, you know, to the sounds of screaming children with everybody else. Along with Pop Jackson and Eugene Smith's entire family. It's so fucked up. <laughs> you know, you, you have to know this side of People's Temple in order to grasp the scale of what happened here. Because Deanna Wilkinson's story was not unique. You know, the temple was full of people with stories like that. Old black ladies from the South and the ghetto who had been kicked around their whole lives and found a place of peace and happiness for the first time in their entire lives in their 70s. Men who were drug addicts, gangbangers, pimps, you know, violent criminals who... They they come into the temple through one of the rehab programs or some other way, and these guys not just recover. I mean, they are all smiles, like really joyful. You know, taking care of kids, playing cards and cracking jokes with the old ladies, scooping out soup at one of the temple kitchens. You know, sharing their stories with the next batch of addicts or thugs who come into the temple, telling them how they had been where they were, and now they finally found peace, and and they could too. You know, abused women, prostitutes being treated with respect for the first time in their entire lives. And actually walking around with their heads high. You know, doing things for other people and feeling useful and feeling good about it. And kids who were in the system and on track for an early jail cell or, 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 or cemetery being Brought up by people who really cared about them with other kids in a good environment. And like, you know, like, 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 like Eugene Smith said, just turning around. And they all died out there. You know, over 300 kids. That's a, a lot of them were orphans at the temple was looking after. Oh, man, I can never get through Deanna Wilkinson's story. So I'm going to go ahead and pick this as a place to cut this off. And uh, I couldn't, I can't even type or read that story without it getting to me. And uh, and I've read it so many times and still hits me every time. Uh, so I'm going to take this part uh, as an opportunity to cut this off. I'm going to throw this together and get it out to you. And uh, like I said, the other one is just about uh, ready to go. And when I get home into a quiet place, I'll record it and, uh, and get that one out to you as well. So thanks for listening. <laughs>